I've had a few brushes with unexplainable things in my life, but only one of them felt like an actually dangerous situation. Growing up in Utah, it's impossible not to run into LDS members, Latter-day Saints, I mean, but they were friendly enough to my family. While I never really synced with religion at all in my life, I was an oddball and didn't have many friends. I was swayed to give it a shot as a kid when I was told about all the fun community activities they did together. I know now it was part of an effort to help convert new members, but when you live in Utah, you stand out pretty fast if you're not Mormon. We had just moved into the suburbs. My parents were mending their relationship from a long separation and thought it would be good to get more in touch with the neighbors. I didn't know anyone, of course, and was eager to make friends. Turned out there was a camping trip happening, and my mom thought it would be a perfect chance for me to make friends and to get to know everyone. I fit the age group criteria, and the kids my age also seemed interested to meet me, being the new kid and all. They divided their activities between boys and girls, so I'd be going to an all-girls camp. Girls from the ages of 11 to 17, along with their mothers, aunts, older sisters, or whatnot, who were the camp leaders in charge of organizing everything. I'd been so excited that I remember waking up before daylight for the trip. I waited until my mother was awake, shoveled down my breakfast so she could hurry up and drop me off at the parking lot where they would be loading up everyone and everything. My mother chatted with a few women she had been making friends with as my stuff was loaded up. They were going over the details. My mother was entirely entrusting me in their care, as my sisters were both over 18, so they were too old for this trip, and they weren't amongst the organizers. I would basically be going alone, just with our friendly new neighbors. When the caravan of cars was packed up and ready to finally leave, I'd say there were about 35 of us in total. The morning was still just getting started, and the sun was just barely peeking over the mountains. The drive itself took at least four or so hours as we headed into the deeper mountains. When we finally arrive at the campsite, it was a massive campground property. I don't remember the name of it, but I can remember the layout like it was last week. We'd be staying in our own cabins. I learned there were three other church groups coordinating with us, and we'd be having competitions throughout our stay against them. Our campsite was the closest to the main hall and amphitheater. The other sites were scattered further down from us. Our cabin overlooked a field next to the bathroom and caught a glimpse of the lake a ways away. We could see two other campsites, but the third was buried behind the tree line. During the little assembly that went over the rules and responsibilities on staying on the campground, the owners then brought out this strange contraption. At first, it looked like a megaphone duct taped to a stick. It was basically that, with a car alarm and battery rigged into a PVC pipe, decorated with feathers and beads to make it look even more, well, ridiculous. They said it was their bear alarm. They explained that the nearby ranchers in the area have had a lot of livestock go missing or wind up dead. They suspected bears were the culprits. So they said if we ever heard the alarm go off, 
immediately head to the cabins and stay inside until things were clear. Throughout the day's camping, two cowboy men would ride in their horses and occasionally watch our activities or chat around with the adults. All of the groups took turns feeding them breakfast, lunch, and dinner to thank them and to also make sure all the girls wouldn't be scared or intimidated by them. As you'd expect, every night, whether we were around the fire or we were all tucked away in our bunks, we would share spooky stories. The younger girls were easiest to scare. The older girls liked to say that it wasn't really bears that were in the mountains that we should be afraid of, but something far worse. I rolled my eyes at this and dismissed the stories of Bigfoot, but it would also be the first time I heard about skinwalkers. While one girl was definitely trying to scare us, she claimed she overheard one of the cowboys that was over for breakfast, talking with the adults about sheep that had been killed. The strange thing, he had said, was that they hadn't been eaten, but they were viciously butchered, left to rot in the sun. The cowboy was perplexed at why anything, bear or mountain lion or whatever, would just kill a poor creature for no reason, instead of hunting it for food. Looking back on this, I wonder if maybe the cowboy was exaggerating, to get a chuckle and spook the guests with some exciting stories, or if that girl had made the whole thing up. But by then, we were all sure that we were not going to travel the area alone, and we would preferably stick to bigger groups of three or more. Now, we did have the luxury of a bathroom, but the entire camp had to share it. It was one little cabin with showers and stalls. The water was always ice cold, and the toilets reminded me of the creepy bathrooms from that one scene with the bees from Candyman. Each camp group was tasked with trading off by providing toilet paper for the day for the rest of the camp, but our camp was the only one generous enough to keep with it. During breakfast on one day, one of our camp leaders was frustrated, fuming for having to drive all the way down the canyon and back to bring back more toilet paper because the other camps would not leave the rolls at the bathrooms. They were instead taking them with them. Pretty soon, it devolved into a system. If you had to use the bathroom, you'd have to go to your camp, take a roll with you, and then bring it back. Our group felt the unfairness of it all, that the other camp groups weren't following the rules, and also inconveniencing everyone this way. So, our girls started plotting ways to get back at them. It started off with everyone gung-ho and fired up for revenge. But as the plans were to be put into motion, it fizzled out quick, and our volunteers no longer wanted to risk the trouble of being caught. So it came down to three of the eldest girls, the masterminds of the plan, and then just me. I'd gone into this trip hoping to make friends, after all, so I wanted to prove myself somehow. Since our troops had dwindled down to the four of us, revisions were made, turned out that a smaller group was far more suited to this anyway. One of the girls had brought with them some rubber Halloween masks to scare people during the night. We chose between a devil, a scarecrow, and a gorilla. 
We figured to capitalize on the bear scare paranoia the whole camp had going on. The gorilla mask was the best fit. Our plan was not only to steal back all the toilet paper from the other camps, but also scare them while they were in their cabins. We would be breaking curfew, but we already had the approval from one of the mischievous moms in charge of us. I guess the other one simply was turning a blind eye to our antics, especially since she was the one that had to make the trips down the canyon. To us, we'd be free from being reprimanded, as long as none of the other campers caught us. Now, I was both short for my age and not at all in shape, just fueled by determination. I was praised for being the only younger girl to stick with the plan for the attack, so I was feeling very confident about the whole thing. We had these cheap little flashlights with weak lights to guide us through the dark pathways. The forest surrounding us was pitch black walls. You could only see up the first two or three rows of trees until it became an endless dark abyss. The night sky was clear and gave us a beautiful view of the stars, and the moon sometimes offered to help light our way in the openings. It added this eerie glow to things, but we appreciated the light for being enough, but also not being too much to give us away. As we approached the first cabin, we crouched down behind the overgrowth and got into position, trying to stifle our laughter. One girl put on the gorilla mask. Let's call her Tina. Myself and another girl, named Ashley, grabbed the stack toilet paper they had on one of the tables. We partially unzipped our hoodies and stuffed them as our makeshift bag to make carrying them easier. I watched the other two creep up to the windows, the one without the mask. Let's call her Cat. She got down on the ground to make herself into a makeshift step for the masked girl to boost onto. Tina then began to tap on the window, and soon we heard one scream, followed by a series of screams. I covered my mouth to hold in my laughter, but we still snickered, immediately taking off to hit the next campsite. The next camp went the same way. Though our toilet paper haul wasn't much, that hardly mattered compared to the thrill of scaring all of our rival camp groups. The last camp was the furthest away of all of them, and took the longest to reach, of course. It was up a series of uneven up-and-down climbs, and nestled very close to the forest edge. There were stacks of logs that looked to be sitting there for years, like they had planned to expand the campground but suddenly stopped and abandoned all of their materials. The pathways weren't nearly as smooth. They were rocky and uneven, with tree roots acting as both stairs and obstacles. It wasn't as open as the other cabins were, and appeared much smaller, too. It felt so much darker and cooler here, it was unnerving with how closed off it felt. Suddenly, Ashley whom had been gathering and carrying the spoils with me, offered to take what toilet paper we had reclaimed back to the camp before the final scare. She reasoned we had plenty of toilet paper back, so getting it off our hands would make the clean getaway much more easy. 
I thought back on how Ashley had gotten progressively quiet throughout our scare rampage and didn't seem to be enjoying herself anymore. But we didn't fight her. We let her take some of what we were carrying to head back with. She also asked if I wanted to head back with her, but I wanted to see this to the very end, and I didn't want to call it quits, so I declined. We told her to be careful, and it wasn't until we were finally approaching the cabin that I realized she probably didn't want to go back alone. I suddenly felt guilty and stupid for putting my own wants before hers, but it seemed too late now to go back for her. I was certain I would blow our cover if I tried to leave at that point. After all, Ashley had the better flashlight and would take the paths back, so I reassured myself that she'd be fine. The last camp had the biggest stack of toilet paper, which was proof that they had been the worst hoarders of all the groups. I couldn't even carry it all, even with Tina and Kat stuffing some into their hoodies. We had to go around to the back of the cabin to find their windows, which were small and located high up. But that positioned us right on the tree line. I remember standing there awkwardly and having the odd feeling that I shouldn't dare turn around. The air felt so cold. The sounds of the usual pleasant cricket chirps, the night life, even the calming trickle of the creek that roped itself throughout all the camps seemed to be non-existent. It didn't feel as lively in this patch anymore, like it needed to be quiet and unnoticeable as possible. I was thankful that we weren't the group staying in this particular cabin. Yet, for a moment, I suddenly wished I'd taken the chance to go back with Ashley. Kat and Tina made their attempts to scratch at the window, and had no luck this time. We quietly whispered if they should try another window or just bang on it. I wanted to say, hey, we had a good run, let's head back. But instead, my eyes were looking back at the trees around us. I heard a hefty snap of branches or twigs within the trees, but it echoed in such a way that it was impossible to tell where it was coming from. The older girls finally decided to just rap on the window this time. They told me to get ready, to cut and run, that we'd cut through the trees and head for the small field our cabin overlooked, instead of following the path around to ensure we wouldn't get caught. It would be a long trip back, and the other camps were probably looking for the pranksters already. We'd be making a straight shot back to the cabin instead of following the trails. I didn't even consider the risks or even dangers of ignoring the paths, because I liked the idea of getting away from this cabin even more. This time, Cat had the mask on, so she pounded on the thick window glass, and a series of yelps soon was heard. Then someone shined a flashlight on our makeshift monster. Then there was a series of screams. Cat dropped from her friend. Tina stood up, not even dusting herself off before we all took off. Both were extremely athletic. Cat was on soccer and basketball teams, and Tina was a cheerleader. So they easily sprinted ahead as I struggled to keep up. 
but at least thanks to just following them, running through the trees ended up not being as bad as you'd think, especially when you're forced to block out everything around you and focus on the next person ahead of you. When we made it to the field, we crouched down to get our bearings. They were laughing as I caught up to them. We relished in our victory for a moment, high fives all around, as we made a quick pace back to our camp. But then, in the distance, we heard the bear alarm. It was a high-pitched car alarm you'd hear anywhere, but in the middle of the woods. It sounded horrifying, echoing through the wilderness. We all froze and looked at each other. Maybe we had been mistaken for the supposed bear and triggered the alarm. Or was it real? We didn't stop to chat it over, and immediately the two girls took off without another thought. On top of being unable to keep up with them properly, I was also carrying the biggest load of toilet paper, as well as an awkwardly studded hoodie. I was trying not to drop everything, so that our efforts wouldn't be wasted. Not to mention the tall grass and the bumpy ground had me nearly hopping each step. The two of them quickly lengthened the distance on me, and left me behind. I heard shouting in the distance, and I could see bright lights from flashlights waving around at the trees. I was terrified of being caught by anything, and also overwhelmed by the thought that I was the easiest target to chase after. I was awkward, slow. The other two were leaving me in their dust. My lungs were burning, trying to keep up a good pace. Jay and Tina were already up an incline towards the camp, while I was still approaching it. I looked around me, wondering if I'd be better off running on the more even trail than trying to fight my way through the tall grass and bushes, as well as the steep incline. I stumbled and tripped several times. At that point, I was more panicked and not caring if I dropped anything. But the twinge I felt in my ankle from a fall convinced me I wouldn't make it up the hill easily in my circumstances. It was tempting to look over my shoulder. My senses were screaming at me to do it, to reassure myself I was freaking out over nothing. I was immediately convinced that I had to move faster, as if something was behind me, chasing me. However, I was also torn by fear to do no such thing. Don't do it. You'll see something awful. You'll regret it. What if I turned around and confirmed it? I mean, if I did actually see something... I'd probably panic and fall over, and that'd be it for me. Don't look back. I tried to think as I ran, hobbling in my steps, trying not to stumble every time. Don't look back. Then again, the pressure was getting to me fast. My breath was far too frantic and fear was taking over. Maybe I could get it all to stop if I turned around and saw that nothing was there. So I finally decided. I turned my head to look back anyway. I was just going to twist to look over my shoulder for a second. But then, all the hairs on my neck and arms stood up. It was like something had slid up my spine, 
and changed the entire atmosphere around me. Then I heard a loud crack from behind me in the distance. At first it sounded like a tree had snapped, but then I recalled another noise I'd been introduced to not days before, when we had a contest over what camp team could shoot the most clay pigeons out of the sky. It was a gunshot. No hill or mountain was going to impede me. I didn't look back and just barreled up that hill like my life depended on it. When I made it to the top, I saw the two other girls already across the way and nearing the cabin. I ran diagonally to get in the smoother path again. I could feel every rock embedded in the dirt trying to poke through the soles of my sneakers, but I didn't care. The bulk of toilet paper I was carrying swayed. It was surprising I didn't just ditch all of it on the ground upon hearing that gunshot. When I made it to the cab, they were waiting at the door, waving at me to just get in the cabin. I finally dumped the haul of toilet paper on the ground and rested on my knees to catch my breath. Ashley had made it back just fine. She was already snuggled up in her sleeping bag, yet she wouldn't leave it to join the rest of us. Some of her friends had to go over to her, so she wasn't sitting alone. I had no idea how her walk alone went. We sat in the cabin hearing the blaring alarm outside, with the other shouts and commotion. For some reason, my mind kept focusing on the moment where I almost turned around and the unease within those trees before Cat banged on the window. That night, we weren't alone in the dark woods. There was something with us in the camp that night, something that could have been the same thing the cowboys were looking for. The thing they suspected wasn't a bear at all. That was years ago. I still wonder what they were shooting at, what they were shouting at, what they were chasing, and what may have been chasing me. If you're thinking they were shooting at me, assuming that I was the bear or something, this shot was much more distant, and I would have been in plain sight as I entered the door, so they would have seen it was a person. But still, even after I entered the cabin, the commotion only worsened. The adults never did directly tell us what happened exactly that night. We thought it'd be the talk of the camp the following day, but everyone just stayed quiet, as if it never happened. We never got a scolding lecture at the assembly about not following curfew. All in all, no one cared about our prank. No one talked about our prank, because there was something about the previous night that no one wanted to talk about. But it does seem fitting that we pranksters ended up getting the worst scare of all. Because maybe whatever it was that was there that night didn't care for imposters. Ghosts of Soldiers Corral From Mariana M. This story happened the summer I turned 11. My grandparents on my mom's side used to be outfitters. These are people who take clients on trips in national parks. 
my grandparents had let me and one of my little sisters come along with them. They were taking a family, a mom, dad, two kids, and a grandma. We rode out to our destination on horses and soon set up camp. We were a few days into the pack trip, and my grandpa was going to take us on a day ride, where we would ride around for the day. So we'd all gotten our horses wrangled and saddled. He was going to take us around some old wolf dens, and then we'd eat lunch at the top of this ridge. Now, let me say this. When I was younger, I always liked to ride in the very back of the pack string. So, riding in front of me was one of our wranglers named Sarah. As we were riding to the top of the ridge, I kept hearing the sound of a little girl whispering in my ear. Obviously, this freaked me out a bit, so I asked Sarah to ride behind me instead. We got to the top of the ridge and began to eat lunch. When we got back to camp, we let our horses loose after unsaddling them. As I was playing around in the trees with my sister and the two other kids, I could hear men whispering and talking. It didn't sound like my grandpa or the kid's dad, so I thought that that was a little weird. After that, I walked over to my grandma and told her what happened. She told me that's common here. The place was said to be haunted, as it was a place where soldiers back in the 1800s would stay and wrangle their horses, and the cavalry used to stay there. So that's why it's named Soldier's Corral. Even to this day, it still haunts me to know that I could have been hearing spirits, the whispers of those who perished long ago, those who were forgotten by time. College Wendigo from MML01 The college I went to in Minnesota is very close to the Boundary Waters. It's a huge forested area where no roads or motorized vehicles are allowed. I'm training to be a DNR. It's a nature police officer. For one of their tests, we have to take a two-day search and rescue out in the Boundary Waters and look for our rescue victim. The day we began the test, we were hearing sticks snapping and whistling sounds. One girl in my group even swore she saw a deer standing on two legs in the distance, which we thought was odd. The night we stayed there was even worse. I woke up to the sound of an animal sniffing around our tents. I thought it was a black bear or a wolf sniffing for food lying around. Many of us weren't scared because we all were carrying guns with us. In the morning, there were weird footsteps around the camp. I could make out deer and wolf prints mainly. I didn't think anything unusual at first. Animals just passing through or being tracked by other animals. We found the dummy that was our rescue person, and it was covered in scratch marks. But once again, we all pushed this off. Maybe it was just raccoons being curious. We began our hike back to the ATVs, but something was following the group. Something big. We could hear it following behind us, heavy and easily noticed. 
It wasn't even trying to hide itself. But as quickly as the noises began, they were gone. After those awkward and unsettling couple of days, we went back to campus. The dorms sat by the woods, and my window points out in the direction of them. One night, I looked out the window, and on the edge of the woods were these two big, bright yellow eyes, and they were looking directly at me. I froze when I saw it, trying my hardest to think of the animal that could be. My friend saw me and looked out the window too. She screamed as soon as she saw it. What she yelled, I guess it didn't surprise me, but it shocked me. She was Native American, and I believe she would know a thing or two about these things. What she yelled was Wendigo. She shoved me away from the window, shut all the blinds, and locked everything. That night, she did some chanting and blessings over the dorm. I thought it was weird, but deep down, I was actually scared. For the next few days, I did not see the eyes. Around campus, though, more and more dead animals began to just show up, nasty and half-rotten. My native friend continued to freak out, claiming that it was a wendigo, but no one really believed her. Rumors were going around, saying they keep seeing weird animals at night, walking around the campus. One person even said they heard a horrible scream that kept them up all night. This whole Wendigo thing lasted about two weeks. The last night before it all finally stopped was actually the worst night of my life. I was sleeping, and I'd been awakened by tapping on the window. I turned over and just ignored it, trying to go back to sleep, but the tapping grew louder. I soon became annoyed, so I yelled at it to go away. I was thinking it was someone drunk and trying to annoy me. So I wasn't expecting what happened next. Someone outside, someone who sounded like my mother, spoke. Megan, come on. Open the window. Let me in. It's cold out here. <laughs> she finished with a creepy laugh. I don't know why, but I decided to get up, grabbing my gun, and I opened my blinds. There it was, outside my window, looking down, smiling at me with these sharp teeth and bright yellow eyes. It's hard to describe what it looked like. Like half-rotten deer, half-sickly pale human being. It called me again asking me to open the window in my mother's voice. I quickly pointed my pistol at it, and its smile disappeared. Then the thing screamed. Oh, God, that horrible scream hurt my ears. I couldn't think at all. I shot. Not sure if I hit it, but it did let out another scream and ran away. Everyone in the dorm woke up, freaking out and coming to my room. 
There was a small bullet hole in the window, and the dean of the college was not very happy with me. But I explained that a wild animal had come to the window, trying to get in, and I feared for my life. The dean believed me, considering all the weird occurrences going around. I'm just glad that thing hasn't shown up again. I think it followed us from the Boundary Waters. Everything has gone back to normal now, but I hope I don't see it again. My Native American friend switched colleges soon after. She was so scared that it would come back. It's been over a year, and no signs yet, so let's just hope that's the end of it. To finish up today's episode, I've got a blast from the past. This is a story I covered a year ago. I hope you'll like it. The Man on the Mountain from Huck Finn Location, Washington It was the early summer of my senior year of high school. I had just turned 17 and my girlfriend Julie and I had planned a camping trip with some of our friends to celebrate. We were going to be spending the night on Silver Star Mountain, a short drive of where we all lived. We started the day by packing all of the food and cooking materials into my friend's minivan. Then we drove over to pick up the four friends that would be joining us, James, Marco, Ferris, and Sophia. They all pushed their large backpacks into the van and we were on our way. After about an hour's drive on the highway and another 45 minutes on a narrow dirt road, we made it to the remote trailhead. At this point, it was in the mid-afternoon, which was a bit later than we had intended to arrive, due to a much-needed river swim we had taken on the drive up. We quickly started our ascent, and soon realized this hike was going to be much harder than we anticipated. While we were all very experienced hikers, we had not prepared for how steep the trail was going to be. No matter, we pushed on, and after two hours of straight uphill climb, we came to a juncture on the trail that was not on the map. After a bit of deliberation, it was decided that I would run up one of the trails and attempt to decipher if it was the right path. I dropped my pack and started to jog up the trail, watching my friend slowly disappear behind me. After a few minutes, I came to the conclusion that this trail was the wrong way. It was a dead end. I had stopped in a small clearing with tall bushes looming above me. I was catching my breath when I noticed that a spot in the grass had been flattened, likely by a large deer or a goat. Just then, I heard a rustling to my right. It was in the foliage. I could tell that a reasonably large animal was running off into the woods. After that, I was left in utter and unnatural silence. It was time to get going back to my friends. I ran down the trail, putting the unusual experience out of my mind. We all picked up our bags when I made it back and resumed our hike, eventually making it to the top of the mountain around 6 p.m. For an avid hiker, I can say I've seen some extremely beautiful views but the top of this mountain was the most impressive. It had a 360-degree view of the horizon all around us, 
with forest stretching as far as the eye could see. The place where we were setting up camp was on the peak of the mountains, surrounded by sheer rocky drop-offs. Since we saw the sun slowly creeping towards the horizon, we put up our tents and hammocks. After a period of time, we were able to build a fire in the stinging cold wind. We ate dinner, and then James, Sophia, Ferris, and Marco went off to smoke a joint on the cliff edge. Jolie and I had decided to stay sober the whole trip. We wanted to fully experience everything here. The sun finally set, allowing us to see the most beautiful sunset of my life. James, Sophia, Ferris, and Marco crawled into their hammocks, which were about a hundred feet from the tent that Julie and I were sharing. After a while of shivering in the cold, I drifted off to sleep with my girlfriend in my arms. I woke up in the middle of the night. I grabbed my phone and looked at it to see that it was three in the morning. I nestled back into my sleeping bag and closed my eyes when I realized why I had woken up. There was a faint cry in the distance, a woman's cry, but I soon realized that it sounded more like a man's whimpering somewhere just outside the tent. I immediately assumed it was James. It was only his second time smoking weed and for some reason I thought he may have been having a bad trip. Without thinking, I left Julie in the tent to go help James out and make sure he was okay. I followed the soft crying to the edge of one of the surrounding cliffs, and I looked down over the edge. I saw a figure crouched into an outcropping on the cliff face. He appeared to be weeping. James! I yelled out. Hey, everything all right? I was still assuming it was him, but there was no reply. Then I decided to do something that I wish I never had. I began to descend the cliff to help him. After about thirty seconds of shuffling down the cliff, I looked again down toward the figure. I noticed that James was not wearing his clothes. How did I not notice that before? I continued to crawl down towards him when he slowly looked up towards me. I was filled with a thickening dread that sunk into the core of my being when I noticed this was not James. Instead, it was some strange, skinny man curled into a ball. Tears were flowing down his face and there was a large rock being held in his hands. I watched in horror as he raised the rock with his right hand and quickly brought it down onto his left hand, smashing his fingers. He then let out a deeply pained groan, ah! but he continued to do it, over and over destroying his hand. He then lifted up what remained of his appendage, as if to show me what he had done. I had already frozen up, completely terrified of the man ten feet in front of me. He took a short crouched step towards me, still holding what remained of his hand. I began to climb back up the cliff in a panic, kicking rocks and dirt down behind me. 
<laughs> Another painful groan was released from the man's mouth. I looked back to see the man who was now uninterested in me, continuing to smash his hand to bits. With that, I reached the top of the cliff and yelled for everyone to wake up. I ran towards where everyone was and told them that there was some crazy man on the mountain with us and that we needed to leave. They must have seen the look in my eye because they knew I was not joking. We all began to quickly pack our things when we all began to hear the animalistic screams of pain. Followed by the sounds of rocks tumbling down the mountain. With that, we grabbed our bags and ran down the trail, leaving our hammocks and tent behind. No one spoke on the hike down, and every so often, we could hear his cries in the distance. As we descended down the steep trail. After an hour, we could no longer hear the cries, but still, none of us spoke. Eventually, we got to our van and discovered the left rear window had been completely shattered, with bits of glass hanging off. We quickly piled into the car and drove off, where I recounted to all of them what had happened on the cliff. Despite how disturbed we all were, we all felt lucky to be alive and eventually started making some jokes about how ridiculous it all was. Once we had cell phone service, I called the police and told them what had happened. To my surprise, they took the case very seriously. They did not find a man on that mountain, but they did find a great deal of blood on the cliff face, the very same spot where the man had been. It is now two years later. We all are planning on camping up on the mountain again to prove that we can do it. Despite the excitement that is going along with it, I can't help but feel that this is a very bad idea. Morning Snow Stalker From Some Random Cat I live in a small town in the mountains that's mostly popular with other people who enjoy sports in the snow. Other than that, there's nothing that really goes on here. I used to attend high school high up in the mountains. No idea why they decided to build it so high up out there. But there were rumors it used to be some sort of laboratory, or something along those lines. But of course, I don't really have proof of that. As far as I know, no one does. My school being so high up meant walking there was a pain. You had to walk up a steep, empty street, surrounded with thick forests. This was about an hour walk for me. As often as I could, I would get my mom to drive me to school in the mornings. Only one day there was a huge snowfall, and my mom's little car couldn't make it up all the way. This meant I would have to walk up that mountain, in the snow, in the dark. As it was still around six when I started walking, I had to have a head start because the walk was already long. It would only take longer in the snow. So I started my hike up to the school, listening to that satisfying crunch of fresh snow under my feet. As I got deeper into the mountain, I began to feel more uncomfortable with my surroundings. 
probably because I noticed I was completely alone, other than a lone car driving by every ten minutes or so. As I continued to listen to my footsteps, I noticed they were echoing, which was odd because they never did that before. I figured the crunching snow was causing enough sound to actually cause an echo. I continued to walk until I realized that the sound of that echo wasn't an echo at all. Rather, it was another pair of footsteps trying its best to hide behind my own. I stopped. I looked behind myself to see nothing there. I shrugged, hoping that it was just paranoia. When I began walking again, the echo was gone, only to begin again around a minute later. This really unsettled me. I again stopped to look behind me over my shoulder. But once more, there was nothing there. This pattern repeated about five more times. My confidence was almost entirely gone, and panic had replaced it. I had quickened my pace as much as I could. Any faster, and I'd probably just fall face first into the snow. Eventually, when I did look behind me again, I finally caught a glimpse of my stalker. They were way too tall. I only caught a glimpse of them before they hid behind a tree within the tree line. Seeing something that bizarre and extraordinary, and realizing it's been following you for a while, it causes a deep kind of fear. I stood there frozen, staring at that tree for at least ten minutes, waiting for that thing to come out, but completely unsure I even wanted to see it again. I then convinced myself that I had to run, even if I fell again and again. I turned around and bolted. I sprinted the remaining half hour, not daring to look back. That echo continued from the tree line all the way until I got to the lit portion in front of my school. And when I made it to school, it had been cancelled due to the snow. Thankfully, this time I was able to get a ride down to my house with a friend. After this incident... I refused to walk up the mountain alone ever again. A Horrifying Sight from Jory B. This happened when I was 13 years old. I was with my older brother and my father, playing with my dog in an empty parking lot at around 11 p.m. It was at an old church in Alberta, and it was snowing pretty hard outside. We walked our dog around here quite often, and used the empty lot to just sort of hang out in, and let the dog get some exercise. At that moment, we were running from the dog, trying to get him to chase us, so we could get out all of his energy before we headed back home. It was a dumb little game, but I was pretty slow. To be forward, I'm short. When I ran to the other side of the church, to around the front entrance, waiting for my dog to continue running up to me. He never did. I was confused, so I looked around the corner of the building to see where my dog was. But he was just standing there, frozen in place. When he began to angrily growl and bark, he scared me a little bit. I had no idea why he was so mad or scared. 
That lasted for a few seconds, until his sounds turned into whimpers. Then he ran off to find my dad. I was definitely freaked out back there. I was about to start walking back to dad too, when I heard something like a growl coming from behind me. I was horrified, and I turned around to see what it was, only to be petrified to the spot. There was a humanoid figure standing there, but its features told me that it was no man. The dark figure was about seven feet tall. It had a large snout and legs that were inverted. Its back was heavily arched, with vertebrae popping up under the skin in a grotesque manner. And even weirder yet, it appeared to be wearing some sort of thin, weird cloth-looking material over its body. It didn't look like human clothes, per se, but more like skinned hide. My dad must have seen me frozen there, so he called my name and started walking towards me. The creature noticed his shadow approaching and began to scurry away toward the alley. My dad saw how distressed I was. He asked me what was wrong. I didn't hold back. I explained everything to him. But he laughed at me, telling me to grow up and that it was probably a deer. I said, fine, whatever. But as he was walking back to my brother, I glanced back to the alleyway, and I saw it staring at me. I called for my dad to prove to him that it was still there. But by the time I got his attention, the creature was gone once more. Back in the lot, we started to play some catch with a baseball, until we all heard this loud bang, like a hammer hitting metal doors. It came from the back of the church. My brother was curious, so he walked around the church to see what it was, but I was too scared to go back there. And now I was scared for my brother. Luckily, he came back, having seen nothing around the area. But my eyes were darting around. I was paranoid. When I heard the snap of a twig, I glanced over to a small bundle of trees near the tiny metal fence, and there it was again, just watching me. For what purpose, I have no idea. I screamed for my brother and my dad. They ran over quickly enough this time to finally see the creature walking away. They believed me, so we went home immediately. To this day, I have not seen it again, but this moment will never escape my memory. Encounter with a Phantasm From Kim's A Pseudonym I'm a private investigator living in the South. When people learn that about myself, it's usually met with a certain amount of interest, given that TV has cast private investigators in a very intriguing light. In reality, our lives are usually mundane. More unremarkable vehicles and peeing in bottles than Ferraris and beaches. I haven't seen too many noteworthy or exciting things in my line of work. I've been rushed by a few dogs, harassed by mentally unstable people, and busted plenty of times by an intended subject. But all in all, it's steady, boring work. But I do have one story that's 
for fear of sounding sensational, changed my life. It was January, a month that falls into what myself and my partners know as the dregs of the slow season. When I got the call to work a fairly easy assignment, about an hour and a half away from my home, I was pleased to have it. The assignment was just that, scraps. It was for a gypped and angry car lot owner, who had spent way too much time and patience attempting to locate a woman who he believed had skipped town in a less-than-paid-off SUV. She's got to be in that area. That's where the GPS last hit before it died, I was told. It wasn't scandalous high-profile work, but I was happy to have it. Snow began to fall as I loaded up my equipment bag into the car, stocked with spare camera batteries, snacks, and the like. I kissed my husband goodbye, zipped up my jacket, then plugged in a random address that fell within the last known latitude-longitude coordinates the client had provided from the last ping on the car's GPS. After nearly two hours of sipping coffee and half-heartedly dialing my radio back and forth, the channels crackled weakly as I drove further and further away from modern civilization and into sprawling pastures of the rural back country. Finally, I found myself within the target area. Houses slowly became fewer and further apart as I approached a long stretch of road. The roadway looked gloomy in the haze of the afternoon winter. Its length dipped and craned painfully on for what seemed like miles through farmland. I knew as I proceeded down it, slowly, that it would be a difficult area to set up in. I observed the sides of the road, devoid of any shoulders, and yielding abruptly from pavement to mucky, snow-soaked ditches. I quickly dismissed the idea of just pulling off into the grass. I checked my phone and saw that I had no signal, too. This would be a terrible area to get stuck in with no reception, given that I'd seen no houses for miles and the snow only fell heavier by the hour. Turning around carefully, I drove back towards where I'd come from until a single faint bar appeared in the corner of my cell phone screen. Using the weak signal, I consulted my map and deduced that the long, desolate road I'd come from connected two main highways, and I guessed that the SUV I was looking for was sure to be using it as a throughway. Satisfied, but not convinced, I said goodbye to the idea of mindlessly browsing Facebook all evening and headed back to the area. The sleet sloshed beneath my tires, as I slowed down outside of a small ranch-style home, it was a little ways off the road at the end of a gravel drive. The house was somber, but looked charming with fresh snow settling on its worn roof. I approached the house, the boards of the porch stoop moaning under my boots. I knocked carefully and smiled immediately, so as to appear non-threatening to whomever answered the door. The latch on the other side of the door fell, and shortly after, the door opened. To my surprise, instead of being hit with the contrasting warm air of a home, I was enveloped by a musty, cool draft that seemed to belch up from deep inside the house. Inside the doorway stood a man I gauged to be in his eighties. 
His eyes were brown and sad. His face weathered. His wrinkles sat deep into his face, as if he'd been carved out of the red clay soil that rested just inches below the snow outside. Even though he did not stand taller than myself, he still seemed to look down on me, his broad frame occupying most of the doorway. I smiled wider now, as if to prompt his own sober countenance to do so, but it didn't. Awkwardly, I spoke. I hate to bother you, but I've come all this way to look for a car I believe is in the area. I was wondering if you'd be okay with me sitting at the end of your driveway for a little while, to keep a lookout. I had almost made an art out of playing up my innocent woman status, for my own advantage, and I'd be lying if I said that wasn't what I was doing in the moment. He didn't answer right away. He looked at me, studying me, his face never warming, and only serving to wear me down with silence. For a moment, I felt my damsel facade had finally fallen on unwilling ears. I prepared myself for swift denial, but he just stood there. That's when I took note of his clothing. A plaid shirt tucked into tan slacks ended in slick, black dress shoes. Hardly what I'd expect a gentleman of his age to be wearing in this weather, especially since his home didn't seem to be much warmer than the air outside. He clinched a blue wooden pipe between his teeth, chewing the tip thoughtfully. He looked terribly faint, almost jaundiced, as if my palm might pass right through him if I offered him my hand to shake. Just at that moment, he seemed satisfied with how long he'd studied me, and perhaps deciding I wasn't a threat or trouble, he looked past me to my car, back down to me, then nodded his head in approval. I thanked him, and I was eager to retreat back to my warm car. Crunching snow and gravel beneath my tires, I caught one last look of his door shutting, before I found an unimposing spot near the end of the driveway and began my surveillance. As a woman in this line of work, I've come to be aware of my own environment, it's not my nature, and only came out of habit. I often look into my rear and side view mirrors to check my surroundings. Doing so, I took note of the man's house. It was dark. Even as the sun began to set and darkness creeped into the valley, I never noticed any interior lights in the home. I suspected he may be entirely frugal, keeping as few lights on as possible. That also explained why his home would be so cold. I smirked, remembering how my own father would keep a watchful eye on the thermostat, so as to prevent us kids who refused to put sweaters on from tinkering with the dial. Having seen only two sedans in the hours since I had arrived, I finally phoned it in and began my trek home. The next week passed by and I once again loaded up my car for another assignment, about an hour north of the man's home. I couldn't shake how sad he looked, and wondered whether or not he had anyone to care for him. His absent demeanor and sad, faraway eyes still occupied my mind every now and then. I scratched out a thank you note, bought a box of cookies, and decided I'd leave a little earlier so I could stop by and deliver them to him, 
I felt compelled to show my appreciation for him letting me, a complete stranger, take refuge on his property to do some scummy repo spotting work. By this time, the snow had melted, and the roads were far more formidable, albeit cold and damp. I made the familiar turn off the lonely stretch of road and slowly crunched down the driveway. To my surprise, I found a new car parked near the home, as well as two utility trucks. A woman stood outside, speaking with a man who donned a tool belt and boots, making it easy to surmise his occupation. The woman motioned toward the house, speaking with her hands, and a worker appeared to consider whatever it was she was saying. She looked on at me, trying to place who I was as I stepped out. Calling out a greeting, I approached, the letter and cookies tucked under my arm. I explained who I was and how I was just wanting to say thank you to the man that lived here for his generosity, explaining that I would not have been able to do my job if not for him. I felt a twinge of embarrassment when I realized that I'd never gotten the man's name. This woman studied me with the same eyes as the old man had, only hers were livelier and more skeptical. She told me in an almost accusatory tone that nobody should have been there and that she had only just come up from the north to begin renovating the home to sell. She looked to the contractors with slight annoyance, to which they both denied being responsible without actually being asked any questions. She looked back to me and explained that her father built the home in 1942 and lived there up until his death four years ago, leaving the house unoccupied ever since. She felt completely violated that someone had been squatting in her childhood home. I apologized out of sympathy, while stifling my own fear and bewilderment, that I may have been speaking to a crazed man who was eyeing me, possibly deciding whether or not to do God knows what. She seemed reluctant to go on so I offered up some feigned interest in the home's history in an effort to help her regain some of the autonomy she seemed to lose in light of finding out about the break-in. She walked me around the perimeter, telling me about an old sand pit she played in as a child and how she planned on making it into a garden. She continued through the tour, explaining how she planned to repurpose and restore certain things. The memories seemed to warm her from the inside out, as if I began to disappear while she reminisced. I opened up the box of cookies and offered them to her. I got one out and bit into it. I laughed as I offered her one. Here, that old crazy doesn't deserve these. She forced a half-genuine laugh and took a cookie. She then reached into her back jean pocket and pulled out an iPhone. She switched over to the gallery opening an album of photos she had taken of old Polaroid pictures of the home and its former glory. She swiped as she explained each, and pointed out their original locations. A photo of her as a child, sitting in her sand pit with an old family dog named Baba. A large knockout rosebush that had stood near the entrance years ago, which had been her mother's pride and joy, and she'd spend hours each week pampering it. She swiped through more photos, an old pickup truck, 
her mother holding her infant brother on the stoop that had previously moaned under my boots, a chicken coop surrounded by heritage chickens, and finally, a photo of her father. A broad, weathered man clutching a pipe in his teeth, grinning at the camera, wearing a plaid shirt tucked into tan pants, ending in slick black dress shoes. The Shadow Man Below, from Wicca Boo. As a little girl, I grew up in the backwoods of eastern Pennsylvania. All of my memories of the sticks are terrifying, but my most horrifyingly memorable experience. But this is my most horrifyingly memorable experience. Around the ages of 13 or 14, my best friend's house was always where I stayed. I spent years practically living in her little trailer for the entire summer. I remember winter that year was rough, and we got around six inches of snow during winter break. Of course, I was determined to spend the time off of school at my friend's place, so it wasn't surprising when I ended up stuck for a few days due to the amount of ice and snow covering the roads. The cold weather made for a day of cozy hot chocolate, movies, crafting, and the most important part, a wood-burning furnace. Me and my friend had just finished making some craft. Night had begun to fall onto the sky. The trailer had around seven rooms. A bathroom, four bedrooms, a kitchen, and an extension they built into the back, which served as the living room. The room faced the woods that stretched for miles of untouched land which I knew because we frequently found ourselves exploring it. The extension had a couch, furnace, TV, stand, a chair, two glass sliding doors that pulled out onto a small deck, where her dad kept the logs, and her cats sat delicately as they ate. Beyond the porch, and out of view of the glass doors, by just a tad, was her father's workshop, where he often spent his days and nights, only coming inside to add another log on the flame. My friend and I spent a lot of time in the room because her bedroom was small and the couch in the extension could fold into a full-sized bed. We kept blankets inside the couch, so when it rolled out, we could immediately fall asleep. And with it being a freezing winter night, we passed out under many covers across from the burning wood stove. I found myself hazily awakened by the cold of the door opening as her father walked into the room illuminated by the light of the TV, which my friend finds necessary to fall asleep to. Not until he began walking across the floor did I realize that I was beginning to float. I could see my own body lying on my side, next to my friend. I knew that it was impossible to be awake because I could see myself sleeping. I stopped at the ceiling above the TV. I could smell the wood-burning smell and see the sparks as her dad laid another few logs on the fire. The small bits of snow bootprints melted on the carpet before he stopped to say goodnight to our sleeping figures, then slid the door over to go back out into the shed for a night of work. I watched our still bodies and the fire crackling for what felt like an hour before my eyes shifted to new movement. The sight of something sliding into view of the glass doors from the side of the bed caught my gaze. 
The figure could only be described as a black mass like a shadow. Despite the vivid colors of the TV light that danced across the glass reflecting back, the figure was void of light. Somehow it looked like the spot sucked all the rays into a total darkness, like a black hole that only existed there at one spot and one shape. It was a few minutes of complete silence as I stared at this mass before a shape began to appear. A hand sliding into my line of sight and moving the handle to the sliding door. A slow jerky movement turned the handle and a creak sounded across the walls as the door slid along its frame and cracked far enough open for the darkness to slide through. The familiar cold climate greeted me as my body below my eyes shivered under the covers. The creature had to duck down and bend in order to fit into the glass door frame, which was well below the height of a person. Only as it moved past the reflecting glass did the mass begin to portray the figure of a man. The shape was similar to a human, still devoid of features, entirely black, and even the color in the room seemed to have been absorbed into the void of its body. The thing walked unsteadily, as if it was unable to control its body, like a man with slinkies as feet. With each step, its length seemed to stretch and bend, like it was unable to control the way it portioned itself out. It bent back and forth, closer and further, with every inch closer it stopped. I was soon able to see what appeared to be the dark shadow of a hat upon its head, which rocked back and forth. The figure abruptly stopped and vibrated as it straightened out and reached the edge of the bed, where I lay closest to the doors. He bent rigidly in the middle, but the segments of his body stayed perfectly straight. As he lowered the top part of his frame to face directly down, face to face, with my closed, sleeping eyes, the dark hand jerkily pulled up, as if it was shielding its face, which was non-existent, from the TV light to look at my features better. And just like that, it stayed for another hour, perhaps. I could see myself shaking below. It was as if my subconscious knew that this mass inflicted pure terror and stillness into my body, and yet I could do nothing but watch myself cold and shaking. I had no hands to pinch myself awake from this nightmare. All I could do was watch as this thing stared, not so much breathing or moving. It was just observing me silently in the night. I was confused and horrified how any of this could be real. It was insane, unrealistic. All of a sudden, the creature straightened and hurriedly stumbled toward the door. The frame moved, opened, and closed as he slid sideways out of view of the porch door. A slam echoed outside as the workshop door opened. Familiar bootsteps walked onto the porch, stepping in the ghosts of where the creature's feet had stepped. The sound of boots marched to the door, and then inside. My friend's dad, unbothered, went over to add another log to the wood stove. He left the room after completing his task, then headed toward his room to sleep the rest of the night. I watched as the familiar scene calmed my sleeping face, 
the snow once again melting into boot prints on the floor. Realizing that that thing had never left a mark in or on the carpet, I floated there for hours as the daylight lit the room, and the darkness faded before I slid back into my body below to wake. I set up in astonishment at how vivid my dream had been, as my friend was stirred awake. She said she had a terrible dream a few nights back, and she knew from my face that I may have seen the same thing too. My friend spoke of a man who peered out of her closet and was gone when she woke to check it out. I was baffled by this entire experience, but I've never had sleep paralysis like this before or after, and a mutual friend of ours had claimed to see the same shadow man in that very same friend's house. I know it seems crazy, but I'm convinced that that house, the extension that was built onto it, it rests somewhere it's not supposed to be. The creature was more than just an energy. It was full of dread and malice, filling me with dread as well. I just know that it didn't want me there. It's been many years since I've been to that house, and I don't talk to that friend as much anymore. I can only wonder if it ever came back. Wolf Thing From MM19 I live in Minnesota, and this past winter something weird happened to me. I never had anything paranormal or weird happen to me before, so this still has me in a bit of shock. One day after a big blizzard hit, I decided to go out and take my snowmobile out. I was at least five miles away from my house, riding around in the fields. I began to notice a trail of blood in the snow. I didn't think too much on it. Coyotes were common around here, and they could have possibly been injured or had some prey. But then I saw where the blood was coming from. I found them, three dead coyotes, all torn apart. I'd never seen anything so gruesome in my life. In the distance, I heard a stick snap, and in that moment, I felt pure dread. I kept looking around to see what had made the noise, but I didn't see it at first. Not until I turned back to look straight in front of me, I saw the biggest black wolf with orangish-yellow eyes at least a hundred feet away from me. I was already filled with terror, facing a predator that could quickly tear me apart like it had those coyotes. But then, something bizarre happened. The creature stood on two legs and howled. I was astounded. It went back to all fours, then ran towards me. I snapped back to reality. I pushed my snowbill throttle all the way and flew out of there as fast as I could. I made it home, alive, but a little disturbed. That night I could not fall asleep, because instead of the usual coyote screams and howls, that night was filled with one singular, lone and deep howl, one that I had heard earlier that day, and it was coming from right next to the house. Luckily, I've never seen it again and I couldn't be more thankful for that fact. Creatures in the Brazilian Rainforest 
from SSS 12345. I'm 24 years old. I took a trip to the Amazon rainforest in Brazil four years ago. I was going with a couple of friends, G and F. We had managed to score a trip there, thanks to F's parents who were loaded. We were ecstatic about the trip. It would just be us three guys. We thought we could manage ourselves if we had the help of some guides. We'd be traveling from our small Alabama town to Brazil. The flight overall, I think, was about 22 hours. We left in the afternoon, and we ended up getting there at 3 or 4 in the afternoon the next day, and we couldn't help but sleep much of the way. When we woke up, we were already descending. We could see the Rio de Janeiro airport below us, so I took a couple of pictures. By then, I was wide awake. G and F were coming too as well. We were desperately praying that the descent would be fast so we could get on the ground. And once we had landed, we collected our bags and soon found our taxi waiting for us. The guy in the car spoke no English, so we showed him the map we had. He knew where we were going. The car ride itself took another hour and our destination was some very remote village where our guide, Francisco, was waiting for us. Francisco was an interesting character, about 30 years old, and had wavy brown hair with dark brown eyes. He seemed like the type that did not put up with any crap, and he wore the most serious expression on his face. The three of us shook his hand one at a time. Now Francisco spoke in broken English, but it wasn't so bad that we couldn't understand, but I'll make it clear here whenever he speaks. He gradually opened up to us and got used to us. He planned to take us deep into the rainforest, to some lagoons and the Amazon River itself. We were hoping to see some big snakes and other bizarre animals. We were in the village of Iguape, a neat little quiet place where all the people were warm and friendly. Francisco's family themselves welcomed us, giving us spacey rooms for the night. We had a delicious meal of beans and rice, along with some very delicious chicken, followed by some sweets that I don't really remember too well. The next morning, G shook me awake along with F, telling us to get our lazy rears up. F and I quickly got dressed, and minutes later, Francisco came in and told us to go. The car ride to the lagoon was 20 minutes, since Iguape was roughly full of rainforest itself. This lagoon was small, and by the time we stepped out of the car, the insects and birds greeted us. The humidity was great, and the three of us guys were getting rowdy with excitement, but Francisco calmed us down for a moment. He warned us to pay close attention to him, stating... We are spending two nights with a tribe called the Guarani. They are the friendly tribe, and I've already contacted them. I replied, Well, thank God they're friendly. But aren't there isolated, dangerous tribes here? Francisco answered me, Whatever you do, stay close to the village, if you decide to explore a bit. But you must stay close, and most importantly, when we're on the river, keep your head down low. Sometimes they may fire arrows at us, but don't worry, we're going to be fine. 
G and F laughed. Maybe we'll have shrunken heads by the end of the trip. Francisco's scowl deepened. There's nothing funny. My own friend went too far away from the village and was never seen again. I know it was no animal, because I took a small hunting party out there, and we found arrowheads and blood where he'd been going. I felt a chill. I saw that G's and F's faces had darkened, too. We exchanged glances. I realized this could be dangerous. But deep down, I was still excited and determined to show it. When we arrived at the Guarani's village, we were surprised at their looks. They had tattoos and nose rings. Some wore masks. The leader, whose name I think was Gulan, or something along those lines, awkwardly shook hands with us as he and Francisco conversed in their native language. We got to the boat, and pretty soon we were speeding down the Amazon. The scenery was amazing. We even saw a jaguar staring at us through some trees. We saw alligators swimming through the water. A couple of minutes later, Francisco pointed at the water, and we nearly dropped our cameras. A massive anaconda was gliding through the water. We were in shock. We had seen the top predators of the Amazon in under 20 minutes. This place really was as wild as you would imagine. This snake in particular must have been over 20 feet long, maybe 25, and it was easily 200 pounds. Slowly it sank under the water. Then everything went downhill. Francisco began saying, It can't be possible. We've seen only the dangerous animals. We weren't really sure what he was talking about. It was the rainforest. There'd be plenty more animals to see, right? But Francisco seemed scared all of a sudden, terrified even. He began to try to turn the boat around, and F started fuming, as the three of us weren't ready to leave. But Francisco suddenly jumped at him, putting his hand over F's mouth. Francisco hissed, Hush, boy. These are signals of the wild. There's something dangerous here. The way he said it made me believe him. G must have agreed with me. F calmed down, but was breathing heavily. He seemed mad still. Seeing Francisco act like this, I started wanting to head back myself. I wanted to have fun, and now it was the opposite of that. As I was thinking about this, I realized something that I hadn't before. The rainforest around us went quiet. G and F had already picked up on it. They were looking around. Francisco, for some reason, was breathing heavily. Suddenly, right out of the rainforest, we heard the voice of the leader of the Guarani that we had just met. But that couldn't be possible. They had only had the one boat that we were borrowing, and we were definitely a good five miles away from the village now. The voice spoke in English. Francisco, come here where it is safe. It's dangerous in the water. Our names were spoken right after his. It couldn't have been the same man because their leader did not speak English when we met him. But I knew it was his voice, gruff and raspy like the leader had. Plus he rolled his R's when he spoke, 
The voice seemed to boom around us, and Francisco desperately tried to turn the boat around. But it was stuck. We couldn't move from our place. I was nearly crying at this point. We were far from the village. We had no radios with us. And our phones had no signal out here. And worst of all, there could be tribes out here who could hurt or even kill us. Francisco, what's happening? F asked. Francisco barely whispered reply. It's the Mapinguari. I stammered. Well, what is that? Something clearly didn't want us here, and it may be dangerous. Something like your Bigfoot, Francisco said, crouching lower in the boat. I knew about the Bigfoot legend. Who hasn't heard of it? But I'd never heard stories of them making human-like voices. Francisco whispered, explaining that the Mapinguari hated for people to be in their territory. That we were seen as outsiders, and it would kill us if it got a hold of us. Apparently, these Mapinguari could be up to ten feet tall, and the natives here were known to pray to them. All of a sudden, there was a large splash in the water. All of us turned toward the sound. There, I saw the most disturbing thing I'd ever seen. Some sort of ugly, massive thing was wading through the water. It really was similar to how you'd imagine the American Bigfoot to be. But instead of two eyes, it had only one large, menacing one. There were also two large fangs coming from its mouth that seemed to be about four inches long. Its arms were massive, like if they grabbed a hold of you, they could tear you in half with ease. This big, horrifying thing was coming right for us. G was crying, and Daph was yelling at Francisco, who was frantically trying to make the boat turn to hurry. The creature was swimming towards the boat, screaming in an unnatural way. Nothing of this world could make a sound like that. When it got within ten feet of the boat, it sank under the water. I was certain I was going to die then, I cried and screamed myself. Then, with a stroke of luck, the boat roared to life, and we sped out of there. At the last second, we turned around and saw the creature screaming, emerging from below the water. Back at the village, Francisco barely talked. He contacted a taxi to get us out of there. Back at the Guarani village, everyone seemed scared and quiet. Francisco hit us in one of the rooms, and we stayed quiet. When the taxi arrived, Francisco practically shoved us in the car. We rode away, vowing never to come back. We stayed at Rio de Janeiro the rest of the trip, and by the time we made it back home, we were still shaken. We told our families that the trip was incredible. While that was true... It wasn't entirely a positive sort of incredible. That trip will haunt us for the rest of our lives. Whatever you do, if you plan on going to the rainforest in Brazil, 
Be careful, and know what may be out there. Snipe hunting, from Lilia. I was thirteen or fourteen years old. I'm from Utah. It's home to a lot of urban legends and strange people. If you know where to look, life is relatively normal for me. People like me don't come across trouble unless they look for it, and that happens to be exactly what I did in this story. It was the summer of 2016, near a lake during girls' camp. If you don't know what that is, it's basically a religious activity where all the girls in your neighborhood hop in some cars and camp out in the middle of nowhere with a handful of adults for a little more than a week. I'm not saying girls' camp isn't bad, but boys' camp is worse from what I've heard. One of the girls who had just gotten her driver's license picked up her keys, flaunting them around endlessly before suggesting we go on a drive. At first, I was a bit skeptical. Pranks are nowhere near uncommon during campouts, and the older girls are infamous for it. Even then, I already knew where this was leading: the snipe hunt. My sister had told me about this years before I ever even stepped foot at the camp. Every year, the new girls who were old enough would be asked if they wanted to hunt for snipes with all the other girls. Snipes are supposedly small, hairless, rodent-like creatures. That only come out at night. Originally, all the younger girls were told to put toothpaste on their faces and other stupid things because it supposedly attracted them. In recent years, it's become less about embarrassing the girls and more about scaring the crap out of them. But younger me, always loving to see people suffer, I decided to come with them, already knowing what to expect. After half an hour of sitting in the back of a minivan. Listening to girls blabber about the latest gossip and other things, we stopped on a dirt road somewhere in the forest we were camping in. This was quite literally dense forest. Since we were such a big group, we decided being at a campsite could be too disruptive. One of the leaders of the church had some sort of license or permission to camp in the middle of nowhere in some national forest. It was pitch black. The headlights only illuminated ten feet or so. Showing us only dried-up grass and gray tree trunks, the girls started talking again. Before, as expected, the ringleader of the group subtly slipped in the possibility of snipe hunting. Interest almost immediately seeped into the group, and in no time, every single girl was lacing up her hiking boots outside the cars. The older ones, not so subtly, smirking as they conjured up a plan for the snipe hunt. Younger me sat with her arms crossed in the car with another girl, refusing to join in on the hunt. No one really cared about my hissy fit, and in the end, I was just being a little brat. A couple of minutes later, the sounds of the girls' hoots and laughter faded out into silence, until crickets and critters returned, filling the quiet gap. Me and that other girl, whose name was Grace, weren't really friends; more just acquaintances that pretended to be friends. I watched the still grass lit up by the headlights. There wasn't even a slight breeze running through the dull green-colored strands. It was nearing midnight now. We were bored, and the light conversation between me and Grace died out. The minutes ticked by, and I was starting to regret my defiance towards going with the other girls. 
but I didn't really want to leave Grace alone. This was boring, and Grace was not a very interesting person. Almost as if it was cued, the clock ticked midnight, and the crickets chirping outside all stopped at once. The rustling of leaves in the trees above us also seemed to stop. At first, I hadn't even noticed, but the silence rapidly became deafening. I remember glancing towards Grace in the seats in front of me, then looking out the back of the car. The red shine from the taillights didn't even light up enough to see the ground behind the car. My heart began to pound. She whispered my name, shuffling to a seat in the middle of the car from the front. Nothing happened for a few minutes. The silence stretched out between us and outside. I had slumped in my seat. It made me uneasy to be exposed in a situation like this and Grace crawled into the back of the car with me at some point. A click resounded from the left side of the car. Grace and I began to hold hands only a moment before. I faintly remember her slipping a package of M&Ms into my hand at this point. I'm not sure why she did it. I think she thought it would be comforting, but the crinkling sound as it dropped to the floor was only disturbing. Eventually, the clicking sound registered in my mind. And just like some sort of twisted real-life horror story, my eyes slid towards where it came from. I'm pretty sure my heart skipped a beat. I saw a tall, burly figure stepping into the edge of the headlights the moment my eyes scanned that area. Tears welled up in my eyes, and Grace flinched toward me, practically curling up into my side. What I believe was a man slowly walked in front of the car. My mind took its sweet time figuring out that he was wearing a mask of some sort. Two long horns stretched out on both sides of his head. It kind of looked like an animal skull you'd see in a desert in a cartoon. There were faded red and orange streaks painted neatly on the forehead and cheeks. The most disturbing part were the eyes. I think it would have been less terrifying if they were just two black holes, but instead they were long, open, and wide. You could see the actual man's face inside each slit. He had startlingly blue eyes, pale skin, and wrinkles around the edges as if he were smiling. It seemed like hours before he finally stopped inspecting the car and began looking inside through the windows. I couldn't breathe at this point and was barely aware of Grace pulling me into the crevice where your feet usually were in a car. When I lost sight of the windshield, I didn't see him again. Probably twenty minutes later, the laughter of the girls came back, and they found me and Grace huddled on the floor, tear streaks on our faces. He didn't do anything to us, seemingly didn't even say anything to us, Years later, I've realized he probably looked through the window right above us on the right side of the car and saw us on the floor. While we didn't see him, I'm guessing this caused him to leave soon after. But after we told the girls what happened, they believed us, and we got out of there immediately. But I hate to think about what would have happened if it was just me or Grace left alone entirely in that car. I'm not sure if he had a weapon, but judging by the fact he was wearing a mask in the middle of the woods at midnight, checking into random cars, 
I don't doubt that he did. I consider myself and Grace lucky, and I'm glad the girls came back soon after. Who knows, he may have come back, and maybe he wouldn't have been alone. Skinwalker from the Desert From Sammy Lynn I was 16 years old, living in Nevada. I'm active in the rodeo. This happened in late winter. My brother and a close friend, who for the sake of the story I'll call T, got permission from the local reservation to use their arena to practice roping. We got there early in the morning, so we'd have all the time we needed. My brother's horse and T's are both very even-tempered and don't spook very easily. My mare, on the other hand, will panic at the slightest of things. She can be a handful most of the time, to be quite honest. Since the moment we got there, all the horses seemed to be on edge. But we shrugged it off and figured once they got to know their surroundings, they'd be fine. After spending the better part of the day throwing ropes and chasing cattle, we decided to go for a trail ride to explore the area. By then, the horses seemed to have calmed down quite a lot. Now, there's a river that runs close to the arena, so we decided to go explore down there and check out some animal tracks we had seen earlier. Once we got about 30 yards from the water, we could smell what could only be described as a rotting, dead animal. Then something in the tree line caught the attention of the horses. After that, of course... Mine flat-out refused to go any further. Being tired from a long day and frustrated from the horse's lack of cooperation, we all decided to call it a day. By that time, it was too late to load our gear and horses and take them back, so we decided it was just best to leave them there for the night and stay at T's, as she lived closer than my brother and I. We got their stalls ready for the night, got them fed and watered and headed over to one of T's family's friends, who offered to cook us dinner. After some good food, good laughs, and a few games of pool, the weird encounter by the river was out of our minds. When 9 p.m. rolled around, we all wanted to get some sleep, but I wanted to check on the horses one last time. When I mentioned this, T's family friend warned me it was a bad idea to go out there alone at night. Wanting to respect that, T offered to drive down with me. We piled into the truck and headed back to the arena. It was only half a mile down the road, but the roads were very icy, so we had to drive slower than what I would have liked. Before crossing the bridge that went over the river, this feeling of dread hit me like a ton of bricks. I looked out the window just to be met with these glowing yellow eyes. They're hard to describe. All I know was that there wasn't enough light hitting them to make them glow like that. I'm normally a very rational person, but something in my gut told me that this was wrong. That's when T turned to me and asked if I smelled that awful smell, which I hadn't even noticed until she brought it up. When I didn't respond, she looked at me, then followed my gaze to see the same yellow-eyed glare that I was fixated on. We were both in terror, not knowing what the thing was that was looking at us, because from where we sat, it had to have been at least eight feet tall. There are no animals in these parts that are that big. 
I finally came to my senses and hit the gas. Our truck started sliding, but we caught traction and made our way back to the arena. When we pulled up and the headlight hit the horses, the very first thing I noticed was that my mare hadn't even touched her food, and for her, that is out of the ordinary. She's a bit of a glutton, and normally eats more than her fair share. The other two hadn't eaten either, which again we found odd. But being scared and cold, we got back in the truck and drove back without incident. We got back to tease at about eleven, and as soon as our heads hit the pillows, we were out like light bulbs. I woke up suddenly to my brother grabbing my arm and shaking me. I asked what was wrong. He put his finger over his mouth and pointed to the window. I heard a tapping on the glass and occasional scratching. I looked at the clock and it was 3 a.m. T and I hadn't told him about our encounter at the bridge, but it was late and I wasn't going to tell him now just to scare him even more. Trying to be rational, I told him to just ignore it and try to get some sleep. But I was convinced it was the thing from the reservation, and it had followed us back. I didn't sleep for the rest of the night, and as soon as the sun was up, I woke up T and my brother so we could go get our horses and get home. I didn't want my poor girl out there with that thing any longer. I told T about the tapping and scratching, so after coffee we went to look by her window for tracks. Sure enough, there was what appeared to be deer hooves, but they didn't look like normal deer. The way the pattern of hooves were, it was like the deer was injured, but that still doesn't quite describe it. It only seemed like one pair and not two pairs. After that, I was even more worried about the horses. They were all fine, but the food and water were still untouched. We loaded up, and we were out of there as fast as we could. As we drove over the bridge one last time, I looked into the tree line just to see a massive buck staring back at me. This thing was huge, and it looked rotten and dead. I swear to God, I saw skin falling right off of its bones. His legs were bent in all weird directions. That wasn't even the worst part, though. The worst was its face, because they contained the same yellow eyes that we'd seen the night before. I swear this thing smiled at me or something as we drove away, revealing a sickening smile with yellow pointed teeth. I looked away for a moment, only to glance back again, and by then, the creature was gone. I guess it wanted to get one last scare from us. I still have so many questions from that night, but the only thing I know for sure is that I'm never going back there again. What I Saw in the Siberian Tundra From Russian Werewolf 756 I live in Moscow, Russia. Last summer in 2019, I got an invitation from my grandfather, who lived pretty much in the middle of nowhere in the Siberian Tundra. I was going to be spending a week with him in June. After all, I wasn't about to go in the winter to Siberia, as temperatures can plunge to minus 40 degrees. After my grandfather divorced my grandmother, 
who now lives in Moscow with the rest of my family. He took it to his head to move to the Siberian wilderness, to a cabin he had owned even before he had met my grandma. There he could hunt alone, explore the woods in peace. At least that's how he put it. After a ten-hour train ride to the village of Molta, I met my delighted grandfather as he awaited me. Even as a fifty-nine-year-old man, he was very healthy and enjoyable. On the ride to the cabin, we conversed as if we had been together forever. I was getting more and more excited at every moment. My grandfather discussed his plans. We would hunt two days that week, hike in the deep woods, fish in the nearby creeks. As we pulled down the gravel driveway, I sat there stunned. There was no civilization to be seen anywhere else, and there was just miles and miles of trees. His cabin sat in a grove of neatly lined trees. The sight looked welcoming. As for the cabin itself, it was small, but cozy. It was built of red bricks, and there were about four windows lining it. There was a front porch with two rocking chairs, and I figured that me and my grandfather would watch the stars on some nights. The inside was very nice, with two cozy rooms, a spacious kitchen, and a nice living room with a TV. I unpacked and decided to step outside. My grandfather told me to wait a little bit, that he would have a meal of venison and vegetables on the table soon. I stayed up to about twelve o'clock. My grandpa had gone to bed at about eleven, but I chose to watch some TV for a while. After watching a football game, what we call soccer here, of course, I was getting ready to hit the sack when I heard somewhere in the distance a loud and long howl. It was like someone was being torn limb from limb, howling out in pain. But my grandfather told me that we had wolves in the area. All in all, it was actually exciting to hear one. But still, I felt something was wrong. But I pushed it to the back of my mind. The following day, my grandfather took me hunting for bighorn sheep. We traveled along the hills. My grandfather warned me to stay as close to him as possible. There were wolves and other predators about. I inquired about Siberian tigers, but my grandfather told me there weren't as many in the area. They were bound to be more north. After a long day, grandfather managed to bring down a buck. Not what we were hoping for, but good enough. We didn't spot any of these bighorn sheep which was strange, as my grandfather put it. The next few days were filled with adventure, fishing in the creeks and drilling in salmon that would last us a good while. We trekked in the woods for most of the days, finally spotting bighorn sheep on a day that we didn't bring any hunting gear. On the second to last night, I was to spend in that cabin. That was when all heck broke loose. At about one in the morning... I woke up to the sound of howling. Darned wolves, I muttered, as I sat up in my bed. But, as I listened, I realized there was something different about this sort of howl. It was deeper, like it came directly from the animal's gut. 
If this animal was a wolf, it had to be a big one. Wide awake now, I rubbed my eyes and cautiously stepped out of my room. I wondered if my grandfather was awake. To my surprise, I passed his room and saw him fast asleep. I tiptoed into his room and took out his Remington 700. That animal sounded close, but I thought I would open the door and just peek out, see if I could adjust the scope and maybe catch a glimpse of this animal, perhaps scare it away too. As I carefully opened the cabin door, the howl seemed to get louder. It sounded deafening. I was wondering how in the world my grandfather wasn't awake now. Silly me, I should have woke him up. But being naive and brave, I felt I could take this thing myself if it came down to it. As I fully stepped outside and carefully shut the door behind me, I saw that it was a full moon. The moon was very bright, illuminating the world in front of me. I noticed the area around was quiet. I then had a sudden urge to look to my left. I had this strong sensation something was watching me. There, to the left side of me, and merely poking out from behind a large birch tree, I saw a face. This face looked like a wolf's. But the problem was, it appeared a good eight feet off the ground. The moon illuminated its eyes, which were glowing yellow. The head of the creature was pure white, and it was impossible not to stare at it. I raised the gun, but I didn't need the scope. I had a clear view of the creature in front of me. Then it stepped out from the tree. It was solid white all over a good seven or eight feet tall. Sure, it looked like a wolf, but wolves don't stand on two legs. These legs were very muscular, as were its arms. The thing had claws that could rip off your flesh easily. Then the creature opened its mouth and howled, the same howl I had heard the previous night. It was so deep and guttural, I was so terrified that I just fired at it, not knowing if I hit it or not. I simply ran and opened the cabin door and shoved it back closed after going inside. I locked it, and then I heard my grandfather's voice. What's the matter, grandson? He said, but in Russian, of course. He was very obviously worried as he saw the gun in my hands and my terrified expression. There. There's something outside. I leaned on the door, trying to hear what was going on out there. Suddenly, I heard it. Scratching on the door. It was loud, and then we heard a loud growling coming from the opposite side of the door. It sounded so low, and I thought it was trying to talk. I was shaking, almost falling to the floor, and my grandfather's face was pale. He returned with an AR-15 not long after. What's it doing here? I heard him ask himself. Why? I looked over to him. What do you mean? 
I then realized that the scratching and growling had stopped. It was all quiet, and then a couple of seconds later, we heard the howl again, but it sounded distant. That thing, it has been here for as long as I can remember, my grandfather explained. It's eaten sheep and deer and left their mutilated bodies near my house and by the tree line in the woods. It never leaves me alone. Grandpa, I think we need to leave, I said. The two of us stayed awake for the rest of the night guarding the door. But when the first rays of sunlight streamed through the curtains, my grandfather told me to pack my things. He drove me to Malta, then stayed with me until the train that would take me to Moscow came. I tried to persuade him to come with me, but he insisted that the place was his home, and he had no intention to leave. When I arrived in Moscow, my family was surprised. Understandably so, I wasn't due to return for another day. I explained that Grandpa had some complications at the cabin, and it was for the best that I was sent home. I did tell them I enjoyed my trip, though, which was true until the last night. As for the end of the story, well, I believe the creature to have been a Siberian werewolf, a monster that has been seen in the Siberian tundra, according to my research. And as for my grandfather, I have talked to him on and off, but every time I pick up the phone, he sounds... Well, more sad, weaker, every time we talk. I spoke with him a few days ago, over the phone, but he barely spoke above a whisper. He told me everything was fine, and that he was just feeling under the weather. I feel like this creature is getting the best of him, and I'm wondering if my dear grandpa will survive another month there. I need to do something, and fast, I feel scared for my grandpa's life, and I would do whatever it takes to make that thing leave my grandfather alone. My grandpa has so much to offer the world. Creature in Grand Portage, Minnesota From Mel 756 Let me start by telling you that Grand Portage is one of the most rural places in Minnesota and it's at the northernmost tip of the state. The population is about 722, I think, at most, and it's on the shores of Lake Superior. It is indeed a very beautiful hamlet. We have hunting areas and great places to fish on the lake. In the winter, you can see the northern lights at times, which always keeps me and my family awake when we can see them. I live in a decently-sized house at the edge of the woods, and a couple of meters from the water. Every day you can either take a hike in the beautiful woods, or go to the lake, which is the family swimming pool, basically. As for me, I'm a 30-year-old mother with two children and a husband. We've lived in the area our entire lives. We've loved it forever, and have no intention of moving. Even after the most terrifying moment of my life, it happened one fall day around November. I think it was November. I had decided to take a walk in the woods by myself. It was around 6 p.m., and the sky was beginning to darken. I didn't mind. 
I had walked in the woods hundreds of times at dusk, or even the pitch-black night. Nothing ever happened to me. I didn't realize that that night would change my opinion of these woods forever. I zipped up my coat and walked outside. I breathed in the fresh air and the crisp air made me feel at ease. My husband goes hunting and fishing in these woods from time to time, and he had taught me all the paths in the woods. I took the path leading to the deep woods, and I wasn't worried. As I said, I'd been taught these paths thoroughly, so I knew them like the back of my hand. As I was walking, I saw the occasional rabbit and chubby squirrel, and I was lucky enough to catch a glimpse of a doe and her fawn under the darkening sky. As I walked further into the woods, I suddenly picked up that all the sounds in the woods had stopped. No insects chirping, no footsteps of the nighttime animals. I was confused, but when I would hunt with my husband, he told me that it was because a predator was near. Coyotes, wolves, and the occasional bear. There were also moose in these woods, and since these woods sort of connected with a Grand Portage State Park, I was sure there were hundreds of them. Suddenly, I heard an ear-piercing wail. I had never heard something like that in all the years of my life. No animal in these woods could make a sound like that. Not even one of those screech owls. I picked up on the smell of decay right after that. Like rotting flesh and decaying fish. I pressed my fingers over my nose and gagged. There must have been a very dead animal around here. I realized then that I heard soft footsteps coming my way, but for right now, they were to the left. I turned, but saw nothing. Gradually, the footsteps grew louder, and I turned to run, but tripped on a piece of bark. I then heard something that I would never forget. My five-year-old son's voice was calling me from the right just behind a couple of big oak trees. Mommy! Mommy, is that you? Come here! I found something cool! I wrinkled my face in confusion. My son was obviously not out here. He was in bed at this time of night. Furthermore, he would not come out here alone. He would easily get lost or hurt in these woods. The voice repeated the same thing again, not changing in tone or speed. The voice was my son's, but it was all wrong, too. It seemed as if someone had recorded his voice and played it with static. I was panicking, and as I got up, the thing responsible for talking in my son's voice stepped out from behind one of the oak trees. It was about six feet tall, a bit taller than me. It was lanky, too. The thing's face was horrible. It had the deepest black eyes I'd ever seen. And I knew those two eyes were staring at me. It had no nose, but its mouth was huge. Its skin was pale gray with white. It had no hair on its head, and I could see ribs protruding from its sides. Its arms were super thin, as were its legs, but for some reason, it looked strong. Suddenly, it did what I could only describe as a smile. 
This smile chilled me so much that it felt as if one hundred cold fronts were going over my body. The thing had jagged white teeth. Slowly its mouth seemed to expand even wider, making its mouth almost too big for its face. Then it did something that scared me ever more. It spoke in my seven-year-old daughter's voice, saying, Mommy, it's cold. Let's go home. I managed to let out a scream as I bolted down the path that led back to the house. I ran with everything I had, but I knew that thing was behind me because I heard raspy breathing along with rapid footsteps. It released a series of ear-piercing wails and shrieks, but I did not turn around. As I made it to the clearing, I heard the thing stop. I no longer heard footsteps, but that didn't slow me from bolting up the porch steps and opening the door. I slammed it closed and locked it behind me. My husband, surprised, asked me what was wrong. He was coming out of the kitchen with a bowl of oatmeal. He must have seen the fear on my face as I pulled down the shades of all the windows of the house. When I regained my composure, I managed to sit down and talk with him. To my surprise, he believed me, admitting that on some hunts he had heard shrieks coming from deeper in the woods. I did a lot of research, and the closest thing I could come up with was either a windigo or a rake or something. All I can tell you is, this story is true, but whoever does or doesn't believe it, it doesn't matter to me. I know what I saw, I know what I heard. It wasn't a bear or anything of the like. I never go out at night anymore, and even in broad daylight, I carry one of my husband's hunting rifles, just in case. Something in the Woods of New Jersey From DM5172222 I used to live in Chatsworth, New Jersey. There was a forest nearby, about a five-minute walk away from the house. It was three years ago when I was 18. I loved to go adventuring in it with friends. But once in a while, I would go in alone. This incident that would haunt me forever happened on a Saturday during the summer. On that occasion, I decided to go camping with my friends whose names I'll just refer to as A and C. We hung out for a while at my house, playing video games and watching TV. I remember that A had this strange liking for peanut butter and oatmeal, so he went to the kitchen to make some, while C and I stuck to cold cuts and snacks. Eventually, after two hours of eating and playing video games, we started out towards the woods in my truck, joking and laughing. Entering the woods, we spotted a few snakes and deer. C even saw a rabbit. We eventually parked and started walking. After a full day of this, we were too tired to make our way back to the area that we were supposed to set up camp in. So we decided to set up camp where we were. We all had our own tents, so I decided to set my tent in a small clearing right by a small creek. It was only a one-minute walk away from A and C so I wasn't worried. 
Before we went to sleep, we sat around the campfire, telling jokes and eating junk food. At one in the morning, we finally got tired enough to go to bed. I wish I could have kept that same good mood, but fate had other plans. I fell asleep at around 1.30 and slept until I was awakened. I heard splashing and a twig snapping outside. It was still dark out. I was immediately creeped out. I thought it may have been a black bear. Bears in general can be dangerous. I slowly worked up the nerve to look outside, and I saw a goat. It was a goat drinking out of the creek, but there was something weird about it. The goat had black patches on its back that looked like skin. At first, I thought it was hurt or deformed or even mangy or something, but seeing how calm it acted, I wasn't so sure. Then, in a split moment, it looked directly at me and gave out this crazy yelp that sounded like a cross between a bat chittering and a goat bleating. Then, it unfolded these weird black patches, and I realized they were wings, like bat wings, and it began to fly. I screamed like a baby and ran to where A and C were sleeping to wake them up. At first, they were annoyed, and A said, Poor baby, did you have a nightmare? But then they saw the look on my face, saw how serious I was, and sobered up. They both got up, and I yelled at them that we needed to get out of there, that I would explain later. So we ran back towards the edge of the woods where my truck was waiting. I was sobbing the entire time. C offered to drive, and I got in the back seat, screaming at him to step on the gas. A got in the passenger seat. I had calmed down a little by the time we got to my house. C and A demanded that I tell them what happened. And I told them. They both insisted that I was either dreaming or just crazy. But I know what I saw. The next morning I got up, fired up my Mac, and did some research on what it could have been. And I'm pretty sure I saw the Jersey Devil. Just don't go adventuring in the Chatsworth woods. True Camping Nightmare from S.J. Teaser This happened in 2008. I'm a gay male, and at that time I was in a relationship. My boyfriend, Mark, was 35, and I was 30. It was July 4th weekend, and my boyfriend wanted to go camping. He always went every July 4th, usually going with his ex-wife and son, who's seven. However, now he's out of the closet, and wants me to come along. A little about me. I'm definitely not an outdoors kind of person. I don't like dirt, I don't like bugs or wild animals, and the thought of not having running water or a roof over my head terrifies me. Yeah, I know, I'm spoiled rotten. As reluctant as I was, Mark persuaded me to go, and reassured me that this would be a weekend to remember. Well, he didn't know how right he was. He told me he would be leaving Friday morning, which was the 4th, and would come back Monday morning. Living in a certain place in California, the nearest place to camp for us would have been the Santa Cruz Mountains, 
We were going to go off map in a more secluded area to experience nature and less people. We headed out Friday morning around 7. The ride was about 45 minutes to an hour. On the car ride there, Mark told me about these people that supposedly lived in the mountains. First thought that popped in my head was wrong turn or the hills have eyes. I told him that and he chuckled and said no, but there were similarities. He explained in great detail that these people were uncivilized, not socialized, and unlike the rest of us in society, and could possibly be dangerous if we encountered them. What are they like, cavemen or inbreds or something? I said. Very well might be, he told me. Even though he had never come across any of them, he said that he knows they exist, and has even been told by his brothers that they're out there. Having just heard this, I flipped out, saying it's a good thing he just sprung this on me, otherwise he knows I wouldn't have come along knowing this information now. He explained that he was just letting me know, not to frighten me, but to inform me. He promised that nothing would happen. Oh really, I said, and how can you possibly guarantee me that? I always come prepared, he replied. If you don't believe me, open that glove compartment. Opening the glove compartment, I noticed a leather case. I pulled it out and asked, What's this? But I think I knew what it was. I opened it and right before my eyes was a revolver. So this is your guarantee, huh? Yeah, he said. You should have known on some level that I wouldn't take us out in the middle of nowhere and not have us protected. Well, I said... Seeing it now, I guess it makes me very uncomfortable. Not to mention that if you did bring a gun, then there really is a chance that something could happen. He didn't respond. He took his hand off the steering wheel and grabbed my hand and held it tight. He looked over at me and said that he would never let anything happen to me. That this weekend would be for us to enjoy each other's company. And that's that. You'll see, he said. He did a good job of reassuring me because I didn't think about the gun again. We made it to our destination not too long after that. All around me was just nature. Trees and trees, branches, rocks, and boulders everywhere I looked. I could barely see the sky from all the trees blocking out the sunlight. We began to unload everything from his Toyota Sequoia. I was impressed by what he had brought. It was a two-room tent, a king-sized air bed, and a portable generator with three outlets to run power off of. Wow, maybe this won't be so bad, I said. He smirked that smirk I loved. Now that I think about it, though, I think it was more of an arrogant smirk. Well, my cell phone didn't get any service out there. It was basically little more than an MP3 player. Mark explained that he used the power out here to get some work done during the weekend. He pulled out a laptop from the back seat of his vehicle. What am I supposed to do, play outside while you're working? I asked. Ah, don't be like that. I saw all the books, magazines, and your Nintendo DS, so you obviously have ways to occupy your time. He was right. I did bring things to entertain myself, and was absolutely delighted that I could enjoy them longer with the help of portable electricity. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were uneventful. We took hikes, made campfires, took naps, relaxed, and barbecued. I really did enjoy myself. Until Sunday night. 
We were in bed and Mark was asleep. I was reading an Arl Stein Fear Street book. I love those books, doesn't matter how old I get. It was then that I heard something in the distance. Now, I was kind of used to the little noises of animals like chipmunks and squirrels running around through the leaves, but this sounded more distinct. Footsteps, not that of a four-legged animal. It sounded more human-like, as if someone was trying to walk as quietly as possible. No, no, I thought, this is just my imagination, from reading an eerie book. I set the book down and began to strain my ears more. Closer, whatever it was, it was getting closer. A bear, maybe. I looked over at Mark, who was sound asleep. I wondered what to do, as the footsteps made it to the tent. Right above our heads was a zippered screen window that we had zipped closed, and that was where whatever it was outside had stopped. I held my breath. All I could hear was my rapidly beating heartbeat. I could hear someone breathing. It wasn't Mark. This was coming from outside. I wanted to wake Mark up, but I knew if I did, he would make some kind of noise, and that would alert whoever it was out there, telling them that we're awake. Then I heard a click. I knew that sound, the same click sound of a pocket knife. Oh my god, I thought. This is it. Some stranger's gonna kill us. Dang it, Mark, I thought. I knew this was a bad idea. I then heard a scraping sound running across the tent. It really was a knife, and they were rubbing it along the tent wall. Were they taunting us? I knew this person had to know one of us was awake. Why else would they do that to us? The sound of the blade went all along the side of the tent, then came back around to where we were, then started again. I decided to nudge Mark awake. Mark, I whispered. Mark. He started to groan, and I said, Shh, be quiet, please. There's someone outside. I couldn't see his face or anything for that matter, because I had turned off the reading light. There's someone outside, I whispered. Look. I then saw a flashlight shining into our tent. Mark reached over to the side of the bed, grabbing his case and pulling out the revolver. He yelled, Stop it! Whoever's out there, I have a gun! The flashlight switched off, and whoever it was began to walk away. Not a hurried or panicked speed walk either, just casually strolling away without any light, and it was pitch black out there. Mark held on to that gun as I lay there in horror. It was just silent now. We didn't say a word to each other as we listened for any kind of sound outside. Somehow, after all that chaos, I must have fallen asleep, because I woke up to Mark shouting my name to come outside. I rubbed my eyes and looked at my watch. It was 6.15 in the morning. The sun was only just coming up. I darted up and ran outside to see what he was yelling about. I ran over to him to see him kneeling down beside the tires of his vehicle. They had been slashed. I walked all the way around and they were all slashed. The driver's side and passenger side windows had also been shattered. What the heck? I shouted. 
what are we going to do now? Mark grabbed my hand and said we're going to walk back to the main highway as fast as we could, before whoever did this comes back. My wallet, I cried. I need my wallet and keys and my phone. My phone was still in the tent inside my bag. I rushed over to it, grabbing my messenger bag. But then I remembered my wallet and keys were left in the glove box. Crap. I ran over to the vehicle. I see that the glove box had been torn open, and everything in it was now gone. I started to cry. The situation was too much for me to deal with. My heart had sank into my stomach, and my knees grew weak. I felt as if I was going to faint. Mark, they have my driver's license, my house key, my money, my bank cards, I cried. Mark cursed. It was so loud I heard the echo of it in the distance. Let's go now, he said. It's only about a mile and a half to the highway. We're going to have to flag someone down or find a call box since my phone is dead. Don't say dead, I told him. Weak and scared, I started walking with him down the dirt road we drove just a couple of days prior. As we walked, I could sense that there was someone near us. I had that feeling of being watched. I kept thinking to myself, please let us get out of here in one piece. Mark, I began to say before he stopped me, putting his fingers to his lips. He said, I know, I don't think we're alone either. I can hear leaves crunching out there. I think we're being followed. Just keep moving, and know what I told you on the way here. I mean it. I'll do whatever I have to do to protect us. I won't let anything happen to you. Thank goodness for that gun, I thought. But I wish we weren't in this predicament to begin with. Speedwalking for a while had me tired and thirsty. But I was beginning to hear cars in the distance. We're almost there, I said. Yeah, just a little more. We finally made it to the highway, and I pulled out my phone and finally had signal. Not much battery, but just enough for us to call the police. They were there in less than five minutes. Two patrol cars arrived. Mark explained everything while I sat on the curb. I was questioned about the events and said all my ID cards were stolen, including my house and car keys. The officer told me to cancel the cards right away, and to have my house locks changed ASAP. He suggested also to have the vehicle's locks changed. Two more officers arrived, taking Mark and I back to the camp. I really didn't want to go back there, but having the police with us, I felt a bit safer. Mark had called his insurance and was expecting a tow truck there soon. When we arrived, three of the officers looked around, taking pictures asking more questions, sealing off the area with some yellow tape. They made it look like a real crime scene, which technically I guess it was. The officers asked Mark and I if we had any idea who or why someone would do this. I said no, and furthermore, I only told my mom and best friend that I was leaving, and I didn't even say where. Mark explained he only told his ex-wife who was at home with their son. The officer explained to us that it was most likely an isolated incident, and it could have been someone who most likely didn't agree with our alternative lifestyle. Big surprise, I thought. But even this was extreme, and I wasn't really buying that load of crap the officer was telling us. 
it seemed like he knew more than he was letting on. So what's going to happen now? I said. The officer said, We have your information now and your report. We'll investigate and we'll search for fingerprints and any other evidence. If and when we come up with any leads, we'll let you know. You might have to testify against any culprits we apprehend. Until then, get all your locks changed and cancel all your cards. Let us know if you come up with any new information. Great, I thought. So that's it. The officer couldn't give us any more info as to who or why this happened. About ten minutes later, the tow truck arrived. We gathered all of our belongings. I was confused that nothing in the tent was stolen, not even Mark's laptop. Now, if I let my imagination run wild, I could think of other things that didn't make sense. But I didn't want to go down that path. On the way back to the city, I was in so much disbelief. I wanted to say to Mark, I told you. But he looked hurt and confused, so I couldn't do it. Plus, it sucked to be right. I mean, I really did want to enjoy myself this weekend. It had started out pretty good. I got home immediately, cancelled everything, and had my mom call the locksmith to change the house locks. I made an appointment for my car to get the locks changed and left it in the garage. I was still tense just knowing someone had my address and keys. Even though they couldn't unlock my house door, that wouldn't stop them from breaking in if they wanted to. Nothing ever came of the situation, or if it did, Mark never informed me of it. We spoke about it, and he was constantly checking in with the police department. He bought a new SUV, he didn't want any kind of reminder of that weekend, and I had to agree with him on that. We broke up a few months later for other reasons, and I always wondered if he went camping again after that, or if he ever regretted that weekend. As for me, it's been about twelve years since that horrible weekend. I now live in a different state where people go camping a lot. Good for them, I guess. But I haven't camped since then, and I don't think I'll ever go back. I'd driven up to Oklahoma from Florida to visit my aging mother. I drove instead of flying because I stayed for three weeks and I didn't want to spend the money on a rental car. Also, to save money on a hotel while driving the 1,400-mile journey, I would pull over for a few hours' sleep at a rest area. Usually, just about three or four hours was all I needed, depending on how tired I was. All went well on the visit, and as I headed out on the return home, my plan was the same. I passed through Birmingham, crossed into Georgia, and soon began the turn south towards Florida. I'd wanted to leave earlier in the morning, but I ended up getting on the road after lunch around one. I didn't sleep well the night before, because I was concerned and worried about my mother's health and how, at her age, although she vehemently opposed it, she was about ready for a nursing home. It was around 12.30 or 1 a.m. on the drive when I started getting really tired. It took another 30 to 40 minutes to find a rest stop along the highway. It was dark and pushed back off the road. There was a truck parking down on the side of the premises, and car parking was available all around the area. I pulled in and angle parked a little further down from the entrance to the bathroom to get away from the streetlights that spread about 15 to 20 yards apart along the curb of the sidewalk. 
They provided shadowy light around the few scattered cars parked down the aisle from me. The bathroom and snack machine area were dimly lit, like maybe some of the lights were burned out around it. There were a few other cars parked down the way when I arrived, and I jumped out to purchase a bottle of water from one of the vending machines, then used the bathroom. The place was nice and clean, but for some reason it gave me a really creeped out feeling. There was a heavily wooded area several yards behind the facility that was dark, and I couldn't make it out very well. It was a cool night in late October, and after rolling the back windows mostly down, I hopped in the back seat of my 12-year-old Mercedes S430 with a pillow and got fairly comfortable. I'd set the alarm on my cell to wake me at 4am. After a few hours, I was awakened by a car door from another vehicle that had parked only two spaces to my right. I lifted my head and thought, Sheesh, thanks, bud. There was a tall, lean, nerdy guy with glasses and a long-sleeve white t-shirt on. He shut his door and headed to the latrine. There weren't many cars there to begin with, and now most of the ones that had previously been there when I arrived were gone. I suddenly heard a sharp scream from the bathroom area. I lifted my head again and squinted across the dark walkway and grass yard of the facility. There was an ominous figure dressed in dark clothes with a black hoodie and a shiny object glinting at what light was available that could only have been a knife. I couldn't tell where he had come from, the woods or the bathroom, but it looked as though he was accosting the young man, taunting him. They were off in the distance, and the taller young man that had yelled ran a few paces and turned back to look at the figure. I listened closely as the hooded figure snickered and walked toward the frightened boy. Are you scared? I thought I heard him say, Come on, where are you going? He giggled under his breath. I'll show you something. I'm going to get you. The tall kid had quickly made his way back to his car. He placed one hand on the car and the other on his forehead. I could hear better now. He said, No, 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 not now, please, not now. He seemed to be talking to himself, not to the hooded figure that came closer. He struggled inward and suddenly jerked his sweatshirt off over his head, then slammed his fist down a few times on the top of his car. Not now. He paused for a second or two and looked up. His demeanor had changed. He looked different. His outer shirt and glasses were gone. An eerie metamorphosis seemed to have occurred. He acted like a different person. He had a wife-beater tank top on and he didn't look nerdy at all. The glow from the streetlights bathed his arms in a light that accentuated muscular arms and a powerful chest over a thin waist. He wasn't huge but definitely appeared in great shape. He opened the back door of his car and pulled out a baseball bat. He turned to face the hooded man that had been slowly creeping towards him. The hooded man froze and was suddenly taken aback. The lean, muscular man held the bat in his right hand about a foot up from the handle end and slapped the fat, heavy end in his left palm, making a loud whack sound. I heard him say, So, you want to play games, huh? His voice was low and forceful. Well, come on then. Let's play. Let's play was louder and he spewed it angrily between his teeth. He took one step, then another quick one 
and he began to chase the hooded man figure who wasted no time in turning and bolting for the forest. As they ran away, I decided I had enough rest. I got into the driver's seat, starting up the car and getting the heck out of there. I wanted to call someone, like the most nearby police, but what would I say? I think I'll just get a room next time. The Haunted School from Edgar Zayas This happened around late summer to early fall of 2015, I believe. It's been a while, so I'm not 100% sure of the date. But at the time, I had a group of friends and acquaintances that were interested in the paranormal, as much as I've been since I was a kid, due to experiences I've had all my life. One night, we were all hanging out together, and one of the group, I'll call him Jay, started telling the tale of a school near Lenoir, North Carolina, a town not too far from where we were at the time that had been an all-African-American children's school back when segregation was still a thing in the early 1900s. I have in the following years not been able to find any proof of this story, so I can't be sure how factual it is. I will admit I may have some of the dates he gave in the story wrong due to how long ago it was. Anyway, he told us that back in the 1920s, as the legend goes, the clan came to this school while it was in session and proceeded to lock all the doors with the children and teachers inside, setting fire to the school. Everyone was lost. A few years later, a new school was rebuilt on the site of the fire, and then after several years of operation, the school became too small and was closed after a new larger school was built a few miles away. He then explained that while the new school was in operation, there were several reports by not only students, but also from teachers and other staff members of odd paranormal activity. Supposedly, the later in the day it was, the more activity there was. So we decided to go to the school and investigate the school and see if any of the stories were true. We drove out using one car, and fitting all seven of us in it was a sight to see. Three up front, four in the back, in a mid-sized sedan. It was an interesting 30-minute drive, but once we arrived, and pretty much fell out of the car, we took in our surroundings. We had parked on a little pull-off on the opposite side of the road from the school. There was a chain running across the entrance of the gravel parking lot of the school, which is why we didn't park in the lot. I looked around and saw that the school was broken up into four separate buildings. The main three were set on a graded hill, staggered down with a set of steps running behind the three to connect them. The middle of the three was where the bathrooms and lockers were. The upper and lower levels were where the classrooms were. There was a larger back building that was newer than the rest, and was the gymnasium. It had been built after the rest of the three buildings had been rebuilt after the fire. There were also concrete paths that ran alongside each of the buildings, before the start of the retaining walls that allowed the grade between each layer of the school. We decided to go to the upper building first. We walked up the stairs in the back and entered the building at the top level. Now let me explain that the doors to this building were at least seven to seven and a half feet tall. They were red and metal. One of the doors had fallen off its hinges and lay in the dirt at an angle. We proceeded into the hallway of the building, and we had to be very careful as the floor was rotting and falling in in several places. We could see down into the exposed dirt of the ground several feet below. Debris lay scattered all over the floor. We made our way to the far end of the hallway 
and we entered an old classroom on the left of the hall. As we looked around at the ruined room, we noticed that the windows that were almost all the way to the ceiling were starting to fog up for some reason. Really, to this day, I do not believe that our breath was responsible for this. Then, one of the members of our group pointed out that there was something outside the window that looked out of place. We all started to look toward the windows, and as we watched, a small child-sized handprint began to appear in the condensation at the top of the windows, which were at least six and a half feet off the floor level. At this point, Jay mentioned that the upper building was where the original school stood that had been used as a death trap for the children and teachers back in the 20s. We were all shocked, and some of us were flat out freaked out by this. We decided to make our way back down the hall to see if anything outside the windows could have possibly made these marks. We exited the room, and before we made it more than a few feet back down the hall, we all stopped dead in our tracks. Because at the end of the hall that had the only exit to the building, we saw a shadow figure that was standing just outside the doorway of the building. Now, the reason I know it was outside the building and not inside is because this figure had to lean down to its left just to be able to look in the doorway. The doorway was about seven feet tall. The shadow blocked out the light from the outside as it did. The shadow man had to have been over eight feet tall. It was skinny. Not slender man type of skinny, but a normal fit man's build of kind of skinny. Not bulky or muscular, but fit. We ducked into the next room, which was on our left, on the opposite side of the hall from where the classroom we had just visited was, and it was just a storeroom full of school desks with attached chairs. We waited a few minutes, then myself and another of our group, G, decided to look and see if the coast was clear. We walked back out into the hall and looked towards the doorway. Nothing was there. We told the rest of the group. They followed us as we slowly made our way to the end of the hall, skipping the rest of the rooms in the building, as we were done with this place. When we finally made it to the end of the hall, I volunteered to be the first to walk out the door to see if the coast was clear. We then made our way back down the stairs to the second level. Looking back at the upper building, we noticed that about halfway down the building, there looked to be a doorway with a cover over it, with thin pillars holding it up. Right outside the door under the covering stood what looked to be another figure, probably around six feet tall, that was cloaked in a black robe. I was staring at this figure, trying to figure out what I'm seeing. A couple members of the group started freaking out again, but I'm determined to find out what it was. So I began to walk down the path on the second level towards the figure. This path was on the middle level, so there was at least a twenty foot or more distance between the closest part of the path to the upper building. When I was about 50 feet from the figure, it just faded out of existence. All seven of us saw it fade out. We regrouped at my location after a few moments, and determined that we had all seen it vanish, as we were all looking right at it the whole time. I have to admit, I was even starting to become unnerved at this point, because this was the most paranormal activity I'd been witness to in one place at one time. But we all decided after a while to continue our investigation. We then went down and entered the middle building from the front. As we enter, we see rows of lockers on both sides of the hall. We find that on the left side of the building was the auditorium. A lot of the floor had collapsed in, and we were able to find a path over to the stage. We found a set of jacks 
and a ball lying on the edge of the stage. Kind of odd, but we also found a few other odds and ends lying around, but nothing out of the ordinary, other than the jacks. After we made our way back out of the auditorium and back into the hall, we made our way down the hallway checking out each room, which were mostly bathrooms or shower rooms for the students, and nothing abnormal happened until we reached the end of the hallway. We began to hear something like running down the hallway towards us from the opposite end. I turned to look back as I exited the building, and in the shadows, I see what looks to be the silhouette of a werewolf running on all fours towards us. This creature was in the shadows, and any time it reached the areas of the hallway where moonlight was shining in, it would reset, as in it would disappear and reappear instantaneously back at the far end of the hallway, still running at us. That was it for me. I told everyone else that we needed to go now. I rushed past most of the group, who seemed to be all staring wide-eyed down the hall. I started back down the stairs, towards ground level, but not even halfway down in the gymnasium. We heard the sound of sneakers squeaking, as if a basketball game was being played inside. We all stopped halfway down and listened. Slowly, we crept down the stairs towards the closed double doors of the gym, and as we made it to the bottom step that was ground level, the basketball game noises stopped. For a couple of seconds, there was total silence inside the gym, until the sound of several, as in twenty or more, people running right at the doors to the gym echoed through the building. G and I slammed ourselves against the doors in an attempt to hold them shut against the oncoming footsteps. We yelled and urged the rest of the group to run on ahead and get out of the way. As the last couple of people ran past us, the running footsteps hit the doors almost knocking myself and G to the ground. We held our positions, holding the doors shut as whatever was inside the gym proceeded to slam the door repeatedly for what seemed like minutes, but it must have been 10 to 15 seconds. Then it all stopped. Silence. G and I looked at each other, and without a word we both jumped back away from the doors, waiting for something or someone to come rushing through. But there was nothing. The rest of the group had stopped about 20 to 25 feet down the gravel path, back to the parking lot, and were watching intently as we slowly backed away from the doors and finally turned to walk back over to join them. Back with the group... I noticed that the two girls were looking off towards the chained-off field on the other side of the parking lot from the school, but they were looking back down past the far side of the gym in the field. I glanced back and only saw what looked to be an old mechanical pump for a well. I looked back at them and asked what they were looking at. One of them, J.S., said, Don't you see her? I glanced back and didn't see anything. I asked her, Who? She broke her gaze and looked at me. She said, The little girl in the dress. Then she looked back towards the field. I told her no, I didn't see anything, but we needed to go. So G and I started to usher the rest back towards the car. And as I was the last to cross back over the chain blocking the entrance, I turned back to seal off any spirits from following us from the property. But as I looked one last time towards the field where the pump was, standing right next to it, was what looked to be about a seven to nine year old girl in a white and blue 1940s era dress facing away from me, looking towards the woods beyond. Needless to say, I did what I had to do to seal the spirits from following us, and I bolted back to the car, being the last to pile in the back. Then we got out of there as quickly as we could. As we drove back to the house, we compared notes 
and out of everything I recounted in the story, at least five of the seven of us all saw the same thing and validated each other's accounts. The few occasions that any one of us didn't agree to the rest is when that person had been in the back of the group or had not left the room as we exited prior to the experience, so they had missed the sighting. I can say that I've been to several haunted locations and I've lived in several haunted houses, including a demonic haunting, and even there, I've never seen so much paranormal activity in one place in such a short amount of time as I did at the school. We were there for less than half an hour, and it still ranks as the number one most active haunted location I've been to to this day. Unexpected Occurrence from Candy Dreams As the sun glared down on my pale skin, I suddenly was aware that another coat of SPF 50 sunscreen was undoubtedly required to continue exposing myself to the unforgiving rays reflecting through the windows and landing on me, seemingly directed at me intentionally. I was a 29-year-old lady at this point, so the regrettable memories of previous occasions stampeded to my thoughts causing me to remember multiple times where I neglected to acknowledge the mighty sun's ability to hastily penetrate my skin, leaving its awful sensation mimicking molten magma pulsating throughout my flesh. I was driving in a sketchy, run-down part of the city to meet up with a close personal friend, Damien, whom I'd known for over a decade, and escort him to his residence so he could prepare to go on a date with our friend Bree. As I pulled up to the location he sent me to pick him up from, before I could completely stop the truck from moving, I was alarmed to see he was running faster than I'd ever seen him run, armed with a new .233 rifle he'd acquired only several days before. He desperately jumped into the back of the truck, demanding I go, 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 and hurry. I punched the gas, purposefully running the stop sign at the end of the block, and hightailed it to his place without being allowed to question Damien about the cause of his anxiety. I drove as quickly as I could, nearly crashing several times on the way there. Once we made it to his house, he was standing up, looking from side to side through the scope attached to his weapon, yelling, Go inside! Quickly! I've got you covered! I ran clumsily into his house, sighing with relief once I was able to drop to the sofa, feeling much safer until he burst through the door, jumping from window to window, loudly stating, They're coming to kill me. They're coming to kill me. I was back on edge, inquiring, Who? What? Why? He was obviously not in his normal mood, and was acting bizarre with every action he was taking. He described to me an unbelievable scenario in which, supposedly, about five people were angry at him for talking trash, so they were texting him over and over threatening to kill him and his family and anyone close to him. I attempted to get him to be rational, as the idea anyone would leave so much evidence before committing a crime that's punishable by potentially death is absurd, but he was ignoring my every word. His untrained handling of the weapon was blatantly unsafe, so after only a few minutes I decided it was not wise to prolong this visit. I declared, I'm going to get out of here, and at that very same moment, he decided to flip his gun around. He unintentionally had it directed at me. As I attempted to stand up from the sofa, I crumpled to the floor, incapable of moving my body. I somehow observed myself lying on the floor. I saw Damien attempting to place a call on his phone several times, 
but dropping it from his shaky hands over and over, until he was finally gripping the device firmly enough to punch the keys properly. I was not feeling any emotion at the moment, simply observing the scene playing out in front of me, kind of like watching a dream. Then I heard it, Damien crying into the phone, Someone's been shot, just get here, now! I instantly thought, I've been shot. I don't have time to be dead. My mother's in hospice. My daughter has a broken arm. I don't have time to die. And suddenly, I felt myself going back inside my body. I hadn't realized until those words were uttered that I'd been having an out-of-body experience. It didn't occur to me that my life was in danger. As soon as I was back in my body, though, I was engulfed in unbearable pain throughout my thigh and stomach regions. Damien begged me, Candy, Candy, please tell me you're alive. But I felt if I used any energy to speak, that I would pass out, and the idea of going unconscious was too frightening to me. So I just lay there, focusing all my energy on taking deep, slow breaths, so that I wouldn't panic and hyperventilate. It seemed as though the ambulance took hours to drive to the house, but the police report I obtained much later stated it was about ten minutes from the dispatch that they had arrived. I was unable to assist in getting myself onto the gurney, so the medical assistants had to lift me up, then push my legs down and torso up, so they could view the gunshot wound. I had a hole which entered into my thigh, but because it went through my Samsung tablet before it entered my body, the glass apparently does strange things to bullet paths, not to mention at that moment. I had been changing positions from sitting to standing, so due to the angle of my body and the bullet's path changing from the tablet glass, it exited from my abdomen in the front, right above my pelvis area, leaving what looked to be burnt flesh across my stomach and through my shirt. I was taken to the hospital and signed something before being put under for emergency surgery. When I came to, I found out somehow no bones were broken, and even though the bullet was a hairline away from my artery in my leg, it didn't rupture it, or else I would have bled out before assistance arrived, as Damien was too scared to touch me to even see for himself where the bullet had entered. He was placed in jail for a few days, before I was taken off the medication long enough to contact police and inform them it was an accidental shooting. I was unsurprised to find out the people coming to kill Damien never did follow up on their threats. It was the scariest event in my life, thinking I was going to die and leave my mother to be placed in a nursing home. But I was able to get a wound back, and the awesome nurses encouraged me to stay active, making it possible for me to return home in only six days to attend to my mother's needs. I did have to temporarily use a walker. It's been several years, but I still have fragments of bullets, fabric from my jeans, pieces of glass and bits of computer board from the tablet working their way out of my body. The doctors said it would cause too much tissue damage to remove every small thing from my body, so it was best to allow my body to eject them itself over time. Damien sold his gun as quickly as he could, and since has participated in gun safety courses to be more knowledgeable whilst handling weapons, and he even took some therapy to be able to reduce anxiety in tense situations in the future so that this never happens again. Our friend Bree had been intelligent enough not to come over the day I was shot, due to Damien acting erratic and unstable, and they never did decide to reschedule. 
I hope more people participate in gun safety classes in the future to possibly prevent such accidents from occurring, as well as gun owners having their weapons periodically inspected for proper functioning to ensure that the guns only work when the trigger is pulled. Speaking of which, the NRA website has lists for recalled weapons by manufacturer in case you want to be extra safe. This episode is sponsored by The Sleep-Wake Cycle from Meltopia Productions. Blending supernatural horror with noir, The Sleep-Wake Cycle follows estranged twins, Isaiah and Rosemary. Their mission, to fulfill a secret government agency's directive to bring the U.S. back from the brink of madness. Born with strange abilities, the twins investigate the wellness of a republic ravaged by the great darkness of 1999. With doomsday cults pervading society, horrific conspiracies spun more from truth than fiction, and a creeping feeling that hope itself has fled the land. The twins have their work cut out for them. Be sure to check out The Sleep-Wake Cycle on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Just search for The Sleep-Wake Cycle. How I Met a Demon From Jennifer Marzulli Yes, I actually met a demon, and it was the most frightening experience of my life. This wasn't a dream, nor an astral experience. It was real life. For context, the university I was attending at the time had a prayer room that you can go to and pray if you're religious. It's like a quiet room, or a little designated vacancy where anyone can either pray, have a moment of silence, meditate and unwind, or just get away from the stress of the day and relax. I'm the type of person who keeps to themselves. I'm not really critical or judgmental about people. I don't really look too far into what other people are doing around me. In other words, I just mind my own business. I'm not superstitious whatsoever. I'm more logic-oriented, and I like to think there's a proper reason behind everything. But that's just the way I am. Just a little something about me that'll have more bearing throughout the story. Now, I don't typically have a good memory of things, but on this day I remember it all too well, as if it was yesterday. It's super vivid in my mind, and every time I think about it, I get chills down my spine, because what took place in this particular moment was so frightening that it's literally seared into my brain for the rest of my life. Though I remember every detail as clear as crystal, it's the feeling of indescribable terror that sticks out to me more than anything else. It was my first year at uni, and that day I wanted to find out where the prayer room was located. I asked another student where the prayer room was, and she told me it was on the third floor down at the end of the hall to the right. When I discovered the area, it had a really nice inviting atmosphere. There were no chairs or tables. It was a neatly carpeted little room that was nice and quiet. Now, when the students go to the prayer room during the prayer periods, it was usually just a small number of people who would sit on the carpeted floor and do their prayers. Then they would leave. No one really hung around there for too long. As the story continues, it was about my second week at uni. I'd gone to get a sandwich and a drink in the lunchroom, but it was so loud with the amount of other people chatting and making a ruckus. I didn't recognize anyone, and I didn't want to feel awkward sitting there by myself. Besides, I couldn't even hear myself think because it was so loud. 
so I decided to take my food with me to try to find the prayer room and get through some of my homework and some important paperwork over there. I left the lunchroom and made my way down the adjacent wing to the stairwell, and I descended through the first two floors as usual, but as I reached the third floor, everything was super quiet. I was taken aback by the silence, and the entire segment was completely empty. There were no classrooms or anything in that area. It was completely and totally scarce. I quietly made my way down the hall, and there it was at the right, with a nice little door. Walking through, I looked around inquisitively. It was a very neat, quiet little room, with a beautiful rug and a nice little bookshelf. Mind you, this was between prayer periods, so no one would have been anywhere around the area at the time. I went in and sat down with my things and just took in the solemn stillness for a moment, appreciating the silence. After, let's say, around five minutes of sitting by myself, in walks this girl who looked like an average university student. She had very pale, light skin, but nothing particularly conspicuous about her. No reason for alarm, I took a brief notice of her entrance and continued with my paperwork. She sat down adjacent from where I was sitting. Because of how the room was structured and how small it was, that's not the first spot I would have chosen to sit if there was a person sitting where I was. I was more so expecting her to sit somewhere across from me, where there was more space, but nonetheless I didn't really notice or care. After a few moments, she and I started to chat casually about normal things, like classes and particular studies and courses, things of that nature. But as we talked, she slowly yet subtly started moving closer and closer to me, eventually to the point where our knees were almost touching, sort of diagonally across. It was then that she asked me for help with a paper she was having trouble understanding. Having a generous heart, I said, Sure, what do you need help with? She showed me what it was she needed more clarity on, and as I explained it to her, that's when something ominous began to happen. It was just the two of us alone on the third floor of this building in a small quiet room, and I hadn't felt the least bit threatened by this rather skinny, pale, normal-looking girl who was about the same height as me. Neither had I gotten any odd vibes from her, until this moment. It was literally the scariest and strangest thing ever. It's really hard to explain how this happened. Normally, while I'm trying to explain or talk about something to someone, I would expect some kind of feedback like a simple yeah or aha uh -huh type of gesture. But as I explained the paper to this girl, all I heard was silence. As I looked up from the paper just to see if she understood me or was confused about anything I was saying, the expression on her face was just utterly aloof. Her eyes pierced right through me into my soul. My first thought was that she must have had some sort of mental condition and just kind of zoned out, but that thought instantaneously disintegrated as I frantically addressed her while trying to sound as calm as I could be. After all, I was beginning to feel unsettled. I said to her, do you get it? Is everything okay? There was absolutely no response from her whatsoever. She just sat there with a sort of half-smile, gazing into me and not saying a word. Then her eyes shifted subtly in a way that caused her whole expression and demeanor to exude an aura of absolute pure evil. There are no words to describe it. Looking into her eyes, 
it was like I was looking into the depths of the underworld. This feeling of unadulterated terror began to encompass me as I was starting to freak out inside, like I was having an internal mental breakdown. I was completely frozen with shock and a fear I'd never known before. I couldn't even bring myself to move a muscle. Her eyes grew larger as this demonic scowl formed on her face. I knew that I needed to leave at once. My heart felt as if it was welling up into my throat, and tears began to fill my eyes from the amount of sheer terror I felt, though I didn't cry. However, I couldn't move, because I was so scared, but I knew I had to leave. I knew that I was alone on the third floor and that no one would be in the hall to buffer me from her diabolic fixation, which made my soul scream inside me, breaking me down all the more. I was shouting internally at myself to leave, because I didn't know what would transpire next. She was saying something I couldn't make sense of, but I didn't care. I just wanted to get away from her, trying desperately to will myself to move, and I was panicking. I'd never felt so alone in my entire life. The pure absolute dread and such primal sense of evil was so thick in the atmosphere. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Then somehow, out of nowhere, she goes back to normal and nonchalantly tells me she's going to go use the restroom as if nothing happened. She was back to her mundane, bubbly self. The girl then left the room, however, the feeling of sheer terror was still ever-present, as I intuitively knew that this ordeal was not over. My gut was shouting, telling me this was my final chance to escape, because if I didn't get myself moving at once, what was to come within moments would be nothing short of devastating. In a rush of fierce desperation, I managed to burst out of my petrified condition. My heart sank as I noticed that a lot of my things were still out on the floor. I frantically began cramming my papers, my laptop, my food, and all my other belongings into my bag without order. I don't know exactly how long this took, but it felt as if the task was taking me forever to finish. The degree of imminent danger I felt was grave. I felt as if I was going to vomit, and my hands were trembling. Almost to the point of hysteria, I prayed the girl would not come back before I left that room. I was almost finished packing my things, and right as I was about to stand up, there she was, walking slowly towards me. My heart nearly stopped as I noticed her, and a thrill of impending doom surged through me, as time itself seemed to stop completely in that very instant, like that moment you experience just before you think you'll meet your timely end within the next second. It was by far the most awful feeling I'd ever experienced in my entire life. I want to cry just remembering it. I experienced that dread as she was walking slowly towards me, still not saying a word whatsoever. She wore that hellish demonic scowl on her face again, like before, her eyes piercing through me. This time she was standing, which made her whole countenance astonishingly more terrifying than before. However, I also noticed she was now completely drenched from her head down to about her midsection with what I assumed to be water. I didn't understand this, but I had no time to analyze it. I didn't want her to see me so desperate and panicked. I tried to slow and steady my pace, hiding my trepidation as best I could, and at all costs trying to avoid eye contact with her, or else it could spell disaster. 
If I'd let myself slip up even a little bit, or lock onto her eyes for even an instant, it would have messed me up, and I would have fallen completely apart. Then I don't know what would have happened to me after that. By then, she was almost standing over me. With my utmost fortitude, I ignored her, including the water that was dripping all over me from her drenched frame as much as I could, and I finished packing my things. Finally, I was done, and I arose, hesitantly walking past her, expecting her to strike me down or tear me to pieces at any moment. I felt her ghastly presence behind me, and her gaze piercing into me as I drew closer to the door, but I didn't look back no matter what. These were the most painstaking and gut-wrenching moments of my life, and they seemed to drag on and on. I finally made it to the door and walked through, but the hallway seemed like it was three times longer than I remembered. It was such a long walk, I wanted to run so badly, but that would have given me away, and I didn't want her to see how afraid I was of her. So I just kept walking. I could feel her menacing glare behind me from afar, as the distance between us extended more, and as I finally made it to the stairwell and through the door, I bolted like a gazelle. To this day, I don't know how I made it down those flights of stairs without tripping and landing on my face from the way I ran. I ran until I was finally around the other students in the hustle and bustle of the crowds, where I felt a little more safe. I just sat down somewhere in one of the main rooms, as my hands were still trembling from the ordeal. I was trying to process what happened. Although I felt much safer around the other students, I still didn't feel completely secure in my surroundings, so I kept walking. I wanted to walk all the way home where I felt completely safe and forget about what happened just moments ago. Somehow I feel like there was a higher power watching over me that day, protecting me, preventing that being or whatever it was from harming me and pursuing me on my way out, because I just don't feel like I should have made it out of that situation. It was that feeling of absolute terror and dread that stood out to me more so than anything else that day. But her eyes I will never forget, for as long as I live. They were so hellish and full of utter malice and horror. They were beyond frightening. There are no scary movies horrific enough to depict what I saw in that girl's eyes, nor the terror that I experienced then, for that matter. I don't even like to watch paranormal films because I believe that there's real evil out there in the ethers, and they can even take on the form of a physical person, which is so frightening to even think about. I attended that same university for three additional years, and I've never once seen that girl again. I even went back to that same prayer room many times, and I haven't seen her since. I wonder if she even went to that university. I wonder who she was but I never saw her again. Something Followed Me Home From XO Lil Monster 77 This was hands down one of the scariest weeks of my life. I've heard a local ghost tale or legend a few times about the devil tree. Since my husband is into the paranormal as well, I told him of the legend. It goes, Two girls were found by some fishermen near the tree. The fishermen found ropes still hanging from the tree as they investigated, 
they realized the bodies had fallen from these ropes. They were victims of a serial killer from the 80s. Not to mention local Satanists were said to do rituals around the tree. All that combined freaked out the neighborhood. The county attempted to have the tree cut down, from chainsaws malfunctioning to the teeth falling from a handsaw to the crew tasked with taking it down getting into an accident while attempting to get another saw. It seemed there were forces at work that would not allow the tree to be cut down. Anyway, we thought we would check out that tree. I definitely believe in the paranormal, and my husband is more of a skeptic. He won't believe it until he experiences it himself. We get to the park, and the first thing we encounter is a wild bobcat chasing some prey. That should have told me to go back to the car, but nope, I had to go. To get to the tree, you have to follow along the canal until you get to a small opening, and from there you can see the tree through the brush. Note that this brush had not been around when the girls' bodies were discovered under the tree. During the walk down, I felt a little nervous, because I've had unexpected experiences before, but I'd never sought out something paranormal like this. My husband, on the other hand, has been to Waverly Sanatorium, and the only thing he was worried about was an alligator coming up from the canal. We approach the opening. I take a deep breath, and we head over to the tree. Instantly, I felt even more nervous and kept looking in a spot behind the tree that was covered with vines. It wouldn't be easy, but it would be possible for someone to climb in there. I could see no one or nothing was there, but I just had a bad feeling. My husband walked around the tree, touched it, and convinced me to touch it. I ran my hand across it as gently as possible, and I said that I hope the girls are able to rest easy now. However, my husband decided to berate the tree, because he figured making it mad would cause it to react. I told him to knock it off and be respectful. He apologized, and we stood there for a moment, taking everything in. Now, the entire time we were being swarmed by mosquitoes, I almost left right away, because I tend to be a mosquito magnet, and it was almost impossible to bear. But suddenly, all at once, something in us snapped. My nervousness just vanished, and I felt eerily calm. The mosquitoes didn't bother me anymore, and I wanted to stay there forever. My husband went into a small rage, though. I could see it in his face. As I said at the beginning, there are bobcats and other wild animals in the woods, so it blew my mind when my husband just left me there all of a sudden. He was so full of hate and emotion that he walked right out without me, I just stood there for a moment, unable to get my body to follow. After maybe 30 seconds, I finally got my body to move, and I began to follow my husband. But something in me still didn't want to leave. Once I hit the trail that runs along the canal, the feeling was almost gone. We walked back to the car in silence. Once we got there, my husband apologized for leaving, but he just couldn't handle the feeling of hate anymore. Over the next week, every time I closed my eyes, I would see a dark female figure. I couldn't make out specific features, but I knew that it was not friendly, and I mean it was every time I shut my eyes. I could go outside on the brightest day, close my eyes, and I'd see her. After about a week, our friends offered to cleanse my mind and spirit 
in an attempt to get her away from me. And it worked. But to this day, if I happen to be on the main road that you used to get there, I'll drive past the road as fast as I can safely do so, just to get away from there as quick as possible. At one point, my mother-in-law came down to visit. She stayed at a hotel a little far from us. I couldn't take off work, but my husband and our two-year-old stayed with her while she was at the hotel. Well, while waiting for me to get off one day, she searched for nearby parks on the GPS, and it began to take them miles away to that darn park. There are so many playgrounds and parks around before then, but something tried to get them to go to that one. Once my husband realized where the GPS was taking them, he instantly told my mother-in-law not to go and to find somewhere else. She knows about what happened to us there, so she had no problem traveling a little farther to get away from there. Deadly Typhoon from Gural This story happened 12 years ago to my aunt and her daughters. Take note that the time this happened, she was still pregnant to her fourth and last child. Her first was 11, her second was 5, and her third was 8 months old. I'll tell this story in her perspective, so it's easier to tell. On September 23, 2009, there was news that a new typhoon had entered the Philippines. We encounter a lot of typhoon and storms. At the time, the news stated that this storm wasn't different from the others, so almost everyone ignored the news, like a passing, ordinary, rainy, windy day. Our house was located in Marikina City, only three streets away from Marikina River. My husband worked as a mechanic and went to work early that day, so I was the only one left to take care of my children. Although it was still morning, the sky was dark and the rain began to pour outside. But that was to be expected due to the news of the typhoon the night before. However, as the hours passed by, my worries grew. The rain was strong and didn't let up one bit. Lynn! Lynn! I was startled to hear a knocking at our front door. Someone was calling my name during the rain, so I asked my Tintin to see who it was. It's Manong Makring, she said, while the sound of knocking continued. Manong Makring was our neighbor inside the compound. Go ahead and open the door for them, I told Tintin. I heard Tintin open the door as I was drying my hands with a towel. When I looked around, I almost jumped in surprise to see the water flowing inside the house from the front door. Our house was four stairs elevated from the ground outside, so I was shocked to see the unclear water creeping up the floor inside. Come in, come in, I said to Manong Makring and her teenage son. Sorry to disturb you. The flood is too high inside our house. Manong Makring's house was almost the same level from the ground outside, so to see that the flood reached us meant that the flood would have been hip deep for them. Don't worry about that. Just come inside. Tintin, give them a towel, please. Tintin went to get what I asked. I closed the door right away to slow the water coming in. The flood went up so fast, said Manong Makring. All we could do was let everything float. We couldn't stay there, or we'd freeze to death. Not even fifteen minutes went by, and the flood had risen to knee height in our house. 
All of us were cramped on the bamboo bed, just to prevent getting more wet than we already were. Since the water kept on rising, I asked Manong Mokring's son to pull down the electric outlet to prevent any electrical accident, but we soon learned the appliances were turned off. The electric company probably turned off the power due to the floods. Ma, the water is about to reach the window. All of us turned our heads to look outside. Lo and behold, the water was rising so fast that we'd have no place to go if the water overflowed from the window. I lifted my sleeping newborn baby while thinking what we should do. We were trapped in the house with no way to get out. We couldn't go outside the door because the water was too deep. Higher ground was the only option. So, we had to go to the roof. The problem with that was, there was no way of getting to the roof except outside. Soon enough, the water began flowing from outside the window. We were running out of time. What should we do? Manong Makring wondered out loud. Manoy, who was Manong Makring's son, poked his head outside the window and said, I'll try to swim and reach the roof. I'll need a rope so I can pull you up there. Manong Mokring looked worried, but all we could do was follow through with Manoy's plan. Auntie Lin, and lay down days and your baby. I did as he said. I also covered them up with a raincoat to prevent them from getting too wet. Manoy began moving. He held on to the wood connecting their roof. I told his mother to follow him first so she could help guide and lift my daughters. She was hesitant, but she decided that would be best. My daughters were on the basin, literally floating on the water, when suddenly I heard the sound of a plastic bottle. An idea struck me. I stopped Manong Green from going out and handed her an empty plastic gallon bottle so she wouldn't sink down. I also gave Tintin a plastic bottle so she could float. While we crossed the flood, I noticed that there was a current and it was very powerful. For a moment I worried about Tintin who was holding on to a plastic gallon as a floater. Tintin, hold tight to the rope. The water current is strong. She did as I said until Manoy pulled her up on the roof. We continued to cross from roof to another higher roof by just using wood we saw around. We also met with other people, and they tried to help us. All of us were dripping wet, even my newborn baby, but we had no other choice but to endure it. Night took over the sky, we were at a deep disadvantage, as the sky had been our only light. A group of men who had seen us told us to keep going, pointing out a direction of where we should go. In front of us was a two-story house with a rooftop. All the while, the wind blew cold air that made us all tremble. Seeing my children go through all of this made my heart ache. Would this be the end of us, I wondered. No, I shouldn't think like that, I told myself. My children needed me now. Where was my husband? Was he safe? I had to focus and stand firm for my family. My thoughts were interrupted by the murmurs of the strangers helping us. I soon saw the house with a second floor. Some men nearby were trying to convince a woman to leave her house, to join us to go into a higher place. The woman said she wouldn't go, that they were better off there. My stomach turned when I saw that she was also holding a newborn baby in her arms. After some more convincing, the men gave up as the woman would not budge. The water continued to rise. In the dark sea of muddy water, I could hear the loud cries of a woman calling for help, followed by the cry of a baby. 
Even though people wanted to help her, it was too late now. They were too far out, and the path we used was now underwater. The crying lasted only for a few minutes. Eventually, it turned into a desperate wail. I hugged my daughters tightly, thinking that could have been us. I prayed silently. I was so desperate for the water to stop. The water reached ankle high, despite being on a three-story home. The light post on the street had submerged in the flood. My eyes began to water. Others whimpered around us. Hours passed by, with all of us trembling every time the wind blew. Manong Makring hugged her son Manoy, along with Tintin, trying to keep all of them warm. I held on to days and my newborn baby. Eventually, the pouring rain stopped. It would come and go after that, but before long, the flood subsided and the sun began to rise. Rescuers were going around, taking survivors to an evacuation center. We thought the horror ended there, but we were wrong. The mud on the road was so high, and the street was full of dead bodies, of people who had been trapped in their homes. We were indeed lucky to be able to survive that catastrophe. In the evacuation center, others told their stories about survival. We heard in the news that a couple of dams released water during the storm, which had caused the huge flood. Many lives were taken due to the lack of proper warning. There was still no news about my husband. He didn't have a cell phone, so we couldn't just call him. After a few days, we were able to make our only cell phone work. I told Tintin to message our relatives living in Quezon City. They must have been so worried about us. My sister, who had a car, told us that they would take us to their house, rather than having us stay in that evacuation center. Manong Mokring's relative also took her out of the evacuation center, too. Tintin and Days said that they would go to the restroom, so I told them to go ahead and go, but to come back right away when they were done. When they came back, they were in the arms of my husband, who looked disheveled. With our daughters in his arms, he ran towards me. He bawled his eyes out not caring if there were people watching. I thought I lost all of you. I was ready to run into the flood just to find you. His voice and body trembled as his sob grew louder. My co-worker didn't stop me, telling me that you might be alive somewhere. I wouldn't have stopped from jumping in the water myself. I cried with him. Hush, we survived, that's all that matters now. I said, my voice cracking from the sobs. Later that night, my sister and her husband came to pick us up. They said they were barely able to get here, as almost all the roads were blocked. On our way out of Marikina City, more dead bodies lined up, as did the piles of cars, some of which were flipped upside down in one of the villages we passed by. Some of the most devastating news we heard was about the one mall beside the Marikina River. A lot of bodies were found on the ceiling of that particular mall. The people thought they could survive in there, but it ended up as their graveyard. There was news about missing people all over the place. It could have been us. We could have died, but we were lucky enough to be saved. We were lucky enough that we all made it out alive. The Thing I Invoked From Lair of Ryle B. I'd like to start this story by saying I wasn't in the greatest headspace in the world on that night. 
I felt like everyone and everything around me was collapsing underneath my feet. This is what it's like living with ASD, ADHD, and just to add in as a chaser, depression. Living with these as a full-fledged adult is a marvel of an achievement in any sort. But that's not the reason I write this. You see, with ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder, I have a few quirks or tics. No, they're not as cool as my Hero Academia quirks. Rather, it's annoying. When I'm anxious or nervous, I tend to talk underneath my breath, in full sentences or just repeating a singular word. Anyway, it was on a Wednesday of late September of this year. Being a struggling young adult with trouble trying to function as an adult properly, I'm an active DoorDash driver. It helps pay the bills, it puts an extra few dollars in the billfold, and it drives me to places that are an eye-opener. I live in and around the southwest Pennsylvania region of the U.S. of A. Here, there are seemingly only two seasons, winter and construction. Our state cryptid is called the Squonk, a shaven guinea pig man-thing that melts at the sight of its ugliness with its own tears. Cute, right? And we're swarmed with white-tailed deer, our state animal. I've heard urban tales and legends of the Skinwalkers and Wendigo far too many times. How it is taboo to speak their names, unless you want to draw their attention. How it's forbidden to whistle in the woods, as essentially it's a dinner bell ringing to them. How they can project hallucinations to disorient its unlucky victims. And scariest of all, how they can take the form of different things to prey upon those they stalk. I unfortunately broke one of these rules. While en route to one of the best DoorDash delivery spots, I made a few wrong turns, thinking, eh, I don't need a GPS, right? Well, I got myself lost and wasting gas at a slow grinding rate, so I pulled up good old Google Maps and typed in my destination. It found me a route that took me to a wooded forest, a sketchy one at that. So sketchy, in fact, that Google didn't mention that the road it took me down was closed due to construction. I was furious with Google, and spun around, trying to do it myself, and this is where my quirk kicked in to maximum overdrive. Without thinking of the consequences, I started muttering under my breath as my car takes a beating from the rough terrain. Dang it, dang it, dang it, skinwalker, 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 I hate this, I hate this. About five minutes of me muttering this, I found the right path and headed to the right route. Now what happened afterward? A minute after my tires touched asphalt, black clouds conjured around the entire area and throughout my delivery drive. I was getting suddenly irritable with everything and everyone. My phone was performing poorly for navigation throughout the trip, and gas was the worst of my concerns. My car is a 2004 Santa Fe, and it is a gas guzzler. I'm surprised that I have yet to be stranded on near empty. My brain in the meantime was also kicking my emotional butt. It was like I had a grudge with everyone in my life for their past wrongdoings, and I couldn't do anything about it. I wanted to scream at the top of my lungs. I was furious with everyone over nothing, but it felt needed. Darkness struck. I called it in and closed my app. I made only about forty bucks that night. I noticed my gas gauge was near empty. I drove to the nearest gas station and tried to figure out something with DoorDash fast cash with my girlfriend over the phone. I do have an access card, meaning I get food stamps, so I walked in the gas station 
bought some cold foods as I'm setting up my fast cash for DoorDash and attempting to grab gas. With DoorDash, you can't just walk out with your money and spend it. You have to wait until the payment cycle, which in my case is a Monday. As I'm texting my girlfriend, I try out the fast cash alternative, which deducts a buck ninety-nine, but no dice. I was super enraged at that point, thinking to myself, screw this. If I break down, I might as well do it whilst trying to get back home. So the tedious travel began back to my humble abode in Charleroi, my eyes glued onto the road and my gas gauge simultaneously. I take my journey from the gas station towards Route 30, up until I get onto a road known as Clay Pike. My girlfriend has been on this road plenty of times, as have I, but she always had strange vibes about it, whilst driving on it at night. I never got to experience what she meant, not yet at least. As I'm cautiously watching the road and my gas gauge, my girlfriend is texting me about my recent mood swing. I used text-to-speech to talk to her, but I was so overwhelmed by everything, I just didn't want to speak to her at that point. As she was trying to talk me down, I noticed something about the road I took. Usually there were a few cars ahead of me coming in my direction, and or a few cars behind me, and I could have sworn there was a car behind me, but now the road was ghostly, as if unventured, never having been touched by a single person. I took a gander at my gas gauge when it flashed its low fuel light. This wasn't good in a situation like this. I lifted my eyes back on the road, and I saw what I thought at first was a buck striding along the road. Its eyes shined in my car's headlights as I almost struck it with my car. I parked my car, and that deer was still there, so I took a better look at him, or it. That's when it hit me. The eyes. They were still glowing yellow, as if my car was still shining upon them, even though my lights were perpendicular to this thing now. I also began to notice the body structure of the creature, hunched back with a giraffe-like neck, a blank slate where the mouth should have been, almost two symmetrical antlers on top of a micro-head, thin, almost non-existent pale fur, attiring this cryptid being, and to wrap it all in a nightmare of a creature. When I was about to speed off, I swear I saw it stand up and bend its arms the wrong way, like a human weightlifter, and it ran off on two legs. I was in utter shock of what my eyes had seen. Something unworldly decided to pay me a visit out of the blue. No, I remembered why it came. I had said its name through my quirk when I was lost. Then I was in adrenaline mode, needing to get back home ASAP. As the wild ride seemed more frightening and tense, everything looked twisted around the road. The evergreen trees looked as if they were growing taller and multiplying. My car's headlights provided bearable sight in this advanced darkness that engulfed my vehicle. Trying to look into my rearview mirrors provided no help at all, because all I saw was black and the occasional red brake lights. To make matters worse, and as if it were a sign of an otherworldly being's judgment, I soon came upon another roadblock. There was police tape draped upon my usual route back home, and the only other path to take from there was, ironically, Silent Hill Road. Not pulling up my GPS, I decided to go up the path and act like I knew where I'm off to. Only ten minutes in, everything felt normal, and I felt like I was going in the right direction. 
Everything began looking familiar, from the landmarks to road signs and buildings passing by. It wasn't until I approached a large steel bridge that I felt gaslighted. A police car passed by with its area decaled on the door. West Newton Police Brigade. I parked my vehicle, pulled out my handy-dandy iPhone, and pulled up directions to my house. Half an hour away. I felt anxious. My gas was running lower than ever, so low that the needle was just teasing the E on the gauge. I took a deep breath, cracked my knuckles, and started driving back to the right way back home. Luckily, I made it just in time before my gas ran empty. After that, my girlfriend texted me. She said she had picked up gas for me to fill up just enough to grab gas at the closest station with the cheapest prices. After she helped me fill two gallons, I gave her a tight hug and apologized for my mood. I then told her about what I saw, as she is a believer of the paranormal and otherworldly things. She believed what I'd seen was part of the Fleshgate family. I believe whatever I saw was a Darien variant of the Skinwalker. The legends about calling out their names seems like what it sounds like, a myth. But know this, it is no hoax, fairy tale, or joke. For all my quirk has done in the heat of frustration and anxiety, it ended up attracting something malevolent and predatory. Juniper Woods Ranch from Creepy Clown Girl. I was a 22-year-old girl living with my mom and stepdad in a small community known as Juniper Woods Ranch, which sat just outside of a small town in Arizona. Juniper Woods Ranch got its name from the juniper trees that enveloped the landscape of the community. This was 26 years ago, and at the time the roads were unpaved and rough in certain spots. And when it rained, it was extremely difficult to get in or out, because the creeks would flood. One day, my friend Marilyn, who lived about two miles further up from where we lived, came over and asked me if I wanted to spend the weekend with her at her place, and if I wanted to go to Jerome with her the next day. I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. So I packed up some things, and we got into her truck and drove off towards her house. Now, the further back you get into Juniper Woods the more isolated and scarce the population becomes, and now you're surrounded by nothing but trees and silence. We got to her house and I settled in. We began to talk about different things that girls talk about. Later that evening, as she was cooking dinner, I decided I would go and explore around her property and just enjoy the quiet and beauty of my surroundings. The whole time I was outside, the air felt heavy, and I always felt as if something was watching me. I just felt completely uneasy. Later, we ate dinner, and she asked me if I wanted to watch a movie, and I said, sure thing. So she asked me if I'd ever seen the movie The Howling, and I told her, yeah, I think once. She said, great, that's the movie we're watching, and I said, cool. She puts the movie on, and she goes into the kitchen to make us some popcorn and something to drink, and when she returned... She started the movie. We started watching it, and I then remembered why I only watched it once. There's just something about the howling that unnerves me and literally scares me to death. I don't know. Maybe it's the way it invokes almost raw and pure fear inside of me, and that's why I won't watch it. Even to this day, I still have nightmares. 
After the movie was over, she said, We need to go to bed. We've got a long and busy day tomorrow. Okay, cool, I said. We bid goodnight to each other and she went off to her room. Her house had four large windows in her living room and didn't have curtains on them. So, as I lay on the couch, the light from the moon that hung high that night illuminated almost the entire room. Feeling myself dozing off, I rolled over, got comfortable, and covered my head. I don't know how long I lay there before I heard this low guttural growl and heavy breathing. I think to myself, Okay, you just watched a horror film, and your mind is playing tricks on you, and I need to stop scaring myself. As I tried to get comfortable, I heard the noise again. For whatever reason, I took my head out from under the covers, and I wished to God I hadn't. Standing not but a few feet away, there was something very large, hairy, and staring at me with human-like eyes and intense anger. I quickly threw the covers back over my head and lay there frozen, shaking and thinking that at any time this creature would attack and possibly kill me. Again, I don't know how long I lay there, but soon it seemed like it had moved closer to me because its breathing and growling sounded closer and I could feel its hot breath on me. The smell was overwhelming, nauseating, and I fought the urge to throw up. I took my head out from under the covers. It had moved closer, and I could just now make out what the creature looked like. This creature had to have been standing over seven feet tall. It had a head and snout like a wolf, and hair like a wire brush. Its arms were semi-long, and it had razor-sharp claws. Its legs looked deformed. They didn't look like they should be able to hold that kind of weight or height. And its teeth, dear God... They were long and yellow, and its mouth was dripping with drool. I tried to let out a scream, but nothing would come out. Frozen and unable to move, I just lay there, staring at whatever the heck this thing was as it stared back at me. I don't know if it was from pure fear, but I must have passed out, because the next thing I knew, my friend Marilyn was waking me up, telling me that breakfast was ready. She stops and looks at me and goes, Are you all right, hon? You don't look so good. I couldn't say anything, but what she asked me next terrified me just as much as the creature did. She asked me how I slept and did I see anything scary last night. I don't know what it was or if it was just my imagination. Was my friend Marilyn a skinwalker? I just don't know because I never went back to stay the night at her house again. The Double Haunted Town from Vivi the Fox I used to live in a town in New London, Connecticut. This town was connected to a town called Groton, which was separated by a river, but connected to a bridge. A lot of naval families lived there. We lived in an old house that had a lot of history. It was around during the Revolutionary War era, when the town was set on fire by Benedict Arnold. I've always had a connection to the supernatural as it seemed drawn to my family. I've had many near-death experiences. I recall when I was six years old in that house, when my brother and I played with dolls in my room, 
My brother Joel was only two years younger than me. One day while playing, he saw a ladybug on the window. Joel was kind of a sadistic little kid and he had a lot of issues. He gets up and smashes it on the window. I cried out to him, Stop! It's bad luck to kill a ladybug, you know. He told me he didn't care. Then another one appeared, and he killed it too. I said, stop it. I told him in horror. Then three ladybugs appeared. He just kept killing them. But more and more would take their place. Fourteen, then thirty, then fifty, until the entire window was covered with ladybugs. By then, I was so freaked out. I got up and tried to help him kill as many as we could. But the more we killed, the more appeared. We got so overwhelmed in terror, we ran to our dad and screamed for him to come. We tried to explain in between shallow breaths and sobbing what had happened, until finally we convinced him to look. To our confusion, there wasn't a single ladybug, not even the corpses we left squashed on the glass. He told us, Stop making up stories. You're wasting my time, you knuckleheads. I felt both anger and putrid disgust. I knew what we saw was real. How dare he doubt us? As he turned away, I glanced at the empty window to find one little ladybug crossing the window as if to taunt us. Fast forward to when I was a teen, sometime after the whole neighborhood was knocked down to make an empty parking lot. It's important to mention here, every 4th of July, over the water we'd watch the fireworks on the New London side, back when I lived in that home. But many years had passed since then, and I had almost forgotten our humble little haunted house. Until a certain year when we decided to watch the fireworks on the Groton side across the bridge. On that side was a grassy hill where it was blocked off with a plastic orange tape fence. Part of the Revolutionary War mentioned before took place on this hill, and it was a very bloody battle. And yet, here we were, about 200 people waiting for the fireworks to start, hundreds of years later. On the hill were five militia soldiers doing a 21-gun salute, with old-fashioned muskets. It was so loud it'd make you flinch and your ears ring. Mom asked me to get water for our family, so I had to pass by them. I had a very sick, uneasy feeling in my stomach. I approached the hill where the men were. One of them broke the line and came inches from my face. He gave me a menacing stare as cold as death and slowly saluted me. It sent chills down my spine. I listened to the crowd and 100 people were in awe over the men saying things like, Look at those guys there, or, Wow, those guns are loud. But something was off about this, because a 100 of the others were saying, I don't say anything, I don't hear anything, what are you talking about? When the realization sunk in, all five men vanished before our eyes, sending 100 people into shock. Not believing my own eyes, I asked the man in charge of the fireworks if there was some kind of reenactment today. He looked puzzled and said, No, what are you talking about? I backed away in horror, sprinting with the waters to the safety of my family. Then the fireworks had started. What I learned that day is not everyone can see ghosts, only certain people. I wouldn't go back there even if my life depended on it. I mean, 100 people can't be wrong, can they? Unknown Evil Entity From Homer Eau Claire's 
What I'm about to share happened to my mom before I was born. According to her, I'm not supposed to be the eldest among my siblings. She was four months pregnant when she had a miscarriage. This story is about an unknown evil entity that took my unborn sibling from us. When my parents were newlyweds, they rented a house in Pase, one of the cities here in the Philippines. It's a bungalow with one bedroom. It has a garden at the front and a laundry area at the back. My mom was usually alone during the day because my dad went to work as a cook at a restaurant and would often come home late at night. On the third day, when the sun was about to set, she heard chirping noises, as if it was coming from hundreds of small birds. The sound was so loud, it was deafening. She looked outside the window and saw no signs of any birds. She opened the door and glanced at her surroundings, but she found nothing. Yet my mom could still hear the ear-splitting noise. She was so scared, she immediately bolted for the door. While she was trying to close the windows, she had trouble with a particular one where the hinges got stuck. She had no choice but to leave it open and ran to her room. She locked herself in their bedroom, patiently waiting for my dad. After a while, she noticed that the chirping sounds were inside the house, specifically in the living room. Let me say first that my dad is a bit different. Somehow he knows or feels the presence of these unseen entities. Simply put, he has a gift. Now, when he arrived, he also heard the loud chirping noise inside the house. It's as if it was coming from the walls and ceiling. Instead of getting afraid, he cursed and swore at it, even challenging it to show itself for a fight. Nothing showed up, and the noise slowly died down. After dinner that night, when my mom was about to use the bathroom... She instead saw blood. She then passed out, later waking up in the hospital. The doctor told them they had lost the baby. You might be thinking maybe the chirping sounds have nothing to do with what happened to my mom. Perhaps it was just pure coincidence. That's what I thought at first, until my mom said it happened again. A few months passed. My parents moved to a different house in Guadalupe, still part of Makati City. My mom was pregnant again, and in her ninth month, she heard the all-too-familiar sound, the chirping noise. It was still as deafening as before. The only difference this time was it was coming from a single bird. She quickly ran inside the bedroom and locked herself in without closing the windows. She sat on the bed praying, and at the same time, her hands were holding tightly on the rosary and the Bible. After a few minutes, Something started to kick the bedroom door, causing it to rattle. My mom climbed on the bed with her back to the wall. She knew it wasn't human, because she couldn't see any shadows. And the house door was locked, so no one could have gotten in. The kicking never stopped, until it became more powerful, eventually breaking the door. My mom thought that was it. She was about to die. Instead, she saw nothing and no one came in. When the chirping sound came back, it was now coming from under the bed. She mustered the courage to run and open the house door. She stayed at the neighbor's house until my dad came home. I was born a week later. My mom had a safe delivery, 
and they're glad I came out without any physical defects. My mom claims that the evil entity could not get to me because I was already nine months old and I was too tightly attached to her womb. My mom would go on to deliver four more times and they never encountered that entity again. My decomposing neighbor came to visit me from Toromance. This is a terrifying recent real ghost story that happened to me in mid-July of 2021. I live in a very old town 63 kilometers west of Paris in the north of France. On an average day here, life is so peaceful that the place could almost seem deserted. I moved to this town three years ago with my sister, and we live on the ground floor of a two-floor house, so there's one neighbor above us. Upstairs, there lived a man in his fifties. He was very deranged, constantly calling out the neighbors nearby, having quarrels with them. He even came knocking on my door, asking if he could borrow my TV set. When I told him no, he got very angry and stopped talking to me. A couple of days before the incident that I want to talk about, something disturbing happened to me. I was sleeping, and all of a sudden I opened my eyes and I saw a figure right at my window. It was standing still and staring straight into my eyes. I was stunned for a moment, but then I recognized the silhouette of my neighbor who lives upstairs, standing there with his baseball cap and his frizzy gray hair. In the blink of an eye, I looked again, and he disappeared, as if nobody was there. I thought to myself, how rude is it of a person to come and just stare right into your window while you sleep? But I didn't do anything about it. I'm a person who avoids unnecessary quarrels. I thought maybe my neighbor wanted to ask for something. A couple of days passed, and I noticed a foul smell coming from the drain sometimes in the kitchen. From time to time, the strong stench was coming in waves with the wind through the window, but the source was unknown. I keep my house and all my drains very clean, so there was no obvious source of the stench. Day after day, I noticed that big flesh flies were coming inside our house through the window. My sister and I brushed it off, as it was the time of the big summer heat, and the flies could be just natural phenomenon. Nevertheless, the flies just multiplied. Every time I came home from work, I saw more and more flesh flies in my house. One evening, while I was watching something on the TV, I suddenly noticed a commotion outside. All my neighbors were outside too, in a state of confusion and disturbance, but they remained quiet. There was a huge police van and a couple of regular police cars. My whole street was blocked off by policemen. It was the special police for crime and murder investigation. When I went outside and asked an officer what happened, he explained that there was a deceased person's body found upstairs on the second floor above my apartment. The found body belonged to a man in his fifties, the police reported, and it had been decomposing for several months. I was shocked that just above my apartment, there was a decomposing body and no one even knew. The police officer continued, Currently, we're investigating the case to find the reason of the person's death. We'll need more time. 
But you can go home and sleep in peace tonight. We're on patrol, just in case. The police called in a specialized medical team, and they were preceding the investigations during the whole night until morning. I heard them moving heavy objects upstairs. The big van was for the transportation of some of the deceased person's belongings. When I recall that my neighbor came to look at my window, I remember this was just a week ago. But the police had said that the neighbor had been dead for several entire months. Chills ran down my spine whenever I think about this again. Now I understand that the apparition at my window was not a living person. It was my neighbor's ghost. My neighbor's spirit was not in peace and wanted to alarm everyone, telling people to put his body to rest. Ever since this incident, I see no more apparitions at my window. The flies disappeared immediately after the police and the medical team took care of the case upstairs, and with it, the foul stench disappeared. Escaping the Woods From Kamenon 123 It was the summer of 2012 in Cavan, Ireland. I was playing at my friend Oscar's house with two other friends, Adam and Ken. Oscar's older sister, Emma, also had her friend Sarah over with her. Oscar and Emma's house was on a small row of three houses. Behind the houses was a large field, and behind the field was a huge forest. For weeks, myself, Oscar, Adam, and Ken all discussed venturing into the forest. Oscar said he heard noises from the forest at night and thought it would be an amazing adventure. We agreed to go in and planned everything. We brought food, water, and a BB gun. We asked the girls to come, and they agreed, and so the adventure began. The walk across the field was exciting. We were all discussing what we'd find in the forest and what we'd get up to. We finally reached the edge of the forest, the trees towering over us. There was a small ravine at the edge of the woods, with a little stream running through the ravine. We couldn't find a way across as the forest was at a higher elevation than the field, so jumping from the field was out of the question. Some of us were disappointed and were ready to turn back, but Oscar found a log long enough to cross the ravine. He did so and began trying to walk over it. One by one, we all walked across the log, with Adam being a little anxious before crossing. Before we knew it, we were inside the forest. It appeared to have been planted with the trees in straight lines. This led to the forest having a very eerie vibe, as you could see in all directions, as the forest got darker and darker. The area was also completely silent, as the forest floor was cushioned by a layer of moss all over. Any noise from a bird or a twig was amplified. We walked through the trees, admiring the scenery, and didn't think too much more of it. After a while, we made it to a clearing, it was a small, circular field, nestled in the forest. We knew if we entered the field, we might forget where our path was. The forest extended past the field, and we realized it was way bigger than we expected. So rather than continue walking to God knows where, and potentially getting lost, we turned around and went back. The forest was already silent, but on the way back, it was somehow more silent than before, with not even the occasional bird chirping. The silence was deafening. 
We were walking back in groups of two, myself and Ken at the front, Adam and Oscar in the middle, and Emma and Sarah at the back. Suddenly, we heard a noise from behind us echo through the forest. It sounded like a ghostly, howling laugh. This chilled us to the bone, and we began to pick up the pace. Out of nowhere, the two girls screamed and sprinted past us, Oscar and Adam following suit. I looked back with Ken and saw nothing, and in the confusion we ran after the group. As we ran, I could hear that same howling laughter behind us. It was more frequent and sounded like it was getting closer and closer. I looked over my shoulder and saw nothing on the ground, but up in the trees I saw something black move through the branches very quickly. I went from running for fun to running for my life as I sped up. I reached the ravine at the forest's edge and saw the two girls taking turns to cross the log bridge we made. Ken and I could not wait and we sprinted before jumping across the ravine. After the girls crossed, Oscar came next, but the log snapped underneath him and he fell into the stream below. Ken and I reached down and pulled him up. Adam had no way across and started panicking. We told him to run and jump, but he was afraid to fall in. As I was shouting at Adam, telling him to jump across, I finally saw what we were running from, and it haunts me to this day. It looked like a man, about six feet tall, and black, a black featureless face, black arms, black body, black legs, all black. He stood behind a tree and poked out from behind it, watching us. After seeing the man, I screamed at Adam to hurry. He eventually jumped and just made it across. We then sprinted across the field, the howling sounds fading away behind us. Upon returning to the house, everyone began to tell their version of events. We all heard the sounds of what we were running from, but only some of us actually saw our chaser. We all saw a different number of figures, and our descriptions of them were very different. Sarah and Emma saw a black featureless man and woman walking behind us at a distance before raising the alarm and running. Oscar only saw a woman sprinting towards us after the girl screamed and ran. I was the only one who saw movement in the trees above. Sarah and I were the only ones who saw the lone figure poking out from behind the tree. Adam and Ken saw nothing, but heard the noises. The completely different version of events was confusing us. After this ordeal, we agreed never to set foot in the forest again, and that agreement was set in stone when the forest was totally cut down a year later. Whatever was in that forest before, it is certainly no longer there. To this day, I still try to come up with a logical reason for the encounter, rather than blame the supernatural or paranormal, but I have never reached a conclusion. It followed us home, from Ghost Hazard. I've been around the block a time or two. Enter the obligatory, I'm completely mentally sound, never been high, etc., etc. But I've seen plenty of supernatural occurrences, starting early into my childhood. I could tell you about the staircase we found behind the wall while remodeling, or the ancient rotary phone that rings despite not even being plugged in or even the day I got seven missed calls from my stepfather, who had passed away a week prior in a car wreck. I've never questioned the supernatural. I'm the farthest person from being a skeptic you could ever meet, 
But despite my familiarity with these sort of events, there's one story that still makes my hair stand up on the back of my neck, makes me wonder just what the heck is out there in the places we can't see. To set the scene, I grew up in rural Arkansas. At the time, I was seven or eight years old. My parents and I lived in a double-wide trailer, about half an hour away from the closest large town. We had our own land, and I grew up very comfortable in the woods, night or day. We had this family tradition of sorts, where we'd all pile up into our truck, bring snacks and spotlights, and cruise the dirt back roads that scoured through the deep woods surrounding our house, looking for snakes to run over. We usually did this late at night, anywhere from 11pm to 2am. We called it snake smashing. One night, we decided to go on one of these excursions. I was excited, unaware that I was going to see something that would change my perspective on the natural world forever. We all got in the truck and departed around 1am. We knew these remote trails pretty well and were just enjoying the peaceful solitude of the dark woods, listening to Pink Floyd and eating chips, me shooting at random things with my BB gun through the open windows. Once we arrived at a fork in the road, we realized we'd never been down the trail to the right, only the one to the left. We decided on a whim to see where this road led. Not very far down the road, we came across a gate, one of those metal tube swinging gates that have reflectors and stuff on them. There weren't any private property or no trespassing signs on it, so feeling bold, we got out and swung the gate open. After all, there was no lock on it. We continued down past the gate, the trees clearing to give way to a wide open space. It was an abandoned natural gas drilling site. This was also a somewhat familiar setting, as my father worked in the natural gas field at the time. We drove around for a bit, checking out the pipes and catwalks and such, left behind from the former operation. That's when we noticed something that seemed out of place. In a far corner of the clearing was a large black lump, with something white in front of it catching our headlights. We pulled closer, revealing that the large black lump was some kind of trash pile, seemingly burnt up. It was as if someone had demolished a small house or shed, then strewn a dumpster's worth of unwanted items on top of the rubble, then set it all ablaze. One thing stood out, though. The white shape in front of it, one of those children's rocking horses, the kind you can sit on and hold the handlebars and rock back and forth on. This one looked very old and genuine, like it was handmade. The body was covered in an off-white material that appeared to be cotton-based. It had colored-on features like eyes in the saddle. The wooden rockers in the bottom were smooth and high quality. There was a mane made from these ropes of the same material as the body almost resembling white dreadlocks. The oddest part about this scene was how the horse was placed. It was right at the forefront of the pile, turned broadways so we could see the details. There also wasn't a speck of grime on the thing. When we saw it, the mood kind of shifted. We thought it was kind of creepy, but ultimately went on with our night. And when we got tired, we turned around to head home. On the way back, we kept thinking that we heard deer or raccoons in the woods, but when we'd shine the spotlight into the trees, we couldn't see anything, not even any movement. Eventually, we'd make our way back home. At this point, it was around 3 a.m. 
We pulled up in the dark, approaching our driveway, when suddenly the headlights hit something that made everyone in the truck go completely silent. I swear to the God I pray to every night, with both parents as my witnesses, the rocking horse was sitting in our driveway. It had not only followed us home, but beat us there. My dad had to get out and move it so that we could enter our driveway. As a reminder, we live in the middle of the woods. We don't know any of the neighbors personally, except that they were all old folk, and it was 3 a.m. This was no prank. This has no explanation. That thing followed us home through thick, dark, backcountry roads where we passed no other vehicles. This experience really makes you wonder how this could have happened and what force wanted this thing to appear in our driveway after seeing it miles away in the woods. It just makes me think about how we'll never be able to explain everything around us. Creepy Shadow Person from No Face Zero Zero To begin, I'd like to say I have no specific religious beliefs. However, in my adult years, I've come to believe in energies. So I'm sure that what I came into contact with was a form of negative energy. I don't know if it followed me home that day, or if it had been living in my home lying in wait. My uncertainty is because this place always felt eerie at night, even before the occurrence. I know it's human nature to feel uneasy at night, but I've never experienced this feeling at home before or since. A little background on my home at the time. It was a townhouse complex. As far as I know, nobody died there. I don't believe any historical event happened there either. I do know that there were a few Native American tribes in the area before Europeans pushed them out. The people living in the other apartments never said anything about experiencing the same thing in their homes. I was about 14 years old at the time when it happened. I had come home after hanging with friends. I did smoke some of the devil's lettuce while I was out, so when I got in, I went to my room and fell asleep. I woke up late in the night with an awful feeling. It was like I was startled awake. The room was dark, the house was silent, and looming above me was a smoky shadow figure. Once my eyes locked on it, I was frozen in terror. I literally couldn't move. It was as if some force was preventing me from doing so. I couldn't even cry out. I could see a face that looked vaguely obscured, showing only an outline of a face. It was surrounded by thick, inky smoke swirling around it. Then, after what felt like forever, staring at each other, it slowly started weaving towards me, mouth agape. It was as if it was trying to push its face through a barrier, stretching, weaving, mouth moving like it would help it propel forward. As I watched it creep towards me, I was internally panicking. I tried to swing at it with my right arm, but I couldn't. The only thing going through my head was I have to hit it, or it will get me. This ran through my head repeatedly until I somehow managed to break whatever had frozen me in place. As soon as I swung my arm to hit it, the shadow creature vanished. I slapped the light on and sat there, shaken. I was confused as to what happened. Sometime later, I managed to go back to sleep with the lights on. Now, I wrote this situation off as I wasn't completely sober. I didn't speak of it to anyone because it sounded crazy, so I reasoned with myself that I had hallucinated it. 
I accepted that explanation until my younger sister told me what she saw a couple of months after that. My sister is only younger than me by a year and a half. She didn't smoke at the time either. I'm telling you this so you can understand why her experience can't be explained away so easily. We shared the room along with our much younger stepsister on weekends and holidays. When she was there, our stepdad would check on her sometimes. So when she awoke to find a dark figure standing a few feet away from her bed, she thought it was our stepdad who was in the room. She noted the alarm clock read 12 a.m. After staring at it for a moment, she realized it was far too tall for it to be our stepdad. She found it strange that she couldn't make out any defining features despite the weak light streaming through the window. It was just a dark mass taking the shape of a human form. My sister was scared, so she tried to pretend like she was sleeping still while watching the shadow figure through slightly cracked eyes. Finally, it turned and walked over toward our stepsister's bed. It bent down to kneel on the foot of her bed, then proceeded to rock back and forth slowly. She lay there, each minute feeling endless as her eyes flipped between the clock and shadow person, willing the thing to go away. After ten minutes, it got up from the bed and walked out of the room, closing the door behind it. The next day, my sister asked our mom and stepdad whether they had been to our room the previous night. They replied they had been asleep the entire night. She then went to ask our younger brother, even though she knew it couldn't be him. He was smaller than us at that age, and the figure she saw was clearly taller than our stepdad. No one in the household had ever sleptwalked, and nobody had reason to lie about it. So when my sister told me her account, after what I experienced, it creeped me out. I exchanged my encounter with her, and the whole thing left us feeling disturbed. Sleep Paralysis or a Ghost From Red Star Eyes As a child growing up, my little sister and I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house. It was a large two-story with about six bedrooms between the stories. She and my uncle swore up and down that the previous owner was a criminal who stashed a large sum of money somewhere on the premises and then shortly after passed away but wasn't discovered to have died for some time thereafter. As such, they all claimed that the house was haunted as the man stalked around looking for his hidden money. Add to this the fact that my grandmother was a practicing witch who had an alcoholic, abusive husband for decades. At one point, she decided, in her own words, to call up all the demons of the underworld to punish him for the rest of his days. May they be short and miserable. Then she had a boyfriend who later died working next door by drowning in a tank of chemicals. With all that, you've got a recipe for a house that was very creepy to stay in. This is my most vivid memory of the place. I was probably about nine years old. We were staying with my grandma. My room was at the head of the stairs. In fact, the door directly faced them so you could walk straight up and into my room without stopping. The stairs and floor were very creaky so it was impossible to step without making noise. When we were all there, we'd have to share beds, so I'd bunk down with my uncle. One night, I heard someone walking heavily downstairs. I'm not sure what time it was, just that it was dark outside. I think it sounded like it came from the basement stairs, but that could be thirty years fogging my memory. I know that I heard the steps coming up the stairs, not in a hurry, 
just plodding along, slowly, methodically, not trying to keep quiet either. As I lay there, the footsteps crested the top and stopped right in front of my door. There was silence for what felt like an hour. Then the doorknob rattled and turned. The door opened very slowly. I'm not going to lie, it seemed like whoever was opening it was trying to make it creak as much and as long as possible. At this point, my eyes were clenched shut, so tight they hurt. Then my heart felt as if it stopped because this person stepped into my room and began walking around in a shuffling gait. When they reached the window, which had no curtain, so why bother? It overlooked a huge backyard and no one else was high enough to be able to see in. All was silent again. I strained my ears to listen for anything. I could not hear this person's breathing. Oddly enough, I couldn't hear my uncle breathing either. I don't recall hearing any sounds at the time. I was able to move, but I didn't want to. I was terrified who or whatever was standing there by the window would notice. Then I heard it do what I assume was turn around. It started shuffling again. This time, it went right up to my bed and stopped. I swear that I felt a presence looming over me, looking at me. I finally got the courage to crack open one eye toward my uncle, who was between me and it. I was against the wall. He was still there but seemed deathly still and pale. I wanted to look further up and see if the whatever it was was still there, but I also didn't want to because I was afraid to see it. Eventually, I heard it shuffle back out of the room, then back down the stairs, and when it reached downstairs, it again stopped moving. I sat up slowly and finally looked around. My door was indeed open. My uncle still looked really pale. After waiting a few more minutes, listening, I reached over and nudged him. He was stiff and cold to the touch. I panicked and shook him hard. He didn't budge or stir. I don't think I even remember noticing him breathe. I really was sure he died. I began to cry silently. I didn't want that thing downstairs to hear me. I hugged him and lay there until I finally fell asleep. I woke up in the morning to the usual sounds of everyone up and about, all eight of them and my uncle was gone. I got up and looked at the window, and it was bright and sunny out. As I walked out of my room and downstairs, I saw him sitting in the living room, cigarette in one hand, Dr. Pepper in the other, his usual huge grin on his face. Well, good morning, he said in his typical way-too-loud manner. Was wondering when you'd get up. Weird night, huh? At one point I woke up and you were even sleeping with one leg crossed over the other. Like you were in a chair. <laughs> a few months later, when we were back visiting again, I asked him about that night and if he had heard anything. He just laughed and said, Nope, but then I'm so used to old Albert that he doesn't bother me anymore. One day he'll find that money, I guess. Or we will. No one in my family other than me experienced anything that night. I didn't know anything about sleep paralysis back then either. Even today, I'm not sure if it was that or not, considering all the other weirdness I've experienced in that house over the years.
A Halloween Haunting from Rai Kazuchi. My birthday is on Halloween. As such, my friends and I typically spend it trying to find evidence of something spooky, whether that leads us to exploring a graveyard at midnight, breaking into an abandoned asylum, or similar adventures. But on the night of my 18th birthday, we all got more than we bargained for. Our main group back then was comprised of myself, my cousin Leon, and my best friends JB, Parker, and Murph. We'd spend practically every weekend in my father's basement, watching sports, engrossed in video games, or playing music, as we were so sure our little high school band would get picked up if we played in enough bars. It didn't, of course, but just being able to hang out and play as loud as we wanted to was more than enough for us. You see, my father lived in the middle of nowhere, on a ten-mile stretch of road, with all of two other neighbors on either end. His house was dead center at the five-mile mark. No matter how boisterous our little parties got, there was no one remotely near enough to complain. According to my father, he got a sweet deal on the house and property, about ten acres worth, because the previous owner had gruesomely murdered his whole family and then hung himself in the shed some twenty years back. My dad, ever the bargain hunter, would never let such a deal get away and I personally relished being so close to anywhere likely to elicit paranormal happenings. On top of that, a set of train tracks ran past our yard and was said to lead to an old Native American burial ground within a natural maze of trees. For years, Leon and I tried in vain to coerce the group to check out the burial ground to no avail, as JB was extremely superstitious and Murph was rather timid. Even walking through cemeteries, J.B. would rarely get out of the car, and Murph would rush back to join him the second he heard any noise. When I turned 18, my cousin and I joked about how that night just had to be the night something would finally happen. With so many alleged supernatural factors practically in my backyard, we resolved to get our group back to the burial grounds, no matter what. We posed this idea the second our other friends arrived with the intent to eventually pester them into submission. Parker, the rational one of the group, easily agreed, stating that there wouldn't actually be anything back there. JB and Murph continued to stall, saying first they'd go after we had our pizza, then after a few drinks, then after we'd made a fire. The latter option proved to be the most difficult, as despite going weeks without rain, a slight drizzle began right as we attempted to start the fire, Leon and I, both Eagle Scouts, tried our best to get a light, but eventually we gave up, turning to our friends with a shrug. JB sighed, looked at Murph, and said, Fine, we can go see your stupid tree maze. Delighted, Leon and I both bolted to the tracks, calling out to my father that we'd be back later. After walking for a few minutes, my phone rang. It was my father, annoyed that we'd left with the fire burning unattended. What? No, Dad, we couldn't even get a spark tonight, I said. Well, whatever you did, it must have worked. Something in it's burning red hot, he replied. I turned around to look at the backyard, and I could clearly make out a decently sized blaze, literally colored blood red, as in the actual red fire they use in special effects by burning lithium chloride but all we had used for kindling had been some old cardboard boxes and dead branches 
I apologized to my father, who said not to worry about it as he'd watch the flame and to just be careful back in the woods. I hung up and looked at my cousin, who was closest to me and had heard the conversation. Uh, didn't we set that fire up in the back where the patch of dirt was? He asked, to which I nodded. And isn't that where the shed used to be, before your dad knocked it down? Where that dude hung himself? He asked, nervously. Yeah, but don't say anything, or JB will never come over to my house again, I replied, chuckling to ease the tension. Leon nodded, but continued to give me a wide-eyed expression as we kept walking down the tracks. A half hour passed, and we reached the stretch of land people claimed to be the burial ground. There was indeed a natural maze in the middle of a field, with tunnels weaving in and out of the trees, and a canopy that blocked out all light. Brandishing our flashlights, we walked into the maze, having to almost drag JB and Murph along with us. Sadly, nothing noteworthy happened as we explored, save for me turning off my flashlight and doubling back behind my friends to jump out and scare them. Parker laughed, Leon chastised me, Murph punched me on the arm, and JB cussed around half a dozen times. We continued into the center of the maze and discovered a clearing. In the middle of the clearing stood a large tree that had clearly made up the bulk of the canopy, but at some point it must have been struck by lightning as it was charred and split right down the middle. Oddly enough, a large branch had somehow fallen right between the wedge of the trunk and gotten stuck near the base, giving the tree a resemblance to an inverse cross. The moonlight shined down onto the tree from the gap in the branches above, casting ominous shadows and giving it quite the menacing image. We stared in silence at the tree for a few moments before lightning tore across the sky, illuminating the forest, followed by a billowing crash of thunder. Did you see that? J.B. yelled, speaking so quickly his words slurred together. See what? See what? Murph anxiously replied. I saw something in the tree, something moved, J.B. hysterically stated. It's probably just a deer or something, Parker said calmly. I don't care, I'm leaving now, J.B. proclaimed, turning around and marching away, with Murph close behind. You know, the rain is picking up, and I'm getting cold. I'm okay with being done here, I said, and Leon and Parker nodded as we followed our friends back the way we came. Once we reached the tracks, the conversation naturally shifted to what girls in school we thought were cute, as we were all single teenaged boys. JB was particularly sensitive about his crush, and when her name was mentioned, Parker and I began to tease him expecting his usual over-exaggerated reaction. However, this time, there was no reply. As I turned back to look at my friend, I saw him standing a few feet behind the group, staring into the dark with his back turned towards us. JB, you okay? asked Leon. You don't see it, JB whispered, almost inaudible. Come on, dude, you tried that already. I said, putting my arm around his shoulders. No. Look. The man in red. JB replied, again barely above a whisper. I looked at Parker, and we both rolled our eyes before Leon tapped me on the shoulder 
and said, Cause wait, look. I turned and squinted in the darkness, following JB's gaze, and to my shock, in the distance, there was a red glow, identical in hue to the inexplicable fire we had seen in my backyard earlier that evening. At first, I thought it was getting progressively brighter, but soon I realized it was in fact getting closer. As the light drew nearer, I began to make out a silhouette within the glow. A silhouette of a body. The human form itself was jet black, or perhaps so obscured by the night as to render details indistinguishable. Around the body, or whatever it was, a red aura surrounded the figure, similar to the way a halo appears around streetlights from far away. What is that? I began, before I felt JB collapse next to me. Dude, are you okay? Leon panicked, dropping to his knees to tend to our unconscious friend. But I couldn't take my eyes off the figure, which appeared to be moving in on us faster now. Cause we need to move. Now! Grab him and let's go! I shouted at Leon, who looked up and gasped at the sight of the advancing entity. Thankfully, my cousin was easily the largest of our group, a linebacker for the school football team, and physically the strongest by a landslide. In contrast, JB was co-captain with me on the cross-country team, and thus less than half Leon's size. In one motion, Leon hoisted JB onto his shoulders and followed me back down the tracks, with Parker and Murph trailing behind. When we got back to my father's garage, he had already put out the fire and gone to bed. We sat JB up in a chair and caught our breath before discussing what we should do. At that moment, we heard the chair move and turned to see JB standing straight up, facing the forest. Uh, JB? You good? I asked, moving in front of him to see his face. My heart nearly stopped as I looked into his eyes. They were completely black. Now, I've since gone to college and gained two science degrees, and I keep trying to tell myself that the rational explanation was that his pupils were dilated out of fear, and the dim light of the garage just made it difficult to see the whites of his eyes. Even so, I can't deny that he looked exactly the way Hollywood depicts someone possessed by a demon. Let's get him back in the chair, Murph said, placing his hands on JB's shoulders in an attempt to move him. But JB wouldn't budge. Even with Leon's help, all four of us could not get JB to move an inch. It was like he became a solid mass of stone, affixed to the ground. We tried to no avail for several minutes, before collapsing into our chairs. We sat together, eyeing JB, and trying to make sense of what was happening well into the morning, until one by one, we all fell asleep. I was the first to wake up, and immediately looked over to where JB had been standing. He lay on the ground, seemingly unconscious again. Cuz, I said, hitting Leon's arm with the back of my hand as he slumbered beside me. He awoke, and we both kneeled to shake JB. He opened his eyes, and they looked the same as they always had, no longer black. Well, go away, I'm tired, he grumbled. Wait, why am I on the ground? He asked, slowly getting to his feet. This prompted Parker to wake up as well who nudged Murph until he was awake. 
We asked J.B. if he felt all right, to which he didn't understand our concern. We reminded him that he had seen the red figure and passed out, but he had no recollection of the night's events. Don't mess with me, guys. You know I hate that. I thought we were just going to check out that stupid maze. What happened after that? He asked, voice shaking. I looked at my friends, all of us standing in silence. Together, we recounted what had happened. When it got to the part about the entity, I looked to Parker for some clarity. I don't really know what happened, honestly, he began. We saw you staring at nothing, and then Rai put his arm on you, and you went down hard. Rai yelled at Leon to pick you up, and they both took off, and Murph followed. I turned back to see what the big deal was, and I didn't see anything, but I just started to feel wrong. Like it felt as if the temperature suddenly dropped 20 degrees, and that something was watching me. So I just ran after you. You mean, you didn't run because you heard it? Murph asked weakly. We all turned to him. Heard what? I asked, tensing up. After Rye and Leon ran past, there was that gust of wind and something whispered, Leave this place. I thought that's why you took off too, Murph said, chin quivering. We all remained quiet for some time, before my father came out and asked us if we wanted breakfast. We nodded solemnly and followed him inside. It's been a decade since this all happened. Parker and JB moved out of state. Leon got married and had a kid, and Murph never has time outside of work, so we don't go out on Halloween anymore. But we still try to get together for everyone's birthday each year, and every once in a while on my birthday, we talk about what happened the night I turned 18. Even now, we still don't have an explanation. But you can bet, that was the last time any of us went out back in those woods. The Eyes From Michael Goodwin You could fairly describe it as a functional ghost town now, I suppose. It had once been a relatively important town due to the railroads, but those days were now but a memory. The downtown area still existed, though in a sort of theme park way. With very few exceptions, all the ancient buildings were now antique shops, populated by equally ancient ladies. Added to this were a few ice cream parlors, a restaurant or two, and a dank shady bar, off to the side of the map, like a delinquent kid in the class picture. Go ahead and guess which one I worked in. To understand this town is to first understand that it's currently based on a lie. The image of the town being a bustling railroad destination isn't inaccurate, but where it gets interesting, though, is the history. All these little antique shops and parlors were almost all brothels, gambling dens, and all manner of establishments of ill repute at one time. In their better days, the residents of the city once all gathered together in great jubilation. For what occasion was this, you might ask? Well, for a train wreck. These people actually had old-time photos of their relatives standing on the wreck of two trains, dressed in their Sunday fineries. Did they rescue the victims, you might wonder? No, they rifled through the pockets of the dead or dying. The other claim to fame they had was assaulting a circus. Now, when I say this, I don't mean there was a disagreement about ticket prices or perhaps the dunking booth was rigged and they had a scuffle. 
I mean that as a town they attacked a traveling circus. Nobody quite knows why. The reason I bring this up is that the descendants of these delightful folks still reside there. So while every day this town was rife with civilized people from the surrounding cities, they were outsiders. Every evening at six o'clock, the great blue hair migration took place, and all those decent and kind people headed for the highway. Only one business remained open after that, the only establishment open for several square miles. Mine. A bar in the middle of an abandoned city is quite a thing to see. When that bar is populated by people of, shall we say, lesser virtue, it gets a touch apprehensive. So it was in the fall of 2003 that all that tension finally found a spark. A big, nasty, soggy spark. That year, God apparently had just about enough of these people and sent a flood to get them. A few abandoned mining shafts, a decent portion of abandoned homes, were washed away in a series of storms and overflows. That wasn't the worst of it, though. You see, around 200 years ago, someone decided to buy the cemetery with a calming river flowing through it. Thanks to years of erosion and a sudden blast of surging water on an already waterlogged lowland, well, you get yourself a corpse navy. For days, what passed for the municipal workers were rounding up old Uncle Remus and Aunt Hattie. While recovering the caskets, there was a detail I only heard about when they were drinking their lunches on break. Most of the caskets were empty, or what remained was gnawed upon. And by gnawed, I mean it looked as if a wood chipper went after them. At the time, I didn't put it past these ghouls to resort to eating their dead, but I'm pretty sure you get some sort of disease from eating grandpa jerky. So I chalked it up to wolves or bears. I was wrong. It wouldn't even be a week before I first saw the eyes. It began out in the train yard at first. My bar was on a street that housed an old train depot, a historic hotel, and a few other relics. When leaving that night after cleaning up, I caught the sight of light reflecting from two eyes. You know like how headlights will reflect off a raccoon or something. There was a singular street lamp, mainly for decorative purposes, lighting a gazebo on the corner of the depot and hotel. Both buildings had long since been gutted, leaving only a nicely painted shell for folks to come admire. That was the problem. I saw the lights on the second floor. I figured it must have been an owl, or perhaps something that climbed, but I couldn't figure out why it was eyeballing me. I'm hardly a food source for an owl. Either way, I walked to my car about 200 yards away in the fenced-in parking lot. The eyes followed me the whole time. I could never quite see what was up there. The street lamp was modeled after those old Victorian street lamps, so it used an underpowered light bulb. For the next week, things went the same. Every night around three, I would leave and see the eyes. Every night, they would be a bit closer. I also noticed something odd. I heard nothing. By this I mean bugs, wind, leaves. It was all quiet. I'm not saying this thing was manipulating the weather. I'm saying that my sole focus was on it. My mind refused to acknowledge anything else. The wind was blowing, but I didn't feel it. The leaves danced among the trees, and I didn't hear it. Whatever instincts or sense of self-preservation I had was cluing me in on this thing being a bit more than just a big-headed bird, and to keep my attention on it. 
I admit now that I broke the law. In my state at the time, a firearm could only be transported in the trunk, separate from the ammunition. I would drive into work, retrieve my weapon from the trunk, insert the magazine and put it in the waist of my pants in the back. I wasn't licensed to carry it. But at three in the morning while being stalked, you'd be amazed at how little you fear being hugged in the state pen. I'm also admitting to being guilty of stupidity. I should have quit. Things went on like this past Halloween and into November. By now it was no longer content to remain down the street. It also kept changing its location. Some nights it was almost ground level. Others it was in the trees. It soon grew bored of our long-distance relationship. Buildings in this town were all two stories. My bar was no exception. The owner kept the second floor as a storage for God knows what. And it would gag a hoarder. Over a few days, there would be scratching or scraping noises coming from above me. The previous summer, this had happened with mice, so I wasn't concerned. Until it occurred to me that the scratching wasn't moving. It was stationary. Something was lightly clawing above me. I had a few customers at the time, and we went to take a look. The problem was we could see nothing. Heck, even getting the door open was a Herculean task. One thing we could confirm, though, was a breeze. A window had been broken. Something shifted in the darkness. Something bigger than a mouse. Something that knew we couldn't get to it. We shut the door and called the police. Now, saying, I think there's a godless monstrosity, over the phone is probably fun, but it ensures you'll be dealing with that monstrosity all by yourself. Well, you and two drunks. So I went with the possible addict scenario. They took two hours to arrive. In the meantime, we heard something clatter onto the dumpster and set off a car alarm. Apparently, godless monstrosities aren't known for their graceful jumping. Outside, we saw an impressive deforming of the plastic and a puddle of some sort of mucus. I'm guessing mucus. I didn't get anywhere near it. In the interests of science, I'll just say that it was thick and ropey-looking as it oozed down the side. Oh, and I bet it stunk. Over the week, my boss hired a few guys to clear out the second floor. He wanted to rent it out as an apartment anyway, and the need to replace two windows forced his hand. They found all manner of refuse up there. Let's just say quite a few missing pet posters could now be taken down. Unfortunately, this had an annoying side effect. A police officer greeted me at my car when I pulled in that night. This meant my firearm would remain in the trunk. We talked about the break-in as we walked. I left out the snarky comments about his prompt response time because at heart, I'm a coward. That night, I noticed my admirer was right next to my car, 200 yards away and just out of the reach of the lights. Now, though, I had it. No trees, no buildings, nothing could mask its size. My little friend was just north of six feet. This put us even, as I'm six foot seven. I'm not saying it knew I was now unarmed. I'm saying it was in no way afraid of me. I think it was enjoying this process the same way a cat enjoys playing with a mouse. We know how that game ends for the mouse, though. So I went back inside. Two hundred yards. Keep that in mind when I tell you that in the time it took me to lock the door, walk to the register and grab a pair of brass knuckles and a sawed-off pull cue, 
The eyes were right outside one of the many windows, just far enough to keep out of sight, but much closer than any time before. I flipped off the lights. No way was I going to sit in a lit-up fishbowl, seeing my own reflection. It was time to see this butt-ugly freak for what he was. With no light to reflect off his eyes any longer, I could see very little. My plan wasn't exactly Patton-esque in its effectiveness. In the weeks leading up to this, there had been a debate as to what it could be. Most jokingly thought it was Bigfoot, but Bigfoot ain't slimy, so that was out. Some said a dogman. What is a dogman? Think of a wolfman who doesn't want to be sued for copyright infringement. An Indian guy even mentioned a skinwalker. But I'm about as Cherokee as a Chinese fellow, so I seriously doubt they'd be after me. Whatever it was, it was out there sizing me up. I think, though, it was aware now that I was larger than it. It also knew I was not fleeing. This wasn't because I was brave, mind you. This was because I had nowhere to go. Slowly, very slowly, it backed away until I saw nothing. I never saw the eyes again. The best I can come up with are two possible explanations. First, it was an addict with grotesque features. I get that it seems like I'm being a jerk about the people of that town, but if anything, I'm underselling it. I can't, though, discount the possibility that I was merely being stalked by someone that night, and the months of those eyes were coincidental. The other possibility, the one that keeps me up some nights, is that the flood had washed something out of those mines, something that had been living on the abundant animal life of the area with little fear of being found. There is also the possibility it was using that graveyard as a snack bar, but I like to not think of that option. I think when it was flooded out, it used my bar as a den, waiting for me to leave each night. I think I angered it when we closed it off and he came by one last time to even the score. I also think that he survived this long by not being seen. I think he fled for that reason, not for any fear of me. Either way, I left that town very shortly after. I gave my reason as the arrival of winter. Driving in the Michigan weather in December is a fine way to meet Jesus. I'm just in no hurry to do so. I heard the eyes were never seen again there. I'm betting my friend didn't fare too well in the cold, but that town is filled with all manner of abandoned buildings. In fact, that whole area is. I can't help but wonder if out of one of those many windows, something is watching the next poor soul to be sitting where I was. The only other life in the middle of a ghost town. It never leaves me. I've always joked that the paranormal was destined to be my normal, being born on Friday the 13th and all. Growing up, I quickly realized that I saw and felt things others didn't. These abilities really began to flourish in my teenage years. I would meet people and suddenly know things about them I couldn't possibly know. I would have premonitions, sometimes big things, like knowing what would happen in the lives of my family and friends, and sometimes little silly things, like knowing a train would be cancelled. I had a couple of relatives pass in my teens, and I saw, smelled, and even felt them around me after they passed. They were comforting experiences, 
as if they were saying goodbye and letting me know they were okay. I remember one time I was washing dishes in the kitchen. I turned around to grab a towel and a bright white light flashed in front of me, like a camera flash going off or a strobe light. It was in the shape of a head and angel wings. I wanted to understand these experiences, and so I began to read as many books on psychic phenomena as I could get my hands on. I knew without a doubt that what I was experiencing was real, but I also liked to reflect and research on these encounters from different angles. For example, at my great-grandmother's old house in France, I saw two apparitions, but I just wasn't convinced they were actually spirits. Like, why would you die and just hang around in your old-fashioned clothes? Surely there's better things to do in the afterlife. I wondered if some of these encounters were just energy imprints left on time. We're all just vibration and energy after all, right? So perhaps in some circumstances I was merely taking a little peek into the past, tapping into old energy. From my research, I felt I had clairvoyant abilities, and I wanted to try to control them better, rather than just having random psychic experiences. I did everything you could possibly imagine to open myself up further. I meditated daily, worked with crystals, and eventually started giving readings to people. I would sit with people and hold their ring or watch and receive a little movie in my mind or through gut feelings and tell them what information I received about their past, present, and future. Sometimes I would get messages from people who had passed. Often I'd end up doing readings at parties with strangers and many of these would become emotional. I felt as if I was helping people, and I never charged money for any of this. It was just something I loved to do. I started to write about my experiences, and then something magical happened. One of my favorite authors contacted me and offered me a scholarship to their mediumship course in America because they were impressed with my work they'd found online. This was the most amazing thing that had ever happened to me. I had all of this author's books about spirituality and the paranormal, and I couldn't believe I was going to meet them and study with them to own my skills even further. I was 21 at the time, and I went to America for a few weeks to do this. It was such a dream come true. The course was amazing. I loved that I was in a room with hundreds of people getting to talk about the paranormal and practice readings and healings on each other. And when I wasn't on the course, we'd have fun day trips out, going hiking and things like that. My trip even ended with this author inviting me to come back in a few months to work with them. Unfortunately, I was completely unaware of the horrors that were to come. When I went to catch my flight home, I was told the plane had been overbooked, and they were going to put me up in a hotel, and I would take a different route back to London in a few days. It was inconvenient, but not the worst thing, until I stepped foot into my temporary accommodation. As soon as I entered that room, something just felt off. There was a bad energy in that room. I felt as if I was being watched by someone or something with bad intentions. As I went to bed that night, I was horrified to catch a glimpse of something walking towards me in the room. It was a dark mass that looked like some kind of hunched-over creature or person. I slept with the lights on that night and spent as much time out of the hotel room as possible, until I was finally able to fly home. That was the first time I'd ever seen something paranormal that had scared me. Usually, my experiences were all comforting and full of good vibes, 
I'll never forget the night the terror started. I was back in London, excitedly telling everyone how I would be going back to America in a few months for my new job. I said goodnight to my mom and went up to bed. As I lay down and pulled the duvet over myself, I heard it. I could hear breathing next to me. Heavy, slow, horrific breathing, right beside me in my darkened bedroom. I'm not sure I've ever been so scared in my whole life. The hairs on my arms and the back of my neck stood on end. It was the creepiest thing I'd ever experienced. I ran downstairs and sat in the living room in complete shock. I still had goosebumps all over my body, and my mom looked puzzled. I thought you went to bed, she said, and I made up some excuse as to why I had bolted down the stairs to sit with her. My life changed that night, for a very long time. The breathing didn't stop. Whenever I was alone, it would happen, right next to me. I started sleeping in the living room with the lights on for months. My family again were very puzzled by my new behavior. I tried to find ways to block out the heavy breathing. I put headphones on and would listen to music, only for something to begin pulling and tugging at the headphones. That was almost worse than the breathing itself. I tried hiding under the covers, but something would poke and push on the covers. I was being harassed by something I couldn't see. I didn't know what to do. I was terrified and confused. What the heck happened to me on that trip? Was it that creepy hotel I stayed in where I'd seen the dark mass coming towards me? Had something followed me home? I reached out to friends I'd made on the course, and they said it sounded like something had attached itself to me. I'd worked so hard to open up my energies and own my psychic abilities, and something dark had noticed me and taken a very keen interest in me. I felt as though things couldn't possibly get any worse. I was sleep-deprived. I was terrified. And then came the night I saw it. I woke up in bed to the sounds of things being moved around my room and the feeling of pressure on my bed right next to me. I opened my eyes and I cannot even tell you the noise which came out of my mouth when I saw it. I half screamed, half whimpered as I saw something sitting on my bed looking at me. It kind of looked like a woman, but with a wolf's snout. It had two dark eye sockets. There were no eyes, just darkness. It had long white hair and what looked to be a white dress. I'll never forget this as long as I live. That sight is burned into my memory forever. It looked like a combination of an animal and a person. It was just staring at me with these dark, empty eye sockets and that same heavy breathing I'd heard next to me for months. I jumped out of bed and turned on my bedroom light. That's when the banging began from inside my wardrobe. I can't believe my family didn't wake with all my screaming. I called my best friend in tears at 3 a.m., literally sobbing down the phone. I hadn't told anyone what was happening to me. I didn't want anyone to think I was crazy, and I didn't want to scare anyone. But this was too much now. My friend thought someone in my family had died because I was crying so much. All I could tell her was, it never leaves me. I couldn't believe my passion for spirituality and mysticism, the most sacred and special part of my life, was now bringing me this utter trauma. 
I didn't sign on for this poltergeist demonic crap. I wanted out. And still, it wasn't over. My best friend had to take my early morning calls for months on end. There was the time I woke up and saw arms reaching towards me from my ceiling. I would see objects in my room just move around in front of me, banging, scratching on the walls and being touched. Being touched was the absolute worst. I could feel it pulling my hair. It was terrifying. I was exhausted from being so scared all the time. Sometimes I would wake up with bruises and scratches on my body. I dreaded to think what was happening to me in those few moments I managed to sleep at night. That was it. I went into overdrive, trying to rid myself of whatever the heck had attached itself to me. I burned sage. I put black obsidian crystals in every corner of my room for protection. I even went to my local church to get holy water to sprinkle around my bedroom. I'm not particularly religious. I've always just considered myself very spiritual. I know something is out there, but I've never wanted to put a label on it. However, my grandmother is very religious, and I always found comfort and power in the crosses and things in her house. And at this dark time, they did help to make me feel a little more protected. Thankfully, during this whole experience, my family were always safe. Nothing ever happened to anyone else. It was just me. It only wanted me. The breathing and touching even followed me to work. Honestly, when I think back on that time, it really was pure heck. As I cleansed the space around me daily, I began to feel less afraid. I got my power back, and I think whatever was harassing me became weaker, because I became less fearful. This is going to sound weird, but the heavy breathing and poltergeist activity was so constant that it just became normal. I was so tired I just couldn't even be bothered to be terrified anymore. This was just my life now. I never thought that such terrible things could become normal, but they did, and my fear faded. And as my fear faded and I continued to cleanse my environment daily with sage and all of those things, this demon, or whatever it was, lost its power over me. And over time, the breathing became less, and I think about a year later, I was finally able to sleep through the night again, in the dark, without holy water. No breathing, no prodding or pulling, nothing being moved around my room. It had finally left me. My life now is very different. I'm still incredibly spiritual, but it's a very private thing. I don't do readings, and I never intentionally try to tap into energies. I still have random experiences and premonitions, but I'm happy to say it's back to how it was before. All love and good vibes. I can't really watch ghost movies anymore. You know, things like The Conjuring and Paranormal Activity, as those movies just make me feel sick in my stomach. After all, I lived through my own personal version of that. So to me, it's not fiction. So it just creeps me out and brings back awful memories of such a long period of time, completely living in fear. I have the uttermost respect for the paranormal now, and I've learned not to open doors to things you don't understand. You have no idea what you might invite in. Northern Afghanistan From Rooster Afghanistan is a brutal place. Even though I've been home for well over a year now, 
some of the things I saw there still haunt me. This story is about the many ghosts of that land, and therefore I will not discuss anything else but that. Faryab province is a northern province in Afghanistan, along the border of Turkmenistan. I was at a very small FOB, which was called Mayamana. This little base was always in blackout conditions, and it was some rough living, although better than some other places I went to. It did have running water, but it was undrinkable, and every single meal I ate came from a bag, aka an MRE. There was a group of Afghan army commandos that had been ambushed by the Taliban, and had taken very heavy casualties. They were evacuated to Maimana, because there was a German army surgical team there. A lot of these men who were brought there died. Now, as I said, this place was in blackout conditions, which, if you don't know, that means no light should be shined at night. You can use a red light if necessary, but generally, no light should be used at night. This is a military practice to prevent an enemy from killing soldiers with accurate snipers, mortars, or RPGs. During my time there, I worked on this piece of important communications equipment almost all 24 hours of the day. I would work from 10 a.m. to 6 a.m., which means through the day and through the night. Apart from some of the uplift platoon who were in the towers, I was probably one of the only others awake at night. Navigating my way to the bathrooms, my cot, or anywhere at night was not easy. It gets pitch black at night, so often I would use my night vision goggles to get around. One night at about 4 a.m., I was taking a break from my work and sitting on some stairs smoking a cigarette, contemplating if the GI Bill was going to be worth this, when I heard someone walking on the gravel path. This didn't really seem out of order, but the gait of the person sounded odd. I know that sounds dumb, but it sounded like someone was walking with a boot on one foot and the other one bare. One footstep was loud and the other was muffled or lighter. I turned on the knob of my night vision goggles and put them to my eyes, but I didn't see anyone on the path, which to me didn't make any sense because they sounded maybe 15 feet away. When I stood up and took a step to get a better look, the walking stopped. Well, that confused me so I walked towards where the person stopped. There was no one there at all. I decided I was just tired, so I just went to the Connex, where we had our foodstuffs, and grabbed like four rippets. These are crappy two-flavor caffeine-filled energy drinks that'll burn holes in your stomach. I took my little lifesavers, put three in the dump pouch on my battle belt, and lit another cigarette on my way back to the stairs I was on earlier. When I was almost there, I heard it again the same person walking weird. They were walking behind me this time. I don't think I could have turned around faster than I did, only to discover nothing again. I was getting super on edge. I removed my pistol from its holster when I heard another noise from behind me on my stairs. I had my gun in a low, ready position when I saw one of the local cats that we had called Mana tear tail up the stairs. I felt like an idiot. I decocked and reholstered my pistol. Just as my heart rate began to normalize, I heard a voice behind me. I just about jumped out of my skin and dropped my rippet and almost inhaled my cigarette. I replied as I turned around. 
A dead man's face was literally right in mine. His face was bathed in the green tint of my goggles, and his eyes didn't reflect. This startled me so bad, I was trying to backpedal, and just ended up on my rear in the gravel, staring at a man that I'd seen die just a few days ago. He wore the same torn and bloodied uniform. His shrapnel-filled leg had a tourniquet still on, but no boot on that side. I stared in disbelief. I scrambled for my pistol, but then he just wasn't there. He disappeared, no sounds, just nothing. I was left alone and confused, sitting in a puddle of rippet from how I'd fallen on them and popped them in my dump pouch. I never saw or heard him again the rest of my stay there, but I did always feel watched late at night. I left there not too long after that, and went on to other places that gave me even more stories, if anyone cares to hear them. The Cumberland Plateau From Hal, the Bird Lady This is a true story that happened while I was driving back from Kansas City to Knoxville in January of 2016. I'm not sure what happened that night, the closest category I can think of would be a glitch in the Matrix. This event changed my philosophy of time and space, and my mother, who's a Christian that won't lie about anything, was in the passenger seat. The context of the trip was I had to drive from Knoxville, Tennessee to Kansas City, Kansas for my sister's custody hearing. I'd been to Kansas City before, and I didn't like it. The drive is about 18 hours each way. I thought the worst thing was the EF3 tornado that my dad nearly drove us into the year before, but this one takes first place. The custody hearing went in our favor. I'd gotten about four hours of sleep before having to drive back to East Tennessee. I was drinking tons of energy drinks just to get it over with and be back home. I wouldn't be getting home on schedule. I was going eastbound on the Cumberland Plateau. I'll give some context here. The plateau has a westbound side and an eastbound side. Each side is separate from the other, meaning you can't see the westbound side if you're on the eastbound. They're separate one-way roads. Each road through the plateau has two lanes. It was about 1.30 a.m. I had the GPS on my phone on. My mother and sister were both asleep in the car, and my car was the only car on the road until a vehicle came up behind me at a high speed. I was in no mood to play road games, especially with my mom and sister in the car, but the vehicle got right on my bumper with high beams on. To me, it looked like a truck, because the headlights were higher than my sedans. I decided they could just get in the other lane and pass me. I don't like pacifying bullies on the road, but I had a bad feeling about this one. I had my pistol loaded and ready, I never hesitate defending myself and my family. This guy just wouldn't do the right thing and pass me. So after a minute of him harassing me, I gave up and moved to the right lane. I was emboldened with my pistol at the ready, so I decided to flip this jerk off as he passed me, like he was the king of the road. My initial anger got worse when I saw it was an ambulance driving so recklessly. I was still flipping him off, but I noticed something very odd about the ambulance. For one, there was no passenger EMT, and I could not see the driver. As it sped past, I looked at the back. 
The lights were on in the back, but there was no patient. I just saw an empty gurney with the lights on. So there I was driving my family in the middle of the night, and this bizarre ambulance was the only other vehicle on the road. I kept thinking how odd it was that I couldn't see anyone in that ambulance. I convinced myself the driver must be obscured by something, but I knew for sure there was no one in the passenger seat and the lights were on with no patient. I've never seen that before nor since this event. It sped around the bend, and that was the last I saw of it. Sure, it was going faster than I was, but I should have still been able to see its lights. I was very unsettled, but all I cared about was getting back home. I was very sore from two days of driving. What happened next I'll never be able to explain. I kept driving. Getting through the plateau only takes 10 to 20 minutes maximum. I passed a sign that read Crossville, 5 miles. I kept going only to see the same exact sign 5 minutes later. And again, every 5 minutes I kept driving. This was going on for an hour. Keep in mind it only takes 20 minutes max if you drive slow to get through this plateau. I was exceeding the speed limit by 15 miles over. There are lots of curves on the road, so I really was white-knuckle driving, just trying to get out. I should also add there are no exit ramps, no way to get turned around since it's one way, and no street lights. After the hour of driving and seeing that sign, I was really panicking, and my mother woke up. I told her, I don't know what's going on, but we're stuck on this plateau. She obviously didn't understand, and asked if there was car trouble. There wasn't. Then here comes that sign again. Crossville, five miles. My mom remarked, We're fine. Crossville is coming up. I told her she'd be seeing that sign again in five minutes. Well, she did. But she said something about the Tennessee Department of Transportation accidentally putting the sign up twice. I told her that's not what was going on. At this time, I told her about the ambulance that looked completely unmanned and how it vanished after going around one bend and the endless sign commencing after that ambulance. We sat in silence for a few moments, and I started putting it together in my head. I came to the conclusion I must have fallen asleep at the wheel, killing myself and my family, and the ambulance was symbolic of that. I thought we'd be stuck on this road forever. I can't even put into words how horrifying that thought is, that I'd killed my family. I finally broke the silence, saying a sentence I hate repeating and hope to never say again. I was crying at this point. Mom, are we dead? My mom finally replied, I don't know. Keep in mind my mother is a Christian. She doesn't believe in in-between worlds and weirdness like we were experiencing. I kept driving in silence and crying. I could not believe what was happening. But finally we saw a different sign, one that cautioned that there was heavy fog. It was one of those signs that change messages depending on the traffic situation. I felt hope, but there wasn't any fog at all. After seeing the fog warning sign, I blinked my eyes and suddenly we were out. We were on a four-lane highway surrounded by other cars. I couldn't even try to figure out how that happened. All I know is we were overjoyed that we were alive. 
Nothing else of note happened on this trip. I was in the Cumberland Plateau for one and a half hours, but I arrived home only one hour later than expected. To this day, I have no idea what happened that night or why. It was like we were trapped in a time loop, proceeding that strange ambulance. We've told a few people, and the only reason anyone believes it is because my mom backs up the story, and everyone knows she never lies. It was as if time and reality as I knew it ceased to exist that night. I've been through the plateau since then, and nothing has ever happened again. It will always remain a creepy mystery for my family. Old Family Tale from Caddy Vengeance My surname is Stoniker, and my family has been established in West Virginia since the early 1700s. Although there are a few historical sites with our name attached to it, my parents didn't really have much to do with them. Actually, I only found out about my family's connections to actual historical locations when I was researching the authenticity of an old family legend. This legend involves a woman, my fifth or sixth removed grandmother on my dad's side, named Zelda, and her husband, whose name I believe was Simon. The story goes as my dad told it to me. Simon was the third or fourth son of a Samuel Stoniker and was born somewhere around 1810. He married early in life, but his first wife, who remained unnamed, disappeared. Later on in his mid-twenties, he married again, this time to Zelda, whose previous surname had been something like Westfall or Westerfall. Anyway, they had a son their first year of marriage, and things were going fine in their little cabin household up to that point. They were farmers by trade, but Simon was also a carpenter, and that's where most of their money came from. Simon liked to drink. He didn't care for the domestic life, and he disliked his son's crying, believing that Zelda focused too much on the child and not her chores or wifely duties. Remember, this was the 1800s, and things were sometimes messed up about women's roles. Anyway, he started fighting with her. She argued that her son came before everything else, including Simon, which didn't sit well with him. According to my dad, that was probably the start of it. Simon started drinking their money away, and when he got home, he was abusive toward his wife and young son. It was at this point that Zelda became pregnant again. After a long and strenuous pregnancy, Zelda gave birth to a daughter, whose name I can't remember. Now with a young toddler and another baby taking up most of Zelda's time and subsequently distracting her, Simon grew worse. He began to hit his wife and eventually turned on his young son too. It was a miserable time. Their living space also suffered from Simon's negligence. He constantly smashed things, broke glass, slammed doors hard enough to break their latches, and even though he was a skilled carpenter, he would not do anything to fix or maintain the house. Zelda had limited resources and could only fix so much. It was around the time their son turned six or maybe seven when Zelda had enough. She packed what little she owned, sold some old heirlooms, and prepared to take her children away. Divorce was still very uncommon and even frowned upon at this time, and a woman alone wouldn't have much chance to do well. But it was either that or subject her children to this man's cruelty. 
there was just one problem. Simon found out somehow that his wife was planning on leaving him, and he wasn't pleased to let her go. He caught her trying to leave and beat her almost to death. He told her to wait where he left her while he took care of the children. And Zelda, having suffered, having endured, if only for her children, she snapped. While he went outside to retrieve a wood-cutting hatchet, she somehow found her strength. Zelda got up, wiped blood from her face, and dragged her body to their small bedroom. There, her husband's loaded rifle lay on a stand. She took it up, and when Simon dared to come back to the entryway of their home, she shot him dead. Zelda only took enough time to dig him a shallow plot in their garden, kick him inside, and tend to her injuries a bit. Then, with rifle slung over her shoulder, daughter on her hip, and son clutching her hand, she walked her children out of the place and made a life for herself elsewhere, settling either in Rowan or Boone County, West Virginia. Her great-grandchildren took root over in Jackson County, and that's where they stayed, passing this story down over time, until it came down to me and my sister. Now, here's the interesting part. The old Stonaker cabin was lost to time. Nobody wanted it, and the land it sat on was pretty worthless after that. And as far as anyone knows, old Simon is still buried somewhere on that land, in an unmarked grave. He's tied to a legend that's called Lantern Man, or Lantern Ghost. People report the apparition of a shadowy man toting a lantern and a hatchet, who will wander aimlessly over the hills, like he's searching. My dad seemed to think he was looking for his kids, to finish what he planned to start the night he died. Hearing that as a young child scared the life out of me. I'd like to visit that old place one day to see if I can see old Simon. I wonder if he'd recognize me as his kin, and if he did, what would happen? It's as dreadful as it is exciting to think about. If I ever do go, rest assured I'll let you all know. The Staircase from Am Jean Romeo. When I was in high school, there was a creepy story that used to go around. It is said that in the small wooded area that sat behind the school, there was once a small monastery. The monastery had sat there for a hundred years or so before being knocked down. Reportedly, it was knocked down as several people had mysteriously died within its walls and many of the locals thought it must be cursed and so demanded it be tore down. As per the locals' wishes, the monastery was torn down, and all that now remained of the building was a single staircase. Why they left the staircase intact, nobody really knows. But since then, it was said that if you walked up to the top of the staircase alone and chanted a special verse, you would be visited by an old monk that had died there. What happened when the monk visited you varied, depending on who you asked. Either you got a good scare from an actual ghost, or in the worst-case scenario version, you wound up missing, or even dead. Of course, being kids, some people, namely a group of boys from my year group, thought it would be funny to go and find the staircase and walk up it, one by one, chanting the verse. None of them truly believed the story, but wanted to look cool in front of everyone else. For the purpose of not wanting anyone to try this ritual, I will not repeat the verse here. Call me superstitious, but I don't like to mess with these things. Anyway, the group of boys decided to attempt the ritual one afternoon after school. There were four of them in total, 
and they were followed by a group of girls who wanted to see what would happen. I unfortunately got roped into following them by one of my friends, but steadfastly refused to actually participate in the ritual. So we all trudged through the small wooded area, and it didn't take long for us to come across the staircase. The boys were laughing, heading straight to the staircase, while the rest of us held back, watching with interest. The first boy, the ringleader of the group, started stomping up the staircase, chanting the verse as loudly as he could. The others laughed at him and started clapping, applauding his bravery. He walked back down and all three remaining boys took their turn, all of them running up the stairs, shouting out the words. Some of the girls even felt brave enough to try it themselves, but I resolutely stayed back. Though in my logical brain I knew it was just some story, it still didn't feel right to mess with such things. After everyone had their turn, we all headed back out of the woods and made our respective ways back home. Over the next few days, all anyone could talk about was about how brave the girls and boys were for daring to do such a scary ritual. The boys especially basked in the attention, and it even led to a few others in other year groups attempting the ritual too. Eventually, everything died down, and just as we all thought, nothing strange happened. Time passed, and most of the people around me forgot the story, too caught up in the next craze. But then I remember walking into my first lesson of the day one morning, about a couple of weeks later. I saw the four boys all sat around a table, whispering to each other. It was odd to see such usually rambunctious boys so quiet and solemn. I strained my ear in an effort to listen, but my attempts were unsuccessful. Just then, the teacher came in, and the boys grew quiet, and the teacher began the lesson. Lunchtime the same day, I found out what they'd been talking about. The ringleader of the group, A, had said that his family had been experiencing a lot of bad luck recently. His dad had gotten in trouble at work, and one of his grandparents had gotten sick. Adding to that, his brother had been in an accident and hurt his leg. At first, I felt bad for A. I didn't make a connection with the staircase. More time passed and I heard more stories come from the rest of the group and some of the girls who had also walked up the staircase. There was nothing about any ghostly sighting but a continuous string of bad luck. One of the girls said that her mom had nearly gotten into a car accident but had fortunately been able to swerve the car out of the way in time. I found it odd that all of the people who had carried out the ritual were now suddenly all experiencing horrible luck. This continued for several weeks, until eventually I stopped hearing any new stories. A ended up moving away as his dad's job was transferred to another city. Eventually, the events of those weeks became just a memory, but for the remainder of my time at the school, I gave that small wooded area a wide berth. Fast forward about six years later and I'm randomly looking through Facebook, looking up the people I went to school with. I had been bad at keeping in touch and wanted to see what everyone was up to. I ended up striking up a conversation with one of the girls who had been there that day, B. B had reconnected with A when he moved back to our city a few years prior. They'd started a relationship, eventually getting married. Only what she told me next was strange. B said ever since high school, a had felt that he was followed by a streak of bad luck. As an adult, he had been somewhat successful, starting his own business, getting married, but something always went wrong. His business had failed within a few years of startup, 
Worse then, he lost his grandfather when he was 18, closely followed by his dad a year later. His dad had only been in his 40s and had been in good health, but had suddenly dropped dead of a heart attack. This brought back memories of high school and of the day we all watched A and his friends climb the staircase. B and I ended up keeping in touch for several years after that, but one day I checked my phone and saw a Facebook notification from her, asking me to call her. I did, and she answered. Her words came out choked and broken, due to her biting back tears. A had been killed in a hit-and-run car accident. He was 28. I don't know if the curse of the steps is true, or maybe everyone's bad luck is coincidental, but something dark had followed A from that day, and now he is no longer with us. Should I Feed It Too? From Rose Coopera My family resides in our home, in a rural area, surrounded by farmlands and fruit trees. Living with us are our four Aspens, a Filipino term for street dogs, two male puppies and two female adults, of which one was the mother of the former pair. Though they came from a breed of strays, they were taught to behave well, especially when being fed. It's been my routine to feed them thrice a day, and they usually have rice, meat shreds, and some leftovers from our family's meal. For grooming, they were bathed and provided with flea treatments. Haircuts were only done twice for their entire lifetime as they were short-haired. They're actually low-maintenance dogs, but sometimes could get a bit too much to handle for a small girl like me. A dog lover that I was and still am, I always see to it that their needs were tended to. I never once complained about doing the pet-related chores, until that one unforgettable night. That evening, my mom and sisters were already in bed. I was alone in the kitchen prepping the dog's meal. Above the kitchen sink was a small window viewing the backyard, and I was peeking through it to see what the dogs were up to. They were there, as usual, in their sitting positions with their tails wagging, waiting for me. Or probably just waiting for their food. Cute. They've got all their lives figured out. They were all staring at the back door knowing food would be served soon. The back door was adjacent to the window. From inside the kitchen, I could easily see it in my left peripheral, and just a bit further to the right would be the pile of hungry dogs. I clearly remembered I was hunched over the tub of food when I looked outside. For a moment, I thought I saw a kid, standing between the door and the dogs facing the door. Was his head bowed down? What is a kid doing outside at this time? I looked again, and there was no one except for the dogs outside. Tired, I immediately dismissed the idea of having a kindergartner as a guest in the middle of the night. I fought the goosebumps and went on to my chore. With the dogs fed and lights turned off, I retired to my bed, forgetting what had happened. The following day, I was out with the dogs playing, when I noticed one of them was missing its collar. It was a short red belt, just like his brother's, with his name sewn on it. I tried looking around, thinking it may have been dropped by the mutt nearby. However, I was called for an errand and wasn't able to find it. Come dinner time, I had to feed the hounds of heck again. At about 10.15, the house was pitch black, except for the opposite ends of the house. 
the parking in front and the kitchen where I was at, which was lit by a dim fluorescent bulb. I was wiping off the tiles when suddenly I felt chills down my spine when I remembered what I thought I saw the night before. It might have been someone else's kid loitering around, but it was dark that night, and children are at bedtime during those hours, or they should be. With those rushing thoughts, I mindlessly stepped out of the back door and poured mounds of dog food into all four of the bowls. Done with my job, I sat back on the doorway and watched the dogs finish their food. Then I stared blankly out to the dark yard. The open space in front of me was kind of enveloped in flat silence, with only the most subtle sounds coming from the cold night breeze, the rustling of leaves, and scratching of branches. It strangely felt heavy, and it was as if the darkness outside stared back at me. Only the little sloppy noises from the dogs, which I thought sounded a bit funny, calmed the unease. It was a split second, and everything fell to a deep hush. It felt like the air stopped moving around me. The trees were completely motionless. My eyes started scanning the entirety of the backyard when I sensed something was behind the papaya tree, a few meters from me and the dogs. The dim kitchen light helped me see of what I first thought was a hanging piece of cloth. I suddenly felt weak when I realized what I was looking at. It was the kid. I froze. The kid from the other night. But that kid, I thought, was some random neighbor's child. It was impossible to think that the kid was anyone's. As my gaze fell to his face, I noticed where his eyes should have been were only two tiny dark pits. No eyeballs. Just black open hollow pits. He stood motionless behind the tree. A ghost. My mind struggled to think right at that moment. My heart pounded even more when he made the slightest movement and held out his hand to me. Holy heck, the kid's got my dog's red collar in his hand. I ran back and slammed and bolted the door. My mom was startled by the noise and asked what the problem was. Though shaking, I was able to speak of something about the dogs fighting over their food. She believed me and told me to go to sleep early for class, and hurriedly went back to her room. Still, I was scared of what I'd seen, or what I thought I'd seen. I slowly peeked back out the window, but the boy was gone. I rushed to my bed and under the covers without turning off the light. Early in the morning, my sister woke me up and told me she found and picked up Barry's collar, just outside the back door. That night, he or it didn't show up again, or the next few nights. I kept thinking about him for a while. Was the spirit kid looking for food? It was a weird thought, but it had shown up twice when I was feeding the dogs. Or it may have been just my imagination. Every time I see my dog and his red collar, though, I feel chills remembering the boy. I feared that he'd show up again one day. I've never told anyone about this, and up to now, my mom kept wondering why I had to put five bowls every time I had to feed the dogs at night, an offering to a stray that might just be in search for something to eat, and in hope that I would never be seeing him again. Ghoul Encounter in Transylvania From Alex S. Z. 
I was born and lived in Romania until my late twenties, when I moved to Australia. When I was a kid, I used to spend a lot of weekends and school holidays at my grandparents' house in a little mountain village in Transylvania, a few kilometers from Bran Castle, more widely known as Dracula's Castle. Sorry if it disappoints early in my story, but this is not vampire-related, as some would expect to hear from that part of the world. However, after listening to this account, you might ask yourself the same questions as I do. I am a city boy, but always loved the picturesque mountains that surround my grandparents' small village. During the summer, I would spend weeks there, riding my mountain bike on dirt roads, hiking to nearby tourist spots, or reading whatever books I could get my hands on at the time. There was no internet there back in the day. No mobile phones, no GPS, or fancy technology of the sorts. A completely different era. The summer before starting high school, my best friend and I were both 14, and we went to my grandparents to spend a couple of weeks bike riding, hiking, making the most out of the late summer weather. Two foolishly daring kids oblivious to taking risks, especially when we were doing stuff together. After about a week of riding the trails in and around the village, we decided to ramp it up a notch and go for a longer ride halfway to the nearby mountain peak, where we knew about a little tourist spot. There was a lookout there, a small cafe souvenir shop, and a car park where vendors would gather around tourist buses to sell trinkets and fresh forest fruit. We were kinda hoping to meet and befriend some cute girls our age, as such creatures were scarce in this village. With the plan ready, we got up early that morning, packing some spare clothes, snacks, and water, and deciding to follow a less circulated track, unmarked on our old tourist map. We hadn't been on that path before, but an old neighbor, who used to be a shepherd, said it was less steep than the marked tourist hiking trails, so it's easier to go uphill on a bike. Well, we assumed. Also, there were hardly any houses on the way. This was good news as the people in the village kept guard dogs, which often gave chase to us when riding past on our bikes. I kissed Grandma goodbye and told her we'd be gone for most of the day. It was pretty sunny outside, with only a few fluffy clouds, so we didn't mind the weather. For the first couple of hours, we kept going uphill at a steady pace. The village remained well behind as we were approaching a thick pine forest. The track became much more difficult than anticipated, with lots of uneven loose rocks and overgrown vegetation. We didn't realize it was mainly used by sheep herds to go up the mountain in the spring and back in autumn but the path was wide enough to ride side by side, so we kept going. After approximately two hours of riding with only short breaks for water, we came across a forest. Our path was going right through it, and we both felt a little bit nervous. Before venturing forward, we stopped to have a quick snack and rest a little. We'd left home early and made relatively good time to that point. We needed our energy back before the next uphill stage in our ride. It wasn't uncommon for hikers in that area to come face to face with brown bears, some of which were huge, almost as big as North American grizzlies. Attacks were few, but encountering a bear was honestly my biggest fear. Bears chasing me had been a recurring nightmare I've had growing up. I didn't want to look like a coward in front of my friend, however, so we got back on the bikes. As we were approaching the trees, we noticed a thin smoke rising over them. Hidden between the first row of trees, we noticed a small timber cabin, covered with weathered wood shingles. It looked very old, run down, 
and we would have presumed it to be deserted if not for the smoke coming out of the chimney. The windows were small, dirty, and cracked. Adjoining the cabin was a derelict-looking tin shed, barely standing, leaning over the side of the cabin. The courtyard surrounding them was muddy, with some rusty buckets scattered around. The thing I noticed and still remember quite vividly was a large, darkened wood chopping block near the shed, with rusty chains nailed to it. It wasn't something out of the ordinary in rural Romania, where people would often sacrifice animals for food, but I guess those chains just gave me the heebie-jeebies. I was riding in front and slowed down a bit to wait for my friend. I made a childish joke, something like, Hurry up, Theo, or the bad witch will fly out of that chimney, grab the last rider, and toss him into her stew. I said it loudly enough for him to hear. Two seconds later, the front door creaked open, and a strange old man busted out, shouting at us with a guttural, broken voice. We were startled, but slowed down a bit to say good day. As we were taught, it was always the polite thing to do in our village. The old man then grabbed a wooden stick from near the door and started waving it, walking wobbly towards us, while continuing to yell something that we couldn't understand. He looked menacing, however, and frankly quite disgusting, with oily hair and ripped clothes, large yellow teeth, bulging eyes, and the veins on his face visibly pumping. The man was short but stocky, and we weren't going to wait around for him to make sense. We got pedaling right away, continuing our way on the rocky path, deeper into the forest. We soon lost sight of the house and the old man as we went around a bend. Theo and I were trying to laugh and joke about this weird encounter, but truth is we were both shaken up and knackered at that point. As soon as we cleared the forest, we had to stop and have a rest, drink water, and eat something. Our determination from early morning had completely washed off by that point. I felt pretty helpless and scared, realizing we underestimated our capacity to roam through the woods on our average quality mountain bikes. My legs were cramping up. Theo could barely breathe and was frustrated with his bike, which was having issues changing gears. Moreover, the front tire was slowly leaking air. This trip was not going very well, and we didn't find it enjoyable anymore, so we were weighing our options. Either we continue uphill for another couple of hours or so towards the tourist spot, and then return to the village on the regular hiking trail going downhill, or accept the defeat, abandon our goal, and go back the same way we came, back through the forest, past the creepy cabin, and follow the crappy path back home. The idea of giving up and going back did not sit well at all with our young male hormones, but there was one factor that got the city boys by surprise, and ultimately made the decision for us. The weather. Although it was fine in the morning, by the time we cleared the forest and got to the western side of the mountain, thick gray clouds began to gather. As we finished our snacks, it started to drizzle. We could now see the top of the mountain covered in a dense fog, which was slowly lowering towards us. So this was it. Without much enthusiasm, Theo and I made the rational decision to head back immediately, hoping to avoid a complete drenching on our way home. We put on our plastic raincoats. Theo pumped some air in his front tire, and we hopped back on the bikes, heading back into the forest. Five minutes into the ride, the drizzle turned into proper rain, making some portions of the track muddy and slippery. A thin fog slowly engulfed the woods. 
Visibility was still okay, but the scenery became very eerie and gray. Theo and I were both silent, trying to keep our focus on the track ahead. I remember feeling really anxious and suddenly overwhelmed by what I could only describe as desperation to get out of the forest immediately. I was too scared to pedal any faster, as the bike was already skidding down the muddy track. I still very well remember the silhouette of that cabin coming into view. Needless to say, I found it 100 times creepier, with the rainfall and gray mist surrounding it. Approaching the house, I was feeling my heart beating out of my chest, so I decided to counteract that by acting brave, rather being a jerk. I started ringing my bike bell, loudly shouting, Hey Pops, or Hey Creepo, along with some expletives a kid my age should not have used. Theo joined me with even more enthusiasm. These were some very poor decisions. As we were going past the house, I again noticed the chopping block. But now, it was all covered in blood, with a blood-soaked knife and axe on top of it. At the base were two buckets, one with the goat's head, tongue out, the other full of blood and entrails. There was something like steam rising from this second bucket. Presumably the kill was fresh and the organs still warm when tossed in there. I was still processing what I was seeing when suddenly we heard shouting. It sounded like the crazy old man again, but now we couldn't see him. I was disoriented and slowed down. I saw him walking backwards from behind his shed, shouting, his arms wide, like he was trying to block someone's way towards us. What happened next is a bit blurry, but I think I heard him say the words, No, no, let them pass. I'll give you meat. You have goat. He was perhaps 10 to 15 meters away when I saw him being pushed aside by someone else, a person who was coming directly for us. As the old man fell on his rear, he turned and screamed at us, Run! It was too late, though. This other man was running towards us. He was short and stocky, somewhat similar in build as the old man, but completely without clothes. His skin was gray and very, very cracked. These deep cracks were all over his body, like he had some massive scabs or a thick layer of dry mud covering him. I only caught a glimpse of his face as he let out a scream that sounded more like a wheeze and ran towards me. The eyes were recessed deep into their sockets and seemed cloudy yellow. His lips were missing. I found this to be the most disturbing part. His ghoul-like face still haunts me. The area around his mouth looked like the skin had been peeled off, exposing massive-looking teeth and black gums. The man's face was gray, as was the rest of his body. The only other thing I can remember are some rare locks of long dark hair over his eyes and to one side. The best overall description I could give you about this encounter is imagine a guy with some flesh-eating bacteria disease around his mouth who also fell in thick mud, which later on dried up and cracked, remaining attached to his body. Not quite a zombie like you see in the movies, but not too far off either. I'm calling this man-creature a ghoul. It seems the most appropriate term to my understanding. I felt my blood freeze, seeing this 
thing coming towards me. I vaguely remember trying to control my legs to pedal faster, but they were just frozen. I couldn't even feel them. My mouth became instantly dry. The wheezing noise coming from this creature was horrendous, and to this day when I hear someone wheezing, it scares me. Although still in motion on the bike, I felt like a sitting duck, waiting for this ghoul to take a few more steps in front of my bike and grab me. My luck was the creature suddenly noticed Theo coming from behind me, and this disoriented him for a couple of seconds, enough for us to squeeze past. That moment, I think my adrenaline started pumping. I regained control of my body and was able to ride the bike away from there as fast as I could without looking back. It was a very close call. We could still hear the old man shouting, fading back for another minute or two. I can't remember much else from our way home. We were both in pretty bad shape when my grandparents saw us. We told them the whole story, and they seemed to believe us. For the next few days, I was trying to extract more info from them and our neighbors about the old man and the ghoul we encountered. Everyone we brought this up to acted very evasive, saying the old man is weird and has a mental issue, and that it's best we don't go near him again, which we weren't going to anyway. Nobody said anything about the ghoul, other than perhaps another madman who likes to walk around without clothing. From my discussions with Theo, he told me he saw exposed bone in one of the legs of the ghoul, and he was ready to swear that to be true. Theo also mentioned bloodstains on his thighs. I don't know about either of those, as much as I tried to remember more details. However, before I wrap this up, here comes the creepy end. Our further digging, years later, indicates the old man was the son of a soldier who died in mysterious circumstances not long after World War II was over. This man was said to have been a truly deranged person who allegedly worked as an extermination camp guard during the war, while Romania was one of Germany's allies, though in 1944 they switched sides. He is said to have been cursed by a gypsy woman, perhaps a witch, who was imprisoned and later died in his camp. Upon his return from the war, the soldier fathered a son with a mentally disabled woman from the village. She was later on found dead in the woods presumably killed and eaten by bears. The man was also on a downhill path, drinking lots and causing problems with the law. He hanged himself a few years after and was supposedly buried outside the church cemetery. Rumor has it a couple of grave robbers tried digging him out to steal valuables buried with the corpse, such as his gold teeth, but the wooden casket was empty. This is all hearsay, and record-keeping was never a strong point of post-war Romania, so I'm not too optimistic about finding more info about these people. I was told his cabin burned down, but honestly, I never went back there to check for myself. My theory is the World War II soldier was cursed, spiraled down to insanity, tried to off himself, but somehow remained alive, or maybe undead, and his son, the old man, staged his burial, and kept him out of sight for years after. What do you think, considering all the missing pieces of the puzzle? The Creature of the Coconino National Forest 
from Bo's Koala. It started when I moved to Flagstaff to attend college. My parents had come into some money and decided to pay for an apartment for me to live in, if I kept my grades up. My fiancée, Anne, and our dog, Rosebud, and I were new in town, and school still had a few months before it started. I'd also brought my pet hedgehog with me, as I wasn't sure if anyone else in my family would have the time to take care of him. We both struggled with social anxiety, so we ended up becoming shut-ins. Watching movies, playing video games together, ordering in pizza, and listening to podcasts. That's what we did for our first month in the apartment, just waiting for school to start. We went through dozens of video games over that month, and I ended up wanting to play something new. Well, new for me anyway, and I landed on Bloodborne. I loved the gothic and Lovecraftian horror in it, and enjoyed it a ton, even if I did suck at it. But it's not really a scary game. So, to fulfill my horror needs, I listened to scary podcasts, which got me more interested in the paranormal and in cryptids. Now, my apartment was located by a forest, no more than, say, half an hour walk away, and there was also a park across the street from us. Often we'd hear kids screaming and having fun in the park, but the first odd occurrence was about a week away from school starting. My fiancée was packing up her things and getting ready to move into her dorm, because her parents didn't agree with her living with me. And even though she ended up staying over at my place most nights, she needed to keep up appearances with them. I helped out, obviously, and many nights we were up late making sure we both had everything we needed for our first year of college. But one night our conversations about high school friends and talks of cryptids and the like were interrupted by blood-curdling screams. We rushed over to the window and looked out into the darkness of the park. We couldn't see anything, but more screams came. Our neighbors even stepped outside, shining a flashlight. The party going on in the apartment above us had come to a full stop. More screams. I dialed 911. The lines were busy, or maybe I couldn't get signal. We stepped outside, keeping our dog inside for her own safety. We both called 911 again in hopes of getting through, but still the lines were too busy. Looking around, other people were trying to call 911 too. Some were successful in reporting it. No one went to look into the park, as cliché as it sounds. I want to say something felt off about it. Not the scream. More like whoever it was wasn't screaming for help, and they weren't screaming for someone to stop hurting them. They were just screaming. Eventually, we went back inside as others did the same. We went to bed shaken that night. The air felt full of tension. I think our dog could even feel it, as she kept growling at the doors and windows all night. Once school started, my fiancé had to spend an entire week in her dorm, as it was parents' week, and her parents wanted to make sure she wasn't living with me during the school year, and only during summers. Nothing else odd had happened at that point so my fiancé felt fine leaving me and Rosebud alone for a week. And it wasn't like we couldn't see each other at all. She just couldn't stay the night. Or so we thought. Her parents seemed to want to spend every free minute she had with her. I can understand that. And honestly, I kind of wished my parents had shown up for parents' week, so I wasn't about to protest them having fun family time together. So I sucked it up and lived on my own that week. But I really wish I hadn't. It started the first night she was away. 
a knock at the door. I walked to the door and peeked through the people, and only saw the park across the street and the cars parked out front. It was odd, but I didn't think too much of it. I was focusing on getting my homework done that was assigned to me on the first day of school. Then another set of knocks came. I approached the door again, my dog growling and barking at it, moving her aside to peek outside again, but once more there was nothing. I assumed it was some neighborhood kids having fun, so I ignored it and went back to my homework. Yet again, the knocks came, much harder this time. I jumped at them. I approached the door hesitantly and peeked outside. Though still, there was no one there. I yelled out, That was a good one, you really got me, but I'm trying to do homework. Can you stop? No one replied, but nothing more happened that night. The following day, when I got back from school, I headed straight home and took a nap. It had been a long day, and I barely got any sleep the night before. I cuddled up with my pup on my bed and fell asleep early. We both awoke late at night to tapping at the window. She growled at it with her hackles standing on end, and I approached it, moving the curtain out of the way and looking outside. At first I couldn't see anything, until I spotted a deer with massive antlers, almost comically large. It was walking around in the park across the street, but there was no sign of whoever was tapping in my window. I closed the curtains and turned on Netflix to try to ease the tension. With Parks and Rec playing in the background, I went to make myself and my dog some dinner. I was just about done cooking my meal and Rosebud was probably about halfway done eating at that point when we both heard tapping again, this time in the living room window. I was taken aback, but still figured some kids were trying to mess with me. I hesitantly approached the window and turned the blinds to look outside my apartment. There, about eight feet away from my window, was the same deer eyeing me as I looked at it. It was illuminated by the scarce streetlights in the apartment complex. It trotted off after I looked at it. I was officially freaked out, and I tried my best to calm my barking dog. I watched TV the rest of the night and relaxed, knowing I didn't have any school the next day. Not much happened the rest of the week until Sunday. A knock on the door here, a tap on the window there, but I didn't think much of it. The deer had freaked me out, sure, but nothing had slammed into my door with force since the first night, so I didn't give it much mind. That day I had been missing my fiancé a lot, and couldn't wait until the next day, when I could hold her again, as I fell asleep. I was anxious and passing around my house like a madman. I took Rosebud on five walks, and still couldn't sit still. So I decided to take all the energy I had and put it towards homework. I finished everything I needed to do for the next two weeks that day before lunch. I honestly thought it was going to be a great day. No knocking or tapping for the first half of the day, and my dog was all smiles and tail wags. My day got even better when my fiancé called to chat with me. We talked for hours on end, laughing and joking and having a great time. Then suddenly my day took a turn for the worst. A knock at my door. Slowly I stood up and walked out of my room when the knocking came again. I told my fiancé to wait for a minute while I checked the door. 
Another set of knocks came then, but then a voice came from the other side, one that sounded like my fiancé. Lovey, could you unlock the door? I forgot my keys at my dorm. I laughed and asked on my phone why she was knocking when she could have just asked me to open the door through the phone. A bit freaked out, she replied. What are you talking about? I'm out antiquing with my parents. I stood there, frozen, looking at the door. My dog, who had run excitedly to the door, stood there jumping on it, barking, wanting to see her mom. Not wanting to freak her out, I told her I was just messing with her, and I asked if I could call her back later. Thinking nothing of it, she agreed, and I hung up the phone. I grabbed Rosebud and walked away slowly as more knocks came, followed by more of my fiancé's voice asking me to let her in. Step by step, I inched silently to the bathroom and broke down once I closed the door. I cried as I locked myself and my dog in until the next morning. I awoke to my fiancé knocking on the bathroom door. I panicked at first and refused to open it, Telling her she wasn't herself, confused, my fiancé demanded I open the door because she had to use the restroom. Something about her voice was more calming than the day before, so I began to open the door nervously. Slowly, I cracked it open to see my fiancé standing there as she rushed past me and pushed me out of the bathroom so she could use it. I stood in my room dumbfounded. I'd thought whatever had been knocking at my door the night before had gotten in that what I began to call the skinwalker had somehow broken in and was going to kill me and my dog right then and there. But no, it was only my fiancé finally having time to visit. Not wanting to sound like I'd completely lost it, I told her I must have fallen asleep in the bathroom while trimming our dog's nails and had been having a nightmare when she got home. She asked if I had school that day, and while I did... I explained I'd slept through all my classes that day and that we could just spend the rest of it together now. For about two months, things were good. I kept my horrific week a secret so as to not freak her out. And honestly, we were happy. We found the perfect balance between work and fun and were doing great. I had just come to accept by then that when my fiancé was away sometimes I'd hear knocks or taps and that it was just something that happened, that it was nothing to worry about. Things got worse one night, when our curtain had fallen off the wall. Our dog had pulled on it, wanting to play, while we were doing homework, and the curtain rod was pulled loose from the wall. Luckily, no one was hurt, but now our bedroom window could practically be seen through. Sure, we had blinds, but they were so thin you could make out the shadows and shapes of everyone that walked by outside. My fiancé fell asleep first that night, but I couldn't sleep. I kept finding myself staring at the window in fear. I lay there looking at the window for hours, trying to convince myself that I was only paranoid because of the supposedly true scary stories I'd listened to earlier in the day, that I was just creeped out. That's when I heard hooves coming down the sidewalk, followed by the sound of something walking in the dirt outside our window. My heart was beating harder than ever before, and I couldn't catch my breath. It was right there. I knew it was. My eyes stayed glued on the window until I passed out. I awoke to a voice talking. That was a good one. You really got me. I looked over at my fiancé and said, What? 
she snored in response, so I turned back the way I was facing towards the window. That's when I saw the silhouette of a man staring into our room. It couldn't be, I thought. That was just the shadow of one of the cars or the staircase outside that I didn't notice before. I convinced myself and fell back to sleep. This continued for months. Nightly visits from a shadowy figure, watching me, watching my dog, watching my future wife as we slept. I watched in horror most nights, being unable to sleep until unconsciousness forcibly took me. My sleep schedule was ruined, and my grades were plummeting, so many times I'd just skip school and stay home to catch up on some sleep. I want to say it was around mid-October, when I decided enough was enough. I stapled a blanket over the window. This wouldn't solve the issue permanently, sadly. Until around December it would hold, and those nights weren't too bad, besides Halloween. God, how horrible Halloween was. Both mine and my fiancé's favorite holiday was ruined that year. It started that morning with the upstairs neighbors having a big fight. I swear it was contagious or something. The two of us ended up fighting for a big part of the day, and from the sounds of it, our neighbors on our right and behind us also got into huge arguments as well. But the upstairs neighbor's fight was the worst. We never saw the man that used to live there again, only the woman. And even then, she eventually just disappeared, becoming a complete shut-in. I think their fight broke her. I think it broke all of us, honestly. But Halloween wasn't done with us yet. Of course it wasn't. On a day that celebrates the spooky and horrific, of course the thing that taunted and played with us would torture us that night. Bang, bang, bang. The door slammed loudly, and for the first time, my fiancé was around to hear it. She went to answer it, but I peeked out from our bedroom window that looked out onto our tiny patio, which was more of just a railing and single step to the door. And instead of trick-or-treaters, I saw a coyote staring daggers at the door its fur standing on end. It looked like it was growling, but was completely silent. The thing looked messed up, like it had survived a hundred fights. Scars ran along its side, and it was missing its ears. I screamed for my fiancé to check the peephole before opening the door. Why? It's just trick-or-treaters, she yelled back. Yeah, but there's been two forceful entries in the complex the last two days. Just keep an eye out is all. I lied through my teeth. I hated lying to her. In general, I hate lying. But to lie to my fiancé felt wrong. Oh, God. Yeah, I'll check the people. I didn't know about that. She shouted back. Many more times that night, the door would slam. Luckily, the front door was the only thing about that apartment that was built well. Our dog got a little sleep that night. She was barking and howling at the door. I would have worried about a noise complaint if every dog in the neighborhood wasn't also making just as much noise. Then the weirdest thing happened. We heard slamming on the front door of the apartment on the other end of our row. Then door by door, the slamming continued until it reached our door. Whatever or whoever it was began pounding on the door and jiggling the doorknob angry yelling of, This is the police. Open up. Could be heard outside. But looking outside through the peephole was only that deer I'd seen months ago. My fiancé begged me to open the door, believing it really was the police. She refused to hear my reasoning, telling me that it had to be the cops. 
The door started to be banged into harder, and when I looked out the peephole, the deer was gone. I pressed myself against the door. The commands from the so-called police continued, as I demanded my fiancé call the actual police and tell them an impersonator was trying to break in. The lines were busy, though. I cried out in pain as the door slammed me around wildly, and then everything went silent for a few minutes, followed by the most horrific noise I've ever heard. It sounded like a dozen women were standing in the park and screaming at the top of their lungs. I tried dialing the police again, and I could not get through, so I began to look for my fiancé's phone. When I looked in our bedroom, I saw her holding her nose, which was now gushing blood. She was prone to nosebleeds, but this was an insane amount. I rushed into the bathroom and grabbed a hand towel and held it to her nose as she began to cry. Our dog, meanwhile, lay next to us, growling at the windows, but never leaving our side. Eventually, the screaming stopped, and we were able to report what happened to the police. It turned out a lot of other people in our complex had already called, but they agreed to stop by and take our statement, too, on the events of that night. After that night, the window tapping and door knocking would happen around my fiancé, too, instead of only when I was alone. It was creepy, sure, but besides that, we didn't worry much about it, and thought the worst was over. But we were at each other's throats constantly. For little mistakes and mess-ups, we'd blame each other and get into screaming matches regularly. It led us to seriously considering breaking up at one point. Luckily, we worked through it, but neither of us ever felt like ourselves during these fights. We'd cross lines and insult each other over things like weight gain or worsening grades. Things we never did before that or since then. November came and went with minimal incidents, and before we knew it, we were packing our bags, getting ready to head out to our hometown for winter break. Before we were able to leave, though, the blanket fell off the wall. This not only led to me having more sleepless nights again, but my fiancé began to think she was going crazy when she'd see movement out there at night. I lied, though. She'd say she saw something outside the window, and I'd tell her it was a car or someone out for a night walk. I don't know why I did this, but I did. Both of us could not wait to get out of that place for a few weeks to just relax for a bit, especially with how much we struggled with that first semester of college. However, our winter break would destroy me. Somehow I'd caught pneumonia right before we were leaving, maybe a day or two before. I'm not sure if it was from exposure to the cold weather or if that creature had caused it. Worse was, while we stayed in our hometown, my pet hedgehog died of mites. He had them from his prior owner and struggled with them frequently. I cried for days, and I didn't want to do anything after he passed away. And arguably, the worst of all was when I had to be rushed to the ER because of the amount of fluid in my lungs. I'd woke up choking, unable to scream. I punched the doors and walls of my parents' house in the hopes of waking everyone up. It worked but by the time they found me, my lips were blue and my vision was hazy. I'd almost died. It scared the heck out of me, and worse, my family worried about me. They watched helplessly as I almost died in front of them. I still feel guilty over it, putting them through that. Despite my now horrible health and the death of one of my favorite pets, we had to go back to school. So we drove back and straight into the belly of the beast. 
Our drive back was scenic, snow falling all around us as we blasted show tunes and Christmas carols in the car. When we made it back, our dog was the first out and waited by the front door. We had a week before school started and were excited to have some alone time again after being surrounded by family the last few weeks. I rehung the blanket over the window and started to unpack my school things when we got weather warnings on our phone. A freak snowstorm was on its way, but it was supposed to miss us. We were only supposed to get the smallest bit of snow out of it. That day we ran around the park throwing snowballs at each other and chasing the dog around. The three of us were happy, but I couldn't be out in the snow too long, not with how sick I was. We went back inside and sadly that was the last time we'd get to enjoy the snow that week. We awoke the next morning to a sheet of white outside our windows and when opening our front door to walk Rosebud, we were met with white everywhere. We could only see a few feet in front of us. Rosebud wouldn't walk very far in it, just enough to do her business. Then she'd run back, nearly pulling us over as she tugged with all her might at her leash. That first day, the knocking began. We immediately ignored it. We had discussed back in our hometown that I thought it was a skinwalker or wendigo. My fiancé thought the house was just haunted, possibly by a demon, but still just haunted. Neither of us would give the door knocking and window tapping any attention unless it somehow surprised us. That didn't stop it from freaking us out, when it would happen for hours on end. But we knew not to open the door. We knew that no one would be out there knocking on our door in the middle of a freaking blizzard. The second day was worse, however, a trend that didn't slow during the blizzard. The blanket was on the floor when we woke up, the snow spinning past the window visible despite the blinds being pulled down. Our dog was barking at the door, a quiet tapping sound all around us. It faded, but throughout the day, we'd hear taps followed by, Hello? And, Who's there? For the whole day. It drove Rosebud mad. The two of us had to calm her down. This continued into the next day, but now there were voices from the apartment above us. The person who had lived there moved out over winter. At least we thought so. Thinking about it now, we never saw that person again, so I can't say whether they moved out or simply went insane. But from my experiences, I firmly think that whatever was in that apartment now wasn't either of the people living there before. The voices from above continued into the next day, sounding more and more clear and loud as the days went by, from just saying regular phrases to sounding like my fiancé and myself. Many times during the blizzard, we'd respond to things it said, only for us to find out the other had said nothing. The following day, screams could be heard from the apartment above us, more animalistic than human. We dialed 911 and informed them of a possible domestic dispute, and we were told they'd try to make it up there, but because of the snow, they couldn't guarantee a speedy response this time. They ended up stopping by next day, only to inform us the apartment was a mess and seemingly abandoned. However, when they checked with the front office, the rent was still being paid on time, so they figured someone must have broken in to take shelter from the storm. The sounds grew louder, and the taps became more forceful for the rest of the week. That Sunday, Anne and I were nervous about how we'd make it to school. The administration office sent out an email that despite the blizzard still raging, we were expected to go to class. 
We fought multiple times that day about what we should do. However, before the end of the day, the problem would solve itself, as all our teachers informed us to not show up to class, as they weren't going to show up either. The college was furious about this, but since the majority of teachers were practically on strike, school was postponed until the blizzard died down. We soon realized, however, that we needed more food, toilet paper, and clean clothes. The storm was predicted to last another week, and our supplies was dangerously low. Our dirty clothes had piled up out of the basket and onto the floor. We had ramen left to eat, and we were down to a single toilet paper roll, when we decided we had to find a way to the store. On the bright side, however, we had an entire extra bag of dog food, so we didn't have to worry too much about Rosebud. Other than her doggy PJs she wore to keep warm were starting to smell a bit bad, but we had much more pressing issues to concern ourselves with. I bundled up and walked into the white void. My ears turned red instantly, and my nose began to run. We parked in the same spot every day if we could, but neither of us could remember after a week of being stuck indoors if we had this time. The snow crunched beneath my feet as I fell flat on my butt. I slowly stood myself back up and looked behind me to make sure the door to our apartment had been closed. Seeing that it was, I took a deep breath and turned back towards where I hoped the car was. I inched towards the edge of the street, readying myself for the steep step down onto the street. I pressed my car fob button in my jacket pocket with one hand and tried my best to cover my eyes from the snow with my other. A yellow glow shone out in the swirling white around me. The headlights. I walked in the direction of the car with my hand outstretched. I pressed against what I thought was the car when I heard my fiancé yelling that our dog had gotten out when I left. I spun around and screamed our dog's name in a panic. She was nearly all white and just about impossible to see in the snow. My fiancé yelled for me again. I saw her go into the park. Okay, I'll go find her. Throw on a jacket before following me, I replied. Crunch by crunch and step by step, I walked past my car into the park, calling for my dog Rosebud. The cold air found its way inside my throat, and all the warmth from my home had already left me. Rosebud! I yelled into the flurry around me. I whistled and called into the park, my throat growing hoarse quickly, with my lungs already working overtime as is. Rosebud! I screamed at the top of my lungs the ending of which tore my throat up something fierce. Another shout sounded from my apartment door. I'll be right there. Do you see her? My fiancé yelled over the wind. No sign of her, I responded hoarsely. The wind picked up as I walked towards where I heard my fiancé's voice. The crunching of the snow was barely audible. I found myself back in the street without any sign of my fiancé. I must have passed her, I thought. I yelled out her name the best I could, followed by an intense coughing fit. She responded behind me back in the park. Wait there, I'll meet you, I called out. No, we have to find Rosebud. Just hurry up, she snapped uncharacteristically at me. But I understood. We called Rosebud our child and pampered her the best we could, with a college budget, of course especially after our hedgehog died. I ran after her, coughing as I went, sucking in snow and freezing air as I did. 
I fell over in a heap in the snow and slipped, attempting to get back up. Something ran across my back, knocking the wind out of me. She's over here. <laughs> Rosebud, come here, girl. I shouted joyfully. Oh, I, I got her. Bo, come here and take her leash. She's freaking out. I heard my fiancé yell deeper in the park. I walked towards her voice, reaching for a hand holding a leash that I couldn't see. Where are you? Over here, lovey. She yelled back in response. I followed in a new direction, taken aback as to why she had called me over if she was just going to take her back home. Just walk her to me, I called back. Okay, Anne responded. A shadow approached in the snow, but I didn't hear any crunching of her feet or jangling of the leash. But I had been out there for a bit. I might have just been dehydrated or tired and was just imagining things. The snow picked up and the figure vanished into it when suddenly I felt a sharp pain in my side. I screamed in pain, louder than I knew I could, louder than when I was calling for Rosebud or my fiancé. I fell in pain as a coughing fit took over after the scream. The sound of snow underfoot approached me quickly. I panicked and I began to crawl. I didn't know which way I was facing, but anywhere was better than where it thought I was. Arms wrapped around me and I tried to scream again. My voice caught in my throat and I began to cough again, a copper taste filling my mouth. Are you okay? What happened, lovey? My fiancé asked as she helped me to my feet. I could only hack up my lungs in reply as she brought me back inside. It turned out Rosebud never did escape the apartment, and my fiancé had never been out there helping me look. She had heard me scream around the time she thought I would have been back. She undressed me and drew me a hot bath and turned the heater up more than before. Bills be darned. On the side I felt pain were two deep gashes. I cleaned them in the tub as she searched for warm, clean clothes for me to wear. She had saved my life that day, finding me out there and taking care of me after. I had somehow been out there for nearly half an hour, screaming my lungs out, wandering aimlessly in our park. Ironically enough, if whatever or whoever hadn't attacked me, I might have died out there. The rest of the week was a blur for me. I'd become more ill than before, and we were waiting on the snowstorm to die down before taking me to the emergency room. Anne made a surprisingly amazing nurse for a music major, and Rosebud made for great company. When Anne faced the storm alone and came back with food and toiletries in tow, nothing odd happened to her on the way, other than discovering that the road to the hospital was out. We weren't going to call anyway. An ambulance or two had already crashed when going to the university to pump kids' stomachs who drank too much while being cooped up for too long. But now we were for sure going to just wait it out. With two of our three problems sorted, all we needed now were clean clothes. But with the laundromat's pipes bursting and the entrance practically being snowed in, we decided to wash our clothes in the tub and let them air dry. Somehow we survived, and a certain gift was proof of what we first thought were shared delusions.
there were bare human footprints and coyote footprints by our window. This terrifying discovery would be repeated every snowfall after that. But to my knowledge, that was the worst of it, while we lived in Flagstaff. Our friends would occasionally tell us that they heard tapping on the window when they were over for Dungeons and Dragons, or that odd noises would come from the apartment above, or the downright freaky night I had to drive Anne to the hospital, only for the same five deer to follow us all the way there and back to our apartment. The way they watched us drive and turned their heads felt wrong. Yet, despite being freaked out, no harm came out of it. Nothing else traumatic happened in Flagstaff, other than being financially unable to continue going to school there. Odd glimpses of someone watching us from our upstairs neighbors were the worst after that. The only night that stood out while we still lived there was the night of my birthday when my fiancé and I heard a clear as day, Happy Birthday, come from outside our window that night. I wish I could say that was the end, but whatever it was followed us as we moved back to our hometown. It all started back up again on the night when a blinding bright light shone into our bedroom at my dad's place. The world went silent as it washed away the darkness, and as quickly as it came, it went. The sounds of the world came back, but it wasn't like a predator had shown up. No, it was just that everything went silent. My fiancé and I had looked at each other and spoken to one another, but neither of us was able to even hear our own words. And after that night, the tapping and knocking began again. Rosebud had stopped barking at it. I think she must have gotten used to it. But my dad's dogs were driven insane by it, barking at all hours of the night. The last major incident to happen for over a year was one of the worst. My fiancé and I were packing up, getting ready to move across the country to live with my family in the South. We were watching a show on Netflix. It was a stormy night, but clear as day against the sound of the wind howling and the house rattling were footsteps in the gravel. Anne checked the window to see if my dad was home, but only our car sat out front. Then I heard someone walking up the wood steps to the front door. I raced to the door and saw it as it began to open. I pushed against it as whatever was outside pushed back. It nearly flung open. My fiancé ran into our room to get our baseball bat, while Rosebud growled and barked at the would-be intruder. From the other side, I heard my dad demanding to be let in, stating that I had invited him over. But none of this made sense as we were living with him. He was supposed to be out with his girlfriend that night anyway. I dug my heels in and pushed with all my might, then turned the lock once I heard the door slam back into its frame. Anne made it back into the room, and we all heard it run towards the window of my dad's room. It began to bang on it. We called the cops at that point and hid in the dining room. When they arrived, the officer talked down to us about not calling the cops over wind. We explained it wasn't wind, that whoever it was had been talking and we heard footsteps. But the officer was having none of it, telling us not to call again from this address. Luckily, that was the last time we'd have to call the cops. I want to say once we moved in with my mom in Alabama that things were great, but they honestly weren't. 
my stepfather ended up becoming extremely abusive towards all of us, and after a year of torture, we moved back to our hometown with our tails between our legs. It was in the return trip nearly a year later that the last major event with this thing took place. Of all of them, this one is the one that stuck with me the most. As we were making our way back to Arizona, through New Mexico, we had decided to drive through the mountains to cut the trip down by a day. Of course, as our luck would have it, we were caught in a freak snowstorm. Anne was driving at the time, and I ended up having to navigate how the road turned by GPS as we were driving completely blind by a certain point. Rosebud was whimpering by my feet, and my fiancé and I had to work together to avoid possible cars coming from the other direction. But it was in that snowstorm on the side of the road that I saw a white figure following us through the whole storm. It watched and waved at me as I occasionally looked out into the mesmerizing swirls of snow. This idea terrified me that if our car broke down, that we'd be greeted by this thing that had waited for us to return, waiting for another chance to attack. When we reached the end of the storm, I took a final last look at it, staring down our moving truck. I have seen it since, and I've heard tapping on the window from time to time, and while I feel it may not be over yet, it hasn't tried anything for a long time. I want to say as I'm typing this out, I can hear tapping on my window and whispers in my fiancé's voice, but truthfully I don't. Besides the occasional creak in my attic and thud from my shed, not much happens anymore. I think the most was my parents hearing something bang on the kitchen wall, but nothing ever came of it. I sometimes have nightmares about that snowstorm in the mountains, of that thing silently watching us. It's something I kept to myself until now, and hopefully writing this will help with the healing process and reoccurring nightmares.